Melisandre. It was never truly dark in Melisandre's chambers. Three tallow candles burned upon her windowsill to keep the terrors of the night at bay. Four more flickered beside her bed, two to either side. In the hearth a fire was kept burning day and night. The first lesson those who would serve her had to learn was that the fire must never, ever be allowed to go out. The Red Priestess closed her eyes and said a prayer, then opened them once more to face the hearth fire. One more time, she had to be certain. Many a priest and priestess before her had been brought down by false visions, by seeing what they wished to see, instead of what the Lord of Light had sent. Stannis was marching south into peril. The king who carried the fate of the world upon his shoulders, Azor Ahai reborn. Shore Relor would vouchsafe her a glimpse of what awaited him. Show me Stannis, Lord, she prayed. Show me your king, your instrument. Visions danced before her, gold and scarlet, flickering, forming and melting, and dissolving into one another, shapes strange and terrifying and seductive. She saw the eyeless faces again, staring out at her from sockets weeping blood. Then the towers by the sea, crumbling as the dark tide came sweeping over them, rising from the depths. Shadows in the shape of skulls, skulls that turned to mist, bodies locked together in lust, writhing and rolling and clawing. Through curtains of fire, great winged shadows wheeled against a hard blue sky. The girl, I must find the girl again, the grey girl on the dying horse. Jon Snow would expect that of her, and soon. It would not be enough to say the girl was fleeing. He would want more. He would want the when and where, and she did not have that for him. She had seen the girl only once. A girl as grey as ash, and even as I watched, she crumbled and blew away. A face took shape within the hearth. Stannis, she thought, just for a moment, but no, these were not his features. A wooden face, corpse white. Was this the enemy? A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. He sees me. Beside him, a boy with a wolf's face threw back his head and howled. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. Strange voices called to her from days long past. Melanie! She heard a woman cry. A man's voice called, Lot Seven! She was weeping and her tears were flame, and still she drank it in. Snowflakes swirled from a dark sky, and ashes rose to meet them, the grey and the white whirling around each other as flaming arrows arced above a wooden wall, and dead things shambled silent through the cold, beneath a great grey cliff where fires burned inside a hundred caves. Then the wind rose, and the white mist came sweeping in, impossibly cold, and one by one the fires went out. 
Afterward, only the skulls remained. Death, thought Melisandre. The skulls are death. The flames crackled softly, and in their crackling she heard the whispered name, John Snow. His long face floated before her, limbed in tongues of red and orange, appearing and disappearing again. A shadow half seen behind a fluttering curtain. Now he was a man, now a wolf, now a man again. But the skulls were here as well. The skulls were all around him. Melisandre had seen his danger before, had tried to warn the boy of it. Enemies all around him, daggers in the dark. He would not listen. Unbelievers never listened, until it was too late. What do you see, my lady? the boy asked softly. Skulls, a thousand skulls, and the bastard boy again, Jon Snow. Whenever she was asked what she saw within her fires, Melisandre would answer, Much and more. But seeing was never as simple as those words suggested. It was an art, and like all arts it demanded mastery, discipline, study. Pain, that too. Relor spoke to his chosen ones through blessed fire, in the language of ash and cinder and twisting flame that only a god could truly grasp. Melisandre had practiced her art for years beyond count, and she had paid the price. There was no one, even in her order, who had her skill at seeing the secrets half-revealed and half-concealed within the sacred flames. Yet now she could not even seem to find her king. I pray for a glimpse of Azor Ahai, and Relor shows me only snow. Devon, she called, a drink. Her throat was raw and parched. Yes, my lady. The boy poured her a cup of water from the stone jug by the window and brought it to her. Thank you. Melisandre took a sip, swallowed, and gave the boy a smile. That made him blush. The boy was half in love with her, she knew. He fears me, he wants me, and he worships me. All the same, Devon was not pleased to be here. The lad had taken great pride in serving as a king's squire, and it had wounded him when Stannis commanded him to remain at Castle Black. Like any boy his age, his head was full of dreams of glory. No doubt he had been picturing the prowess he would display at Deepwood Mott. Other boys his age had gone south to serve as squires to the king's knights and ride into battle at their side. Devon's exclusion must have seemed a rebuke, a punishment for some failure on his part, or perhaps for some failure of his father. In truth, he was here because Melisandre had asked for him. The four eldest sons of Davos Seaworth had perished in the battle on the Blackwater when the king's fleet had been consumed by green fire. Devon was the fifth-born, and safer here with her than at the king's side. Lord Davos would not thank her for it, no more than the boy himself, but it seemed to her that Seaworth had suffered enough grief. Misguided as he was, his loyalty to Stannis could not be doubted. She had seen that in her flames. 
Devon was quick and smart and able, too, which was more than could be said about most of her attendants. Stannis had left a dozen of his men behind to serve her when he marched south, but most of them were useless. His grace had need of every sword, so all he could spare were greybeards and cripples. One man had been blinded by a blow to his head in the battle by the wall. Another lamed when his falling horse crushed his legs. Her sergeant had lost an arm to a giant's club. Three of her guard were geldings that Stannis had castrated for raping wildling women. She had two drunkards and a craven too. The last should have been hanged, as the king himself admitted, but he came from a noble family, and his father and brothers had been stalwart from the first. Having guards about her would no doubt help keep the black brothers properly respectful, the red priestess knew. But none of the men that Stannis had given her were like to be much help, should she find herself in peril. It made no matter. Melisandre of Ashai did not fear for herself. Relore would protect her. She took another sip of water, laid her cup aside, blinked and stretched, and rose from her chair, her muscles sore and stiff. After gazing into the flame so long, it took her a few moments to adjust to the dimness. Her eyes were dry and tired, but if she rubbed them, it would only make them worse. Her fire had burned low, she saw. Devon, more wood! What hour is it? Almost dawn, my lady. Dawn, another day is given us, Rilor be praised. The terrors of the night recede. Melisandre had spent the night in her chair by the fire, as she often did. With Stannis gone, her bed saw little use. She had no time for sleep, with the weight of the world upon her shoulders, and she feared to dream. Sleep is a little death. Dreams the whisperings of the other, who would drag us all into his eternal night. She would sooner sit bathed in the ruddy glow of her red lord's blessed flames, her cheeks flushed by the wash of heat, as if by a lover's kisses. Some night she drowsed, but never for more than an hour. One day Melisandre prayed she would not sleep at all. One day she would be free of dreams. Melanie, she thought, lot seven. Devon fed fresh lugs to the fire until the flames leapt up again fierce and furious, driving the shadows back into the corners of the room, devouring all her unwanted dreams. The dark recedes again for a little while, but beyond the wall the enemy grows stronger, and should he win... The dawn will never come again. She wondered if it had been his face that she had seen staring out at her from the flames. No, surely not. His visage would be more frightening than that, cold and black and too terrible for any man to gaze upon and live. The wooden man she had glimpsed, though, and the boy with the wolf's face. They were his servants, surely, his champions, as Stannis was hers. Melisandre went to her window, pushed open the shutters. Outside, the east had just begun to lighten, and the stars of morning still hung in a pitch-black sky. Castle Black was already beginning to stir, 
as men in black cloaks made their way across the yard to break their fast with bowls of porridge before they relieved their brothers atop the wall. A few snowflakes drifted by the open window, floating on the wind. Does my lady wish to break her fast? asked Devon. Food. Yes, I should eat. Some day she forgot. Relor provided her with all the nourishment her body needed, but that was something best concealed for mortal men. It was John Snow she needed, not fried bread and bacon. But it was no use sending Devon to the Lord Commander. He would not come to her summons. Snow still chose to dwell behind the armory, in a pair of modest rooms previously occupied by the Watcher's late blacksmith. Perhaps he did not think himself worthy of the King's Tower, or perhaps he did not care. That was his mistake. The false humility of youth, that is itself a sort of pride. It was never wise for a ruler to eschew the trappings of power, for power itself flows in no small measure from such trappings. The boy was not entirely naive, however. He knew better than to come to Melisandre's chambers like a supplicant, insisting she come to him instead, should she have need of words with him. And oft as not, when she did come, he would keep her waiting or refuse to see her. That much, at least, was shrewd. I will have nettle tea, a boiled egg, and bread with butter. Fresh bread, if you please, not fried. You may find the wilding as well. Tell him that I must speak with him. Rattle shirt, my lady, and quickly. While the boy was gone, Melisandre washed herself and changed her robes. Her sleeves were full of hidden pockets and she checked them carefully, as she did every morning, to make certain all her powders were in place. Powders to turn fire green, or blue, or silver. Powders to make a flame roar and hiss, and leap up higher than a man is tall. Powders to make smoke. A smoke for truth, a smoke for lust, a smoke for fear, and the thick black smoke that could kill a man outright. The Red Priestess armed herself with a pinch of each of them. The carved chest that she had brought across the narrow sea was more than three-quarters empty now, and while Melisandre had the knowledge to make more powders, she lacked many rare ingredients. My spells should suffice. She was stronger at the wall, stronger even than in Ashai. Her every word and gesture was more potent, and she could do things that she had never done before. Such shadows as I bring forth here will be terrible, and no creature of the dark will stand before them. With such sorceries at her command, she should soon have no more need of the feeble tricks of alchemists and pyromancers. She shut the chest, turned the lock, and hid the key inside her skirts in another secret pocket. Then came a rapping at her door her one-armed sergeant, from the tremulous sound of his knock. Lady Melisandre, the Lord of Bones has come. Send him in. Melisandre settled herself back into the chair beside the hearth. The wilding wore a sleeveless jerkin of boiled leather dotted with bronze studs, beneath a worn cloak 
mottled in shades of green and brown. No bones. He was cloaked in shadows, too, in wisps of ragged grey mist, half seen, sliding across his face and form with every step he took. Ugly things, as ugly as his bones. A widow's peak, close-set dark eyes, pinched cheeks, a moustache wriggling like a worm above a mouthful of broken brown teeth. Melisandre felt the warmth in the hollow of her throat as her ruby stirred at the closeness of its slave. You have put aside your suit of bones, she observed. The clacking was like to drive me mad. The bones protect you, she reminded him. The Black Brothers do not love you. Devon tells me that only yesterday you had words with some of them over supper. A few? I was eating bean and bacon soup whilst Bowen Marsh was going on about the high ground. The old pomegranate thought that I was spying on him and announced that he would not suffer murderers listening to their counsel. I told them that if that was true, maybe they shouldn't have them by the fire. <laughs> Bowen turned red and made some choking sounds, but that was as far as it went. The wildling sat on the edge of the window, slid his dagger from its sheath. If some crow wants to slip a knife between my ribs whilst I'm spooning up some supper, he's welcome to try. <laughs> Hub's gruel would taste better with a drop of blood to spice it. Melisandre paid the naked steel no mind. If the wiling had meant her harm, she would have seen it in her flames. Danger to her own person was the first thing she had learned to see. Back when she was still half a child, a slave girl bound for life to the great red temple. It was still the first thing she looked for whenever she gazed into a fire. It is their eyes that should concern you, not their knives, she warned him. The glamour, oi! In the black arm fetter about his wrist, the ruby seemed to pulse. He tapped it with the edge of his blade. The steel made a faint click against the stone. I feel it when I sleep, warm against my skin, even through the iron, soft as a woman's kiss, your kiss. <laughs> but sometimes in my dreams it starts to burn, and your lips turn into teeth. Every day I think how easy it would be to pry it out, and every day I don't. <laughs> Must I wear the bloody bones as well? The spell is made of shadow and suggestion. Men see what they expect to see. The bones are part of that. Was I wrong to spare this one? If the glamour fails, they will kill you. The wilding began to scrape the dirt out beneath his nails with the point of his dagger. I've sung my songs, fought my battles, drunk summer wine, tasted the Dornishman's wife. A man should die the way he's lived. For me, that's steel in hand. Does he dream of death? Could the enemy have touched him? Death is his domain. 
the dead, his soldiers. You shall have work for your steel soon enough. The enemy is moving, the true enemy, and Lord Snow's rangers will return before the day is done with their blind and bloody eyes. The wildling's own eyes narrowed, grey eyes, brown eyes. Melisandre could see the colour change with each pulse of the ruby. Cutting out the eyes, that's a weeper's work. The best crow's a blind crow, he likes to say. Sometimes I think he'd like to cut out his own eyes, the way they're always watering and itching. Snow's been assuming the free folk would turn to torment to lead them, because that's what he would do. <laughs> he liked torment, and the old fraud liked him too. If it's the weeper, though, oh, that's not good. No, not for him, <laughs> not for us. Melisandre nodded solemnly, as if she had taken his words to heart. But this weeper did not matter. None of his free folk mattered. They were a lost people, a doomed people, destined to vanish from the earth, as the children of the forest had vanished. Those were not words he would wish to hear, though, and she could not risk losing him, not now. How well do you know the north? He slipped his blade away. As well as any raider. Some parts more than others. <laughs> There's a lot of north. Why? The girl, she said, a girl in grey on a dying horse, Jon Snow's sister. Who else could it be? She was racing to him for protection. That much Melisandre had seen clearly. I have seen her in my flames, but only once. We must win the Lord Commander's trust, and the only way to do that is to save her. Me save her, you mean? The Lord of Bones? <laughs> <laughs> no one ever trusted Rattleshirt but fools. Snow's not that. If his sister needs saving, he'll send his crows. I would. He is not you. He made his vows and means to live by them. The Night's Watch takes no part. But you are not Night's Watch. You can do what he cannot. If your stiff-necked Lord Commander will allow it, did your fires show you where to find this girl? I saw water, deep and blue and still, with a thin coat of ice just forming on it. It seemed to go on and on forever. Long Lake, what else did you see around this girl? Hills, fields, trees, a deer once, stones, she is staying well away from villages. When she can, she rides along the bed of little streams to throw hunters off her trail. He frowned. That will make it difficult. She was coming north, you said. Was the lake to her east or to her west? Melisandre closed her eyes, remembering. Uh, west. She is not coming up the king's road, then. Clever girl. <laughs> There were fewer watchers on the other side, and more cover, and some hidey-holes I could have used myself from time. He broke off at the sound of a war-horn, and rose swiftly to his feet. All over Castle Black, Melisandre knew, 
The same sudden hush had fallen, and every man and boy turned toward the wall, listening, waiting. One long blast of the horn meant rangers returning. But two... The day has come, the Red Priestess thought. Lord Snow will have to listen to me now. After the long mournful cry of the horn had faded away, the silence seemed to stretch out to an hour. The wilding finally broke the spell. Only one, then. Rangers. Dead rangers. Melisandre rose to her feet as well. Go put on your bones and wait. I will return. I shall go with you. Do not be foolish. Once they find what they will find, the sight of any wilding will inflame them. Stay here until their blood has time to cool. Devon was coming up the steps of the King's Tower as Melisandre made her descent, franked by two of the guards that Stannis had left her. The boy was carrying her half-forgotten breakfast on a tray. I waited for Hub to pull the fresh loaves from the ovens, my lady. The bread's still hot. Leave it in my chambers. The wildling would eat it, like as not. Lord Snow has need of me beyond the wall. He does not know it yet, but soon. Outside, a light snow had begun to fall. A crowd of crows had gathered around the gate by the time Melisandre and her escort arrived, but they made way for the Red Priestess. The Lord Commander had preceded her through the ice, accompanied by Bowen Marsh and twenty spearmen. Snow had also sent a dozen archers to the top of the wall, should any foes be hidden in the nearby woods. The guards on the gate were not Queen's men, but they passed her all the same. It was cold and dark beneath the ice, in the narrow tunnel that cooked and slithered through the wall. Morgan went before her with a torch, and Merrill came behind her with an axe. Both men were hopeless drunkards, but they were sober at this hour of the morning. Queen's men, at least in name, both had a healthy fear of her, and Merrill could be formidable when he was not drunk. She would have no need of them today, but Melisandre made it a point to keep a pair of guards about her everywhere she went. It sent a certain message. The trappings of power. By the time the three of them emerged north of the wall, the snow was falling steadily. A ragged blanket of white covered the torn and tortured earth that stretched from the wall to the edge of the haunted forest. John Snow and his black brothers were gathered around three spears, some twenty yards away. The spears were eight feet long and made of ash. The one on the left had a slight crook, but the other two were smooth and straight. At the top of each was impaled a severed head. Their beards were full of ice, and the falling snow had given them white hoods. Where their eyes had been, only empty sockets remained, black and bloody holes that stared down in silent accusation. Who were they? Melisandre asked the crows. Blackjack Bulwer, Harry Hal, and Garth Greyfeather, Bowen Marsh said solemnly. The ground is half frozen. It must have taken the wildlings half the night to drive the spear so deep. 
They could still be close, watching us. The Lord Stuart squinted at the line of trees. Could be a hundred of them out there, said the black brother with a dour face. Could be a thousand. No, said Jon Snow. They left their gifts in the black of night. They ran. His huge white direwolf prowled around the shaft, sniffing, then lifted his leg and pissed on the spear that held the head of Black Jack Bulwer. Ghost would have their scent if they were still out there. I hope the weeper burned the bodies, said the dour men, the one called Dollar's Head. Elsewise, eh, they might come looking for their heads. Jon Snow grasped the spear that bore Garth Greyfeather's head and wrenched it violently from the ground. Pull down the other two, he commanded, and four of the crows hurried to obey. Bowen Marsh's cheeks were red with cold. We should never have sent out rangers. This is not the time and place to pick at that wound. Not here, my lord, not now. To the men struggling with the spears, Snow said, Take the heads and burn them. Leave nothing but bare bone. Only then did he seem to notice Melisandre. My lady, walk with me, if you would. At last, if it please the Lord Commander. As they walked beneath the wall, she slipped her arm through his. Morgan and Merrill went before them. Ghosts came prowling at their heels. The priestess did not speak, but she slowed her pace deliberately, and where she walked the ice began to drip. He will not fail to notice that. Beneath the iron grating of a murder hole, Snow broke the silence, as she had known he would. What of the other six? Oh, I have not seen them, Melisandre said. Will you look? Of course, my lord. We've had a raven from Sir Dennis Malister at the Shadow Tower, Jon Snow told her. His men have seen fires in the mountains on the far side of the gorge. Wildlings massing, Sir Dennis believes. He thinks they are going to try to force the Bridge of Skulls again. Some may. Could the skulls in her vision have signified this bridge? Somehow Melisandre did not think so. If it comes, that attack will be no more than a diversion. I saw towers by the sea submerged beneath a black and bloody tide. That is where the heaviest blow will fall. Eastwatch, was it? Melisandre had seen Eastwatch by the sea with King Stannis. That was where his grace left Queen Silas and her daughter Shireen when he assembled his knights for the march to Castle Black. The towers in her fire had been different, but that was off the way with visions. Yes, Eastwatch, my lord. When? She spread her hands. On the morrow, in a moon's turn, in a year. And it may be that if you act, you may avert what I have seen entirely. Else, what would be the point of visions? Good, said Snow. The crowd of crows beyond the gate had swollen to two score by the time they emerged from beneath the wall. The men pressed close about them. Melisandre knew a few by name. The cook three-finger hub, Mully with his greasy orange hair, the dim-witted boy called Owen the Oaf, 
the drunkard Septon Celadar. Is it true, my lord? said Three Finger Hub. Who is it? asked Owen the Oaf. Not die when is it? Nor Garth, said the Queen's man, she knew as Alf of Runnymud, one of the first to exchange his seven false guards for the truth of R'hllor. Garth's too clever for them wildlings. How many? Molly asked. Three, John told them. Blackjack, Harry Hal, and Garth. Alf of Runnymud let out a howl loud enough to wake sleepers in the shadow tower. Put him to bed and get some mull wine into him, John told Three Finger Hub. Lord Snow, Melisandre said quietly, will you come with me to the King's Tower? I have more to share with you. He looked at her face for a long moment with those cold grey eyes of his. His right hand closed, opened, closed again. As you wish. Ed, take Ghost back to my chambers. Melisandre took that as a sign, and dismissed her own guard as well. They crossed the yard together, just the two of them. The snow fell all around them. She walked as close to Jon Snow as she dared, close enough to feel the mistrust pouring off him, like a black fog. He does not love me, will never love me, but he will make use of me, well and good. Melisandre had danced the same dance with Stannis Baratheon back in the beginning. In truth, the young Lord Commander and her king had more in common than either of them would ever have been willing to admit. Stannis had been a younger son, living in the shadow of his elder brother, just as Jon Snow, bastard-born, had always been eclipsed by his true-born sibling, the fallen hero men had called the young wolf. Both men were unbelievers by nature, mistrustful, suspicious. The only gods they truly worshipped were honour and duty. "'You have not asked about your sister,' Melisandre said, as they climbed the spiral steps of the king's tower. "'I told you, I have no sister. We put aside our kin when we say our words. I cannot help Arya, much as I—' He broke off as they stepped inside her chambers. The wildling was within, seated at her board, spreading butter on a ragged chunk of warm brown bread with his dagger. He had done the bone armour she was pleased to see. The broken giant skull that was his helm rested on the window seat behind him. Jon Snow tensed. You? Lord Snow! The wildling grinned at them through a mouth of brown and broken teeth. The ruby on his wrist glimmered in the morning light like a dim red star. What are you doing here? Breaking my fast. You're welcome to share. I'll not break bread with you. Your loss. The loaf's too warm. Hub can do that much at least. The wildling ripped off a bite. I can visit you as easily, my lord. Those guards at your door are a bad shape. A man who has climbed the wall half a hundred times can climb in a window easy enough. But what good would come of killing you? The crows would only choose someone worse. He chewed and swallowed. I heard about your rangers. 
you should have sent me with them. So you could betray them to the weeper? Are we talking about betrayals? <laughs> what was the name of that wilding wife of your snow? Igret, wasn't it? The wilding turned to Melisandre. I will need horses, half a dozen good ones, and this is nothing I can do alone. Some of the spear wives penned up at Mole's town should serve. Women would be best for this. The girls more like to trust them, and they will help me carry off a certain ploy I have in mind. What is he talking about, Lord Snowaster? Your sister, Melisandre, put her hand on his arm. You cannot help her, but he can. Snow wrenched his arm away. I think not. You do not know this creature. Rattleshirt could wash his hands a hundred times a day, and he'd still have blood beneath his nails. He'd be more like to rape and murder Arya than to save her. No. If this was what you have seen in your fires, my lady, you must have ashes in your eyes. If he tries to leave Castle Black without my leave, I'll take his head off myself. He leaves me no choice. So be it. Devon, leave us, she said, and the squire slipped away and closed the door behind him. Melisandre touched the ruby at her neck and spoke a word. The sound echoed queerly from the corners of the room and twisted like a worm inside their ears. The wilding heard one word, the crow another. Neither was the word that left her lips. The ruby on the wilding's wrist darkened, and the wisps of light and shadow around him writhed and faded. The bones remained, the rattling ribs, the claws and teeth along his arms and shoulders, the great yellowed collarbone across his shoulders, the broken giant skull remained a broken giant skull, yellowed and cracked, grinning its stained and savage grin. But the widow's peak dissolved, the brown moustache, the knobby chin, the sallow yellowed flesh and small dark eyes, all melted. Grey fingers crept through long brown hair. Laugh lines appeared at the corners of his mouth. All at once he was bigger than before broader in the chest and shoulders, long-legged and lean, his face clean-shaved and wind-burnt. Jon Snow's grey eyes grew wider. Mance? Lord Snow. Mance Raider did not smile. She burned you. She burned the Lord of Bones. Jon Snow turned to Melisandre. What sorcery is this? Call it what you will. Glamour? Seeming illusion? Rilor is Lord of Light, Jon Snow, and it is given to his servants to weave with it, as others weave with thread. Mans Raider chuckled. I had my doubts as well, Snow, but why not let her try? It was that, or let Stannis roast me. The bones help, said Melisandre. The bones remember— the strongest glamours are built of such things. A dead man's boots, a hank of hair, a bag of finger bones. With whispered words and prayer, 
a man's shadow can be drawn forth from such and draped about another like a cloak. The wearer's essence does not change, only his seeming. She made it sound a simple thing and easy. They need never know how difficult it had been, or how much it had cost her. That was a lesson Melisandre had learned long before Ashai. The more effortless the sorcery appears, the more men fear the sorcerer. When the flames had licked at Rattleshirt, the ruby at her throat had grown so hot that she feared her own flesh might start to smoke and blacken. Thankfully, Lord Snow had delivered her from that agony with his arrows. While Stannis had seethed in defiance, she had shuddered with relief. Our false king has a prickly manner, Melisandre told Jon Snow. But he will not betray you. We hold his son, remember, and he owes you his very life. Me? Snow sounded startled. Who else, my lord? Only his life's blood could pay for his crimes, your law said, and Stannis Baratheon is not a man to go against the law. But as you said so sagely, the laws of men end at the wall. I told you that the Lord of Light would hear your prayers. You wanted a way to save your little sister and still hold fast to the honor that means so much to you, to the vows you swore before your wooden god. She pointed with a pale finger. There he stands, Lord Snow. Arya's deliverance, a gift from the Lord of Light, and me. Reek He heard the girls first, barking as they raced for home. The drum of hoofbeats Echoing off flagstone, jerked him to his feet, chains rattling. The one between his ankles was no more than a foot long, shortening his stride to a shuffle. It was hard to move quickly that way, but he tried as best he could, hopping and clanking from his pallet. Ramsay Bolton had returned, and would want his reek on hand to serve him. Outside, beneath a cold autumnal sky, the hunters were pouring through the gates. Ben Bones led the way, with the girls baying and barking all around him. Behind came Skinner, Sir Allen, and Damon Dance for me, with his long, greased whip. Then the Walders riding the grey colts Lady Dustin had given them. His lordship himself rode blood, a red stallion with a temper to match his own. He was laughing. That could be very good or very bad, Reek knew. The dogs were on him before he could puzzle out which, drawn to his scent. The dogs were fond of Reek. He slept with them oft as not, and sometimes Ben Bones let him share their supper. The pack raced across the flagstones barking, circling him, jumping up to lick his filthy face, nipping at his legs. Hellicent caught his left hand between her teeth and worried it so fiercely Reek feared he might lose two more fingers. Red Jane slammed into his chest and knocked him off his feet. She was lean, hard muscle, where Reek was loose grey skin and brittle bones, a white-haired starveling. 
The riders were dismounting by the time he pushed Red Jane off and struggled to his knees. Two dozen horsemen had gone out, and two dozen had returned, which meant the search had been a failure. That was bad. Ramsay did not like the taste of failure. He will want to hurt someone. Of late, his lord had been forced to restrain himself, for Barreton was full of men House Bolton needed, and Ramsay knew to be careful around the Dustins and Risewells and his fellow lordlings. With them he was always courteous and smiling. What he was behind closed doors was something else. Ramsay Bolton was attired as befit the Lord of the Hornwood, an heir to the Dreadfort. His mantle was stitched together from wolfskins, and clasped against the autumn chill by the yellow teeth of a wolf's head on his right shoulder. On one hip he wore a falcion, its blade as thick and heavy as a cleaver. On the other, a long dagger and a small curved flaying knife with a hooked point and a razor-sharp edge. All three blades had matched hilts of yellow bone. Reek, his lordship called down from Blood's high saddle. You stink. I can smell you clear across the yard. I know, my lord, Reek had to say. I beg your pardon. I brought you a gift. Ramsay twisted, reached behind him, pulled something from his saddle, and flung it. Catch! Between the chain, the fetters, and his missing fingers, Reek was clumsier than he had been before he learned his name. The head struck his maimed hands, bounced away from the stumps of his fingers, and landed at his feet, raining maggots. It was so crusted with dried blood as to be unrecognizable. I told you to catch it, said Ramsay. Pick it up. Reek tried to lift the head up by the ear. It was no good. The flesh was green and rotting, and the ear tore off between his fingers. Little Walder laughed, and a moment later the other men were laughing too. Oh, leave him be, said Ramsay. Just see the blood. I rode the bastard hard. Yes, my lord, I will. Reek hurried to the horse, leaving the severed head for the dogs. "'You smell like pig shit today, Reek,' said Ramsay. "'On him, that's an improvement,' said Damon Dance for me, smiling as he coiled his whip. Little Walder swung down from the saddle. "'You can see to my horse too, Reek, and to my little cousins.' "'I can see to my own horse,' said Big Walder. Little Walder had become Lord Ramsay's best boy.' and grew more like him every day. But the smaller fray was made of different stuff, and seldom took part in his cousin's games and cruelties. Reek paid the squires no mind. He led Blood off toward the stables, hopping aside when the stallion tried to kick him. The hunter strode into the hall, all but Ben Bones, who was cursing at the dogs to stop them fighting over the severed head. Big Walder followed him into the stables, leading his own mount. Reek stole a look at him as he removed Blood's bit. Who was he? he said softly, so the other stable hands would not hear. No one. Big Walder pulled the saddle off his grey. An old man we met on the road, is all. He was driving an old nanny goat and four kids. His lordship slew him for his goats. 
His lordship slew him for calling him Lord Snow. The goats were good, though. We milked the mother and roasted up the kids. Lord Snow? Reek nodded, his chains clinking as he wrestled with blood saddle straps. By any name, Ramsay's no man to be around when he's in a rage, or when he's not. Did you find your cousins, my lord? No, I never thought we would. They're dead. Lord Wyman had them killed. That's what I would have done if I were him. Reek said nothing. Some things were not safe to say, not even in the stables with his lordship in the hall. One wrong word could cost him another toe, even a finger. Not my tongue, though. He will never take my tongue. He likes to hear me plead with him to spare me from the pain. He likes to make me say it. The riders had been sixteen days on the hunt, with only hard bread and salt beef to eat, aside from the occasional stolen kid. So that night Lord Ramsay commanded that a feast be laid to celebrate his return to Barrington. Their host, a grizzled one-armed petty lord by the name of Harwood Stout, knew better than to refuse him, though by now his larders must be well-nigh exhausted. Reek had heard stout servants muttering at how the bastard and his men were eating through the winter stores. He'll bed Lord Eddard's little girl, they say, Stout's cook complained when she did not know that Reek was listening. But we're the ones who'll be fucked when the snows come, you mark my words. Yet Lord Ramsay had decreed a feast, so feast they must. Trestle tables were set up in Stout's hall. An ox was slaughtered, and that night as the sun went down, the empty-handed hunters ate roasts and ribs, barley bread, a mash of carrots and peas, washing it all down with prodigious quantities of ale. It fell to little Walder to keep Lord Ramsay's cup filled, whilst big Walder poured for the others at the high table. Reek was chained up beside the doors, lest his odour put the feasters off their appetites. He would eat later off whatever scraps Lord Ramsay thought to send him. The dogs enjoyed the run of the hall, however, and provided the night's best entertainment. When Maud and Grey Jane tore into one of Lord Stout's hounds over an especially meaty bone that Will Short had tossed them, Reek was the only man in the hall who did not watch the three dogs bite. He kept his eyes on Ramsay Bolton. The fight did not end until their host's dog was dead. Stout's old hound never stood a mummer's chance. He had been one against two, and Ramsay's bitches were young, strong, and savage. Ben Bones, who liked the dogs better than their master, had told Reek they were all named after peasant girls Ramsay had hunted, raped, and killed back when he'd still been a bastard, running with the first Reek. The ones who give him good sport, anyways. Uh, the ones who weep and beg and won't run, don't get to come back as bitches. The next litter to come out of the Dreadfort's kennels would include a Kyra. Reek did not doubt. He's trained them to kill wolves as well, Ben Bones had confided. Reek said nothing. He knew which wolves the girls were meant to kill, 
but he had no wish to watch the girls fighting over his severed toe. Two serving men were carrying off the dead dog's carcass, and an old woman had fetched out a mop and rake and bucket to deal with the blood-soaked rushes when the doors to the hall flew open in a wash of wind, and a dozen men in grey mail and iron half-helms stalked through, shouldering past Tart's pasty-faced young guards in their leather brigandines and cloaks of gold and russet. A sudden silence seized the feasters, all but Lord Ramsay, who tossed aside the bone he had been gnawing, wiped his mouth on his sleeve, smiled a greasy, wet-lipped smile, and said, "'Father!' The Lord of the Dreadfort glanced idly at the remnants of the feast, at the dead dog, at the hangings on the walls, at reek in his chains and fetters. "'Out,' he told the feasters, in a voice as soft as a murmur, "'Now, the lot of you.' Lord Ramsay's men pushed back from the tables, abandoning cups and trenches. Ben Bones shouted at the girls, and they trotted after him, some with bones still in their jaws. Harvard Stout bowed stiffly, and relinquished his hall without a word. "'Unchain Reek and take him with you,' Ramsay growled at Sire Allen. But his father waved a pale hand and said, "'No, leave him.' Even Lord Roos's own guards retreated, pulling the doors shut behind them. When the echo died away, Reek found himself alone in the hall with the two Boltons, father and son. You did not find our missing phrase. The way Roos Bolton said it, it was more a statement than a question. We rode back to where Lord Lamprey claims they parted ways, but the girls could not find a trail. You asked after them in villages and whole fasts. A waste of words. The peasants might as well be blind for all they ever see. Ramsay shrugged. Does it matter? The world won't miss a few frays. There's plenty more done at the twins, should we ever have need of one. Lord Roos tore a small piece off a heel of bread and ate it. Hostine and Anis are distressed. Let them go looking if they like. Lord Wyman blames himself. To hear him tell it, he had become especially fond of Rhaegar. Lord Ramsay was turning wroth. Reek could see it in his mouth, the curl of those thick lips, the way the cord stood out in his neck. The fools should have stayed with Mendeley. Bruce Bolton shrugged. Lord Wyman's litter moves at a snail's pace, and of course his lordship's health and girth do not permit him to travel more than a few hours a day, with frequent stops for meals. The Freys were anxious to reach Barreton and be reunited with their kin. Can you blame them for riding on ahead? If that's what they did, do believe, Mandalay. His father's pale eyes glittered. Did I give you that impression? Still, his lordship is most distraught. Not so distraught that he can't eat. Lord Pig must have brought half the food in White Harbor with him. Forty wains full of foodstuffs. Casts of wine and hippocrass, barrels of fresh-caught lampreys, a herd of goats, a hundred pigs, crates of crabs and oysters, a monstrous codfish uh, Lord Wyman likes to eat. You may have noticed. What I noticed 
was that he brought no hostages. I noticed that as well. What do you mean to do about it? It is a quandary. Lord Roos found an empty cup, wiped it out on the tablecloth, and filled it from the flagon. Mandalay is not alone in throwing feasts, it would seem. It should have been you who threw the feast, to welcome me back, Ramsay complained. And it should have been in Barrow Hall, not this piss-pot of a castle. Barrow Hall and its kitchens are not mine to dispose of, his father said mildly. I am only a guest there. The castle and the town belong to Lady Dustin, and she cannot abide you. Ramsay's face darkened. If I cut off her teats and feed them to my girls, will she abide me then? Will she abide me if I strip off her skin to make myself a pair of boots? Unlikely, and those boots would come dear. They would cost us Barreton, House Dustin, and the Risewells. Bruce Bolton seated himself across the table from his son. Barbary Dustin is my second wife's younger sister, Roderick Risewell's daughter, sister to Roger, Ricard, and mine own namesake, Ruth, cousin to the other Risewells. She was fond of my late son and suspects you of having some part in his demise. Lady Barbary is a woman who knows how to nurse a grievance. Be grateful for that. Barreton is staunch for Bolton, largely because she still holds Ned Stark to blame for her husband's death. Staunch? Ramsay sees. All she does is spit on me. The day will come when I'll set her precious wooden town afire. Let her spit on that. See if it puts out the flames. Roos made a face, as if the ale he was sipping had suddenly gone sour. There are times you make me wonder if you truly are my seed. My forebears were many things, but never fools. No, be quiet now. I've heard enough. We appear strong for the moment, yes. We have powerful friends in the Lannisters and Freys, and the grudging support of much of the North. But what do you imagine is going to happen when one of Ned Stark's sons turns up? Ned Stark's sons are all dead, Reek thought. Rob was murdered at the twins, and Bran and Rickon. We dipped their heads in tar. His own head was pounding. He did not want to think about anything that had happened before he knew his name. There were things too hurtful to remember, thoughts almost as painful as Ramsay's flaying knife. Stark's little wolflings are dead, said Ramsay, slushing some more ale into his cup. And they'll stay dead. Let them show their ugly faces, and my girls will rip those wolves of theirs to pieces. The sooner they turn up, the sooner I kill them again. The elder Bolton sighed. Again? Oh, surely you misspeak. You never slew Lord Eddard's sons, those two sweet boys we loved so well. That was Theon Turncloak's work, remember? How many of our grudging friends do you imagine we'd retain if the truth were known? Only Lady Barbary, whom you would turn into a pair of boots, inferior boots. Human skin is not as tough as cowhide, and will not wear as well. By the king's decree, you are now a Bolton. 
Try and act like one. Tales are told of you, Ramsay. I hear them everywhere. People fear you. Good. You are mistaken. It is not good. No tales were ever told of me. Do you think I would be sitting here if it were otherwise? Your amusements are your own. I will not chide you on that count. But you must be more discreet. A peaceful land, a quiet people. That has always been my rule. Make it yours. Is this why you left Lady Dustin and your fat pig wife? So you could come down here and tell me to be quiet? Not at all. These are tidings that you need to hear. Lord Stannis has finally left the wall. That got Ramsay halfway to his feet, a smile glistening on his wide, wet lips. Is he marching on the dreadnought? He is not, unless. Arnulf does not understand it. He swears that he did all he could to bait the trap. I wonder. Scratch a car stock, and you'll find a stock. After the scratch the young wolf gave Lord Rickard, that may be somewhat less true than formerly. Be that as it may, Lord Stannis has taken deep wood mott from the Iron Men and restored it House Glover. Worse, the mountain clans have joined him, Wall and Norrie and Little and the rest. His strength is growing. Ours is greater. Now it is. Now is the time to smash him. Let me march on Deepwood. After you are wed. Ramsay slammed down his cup, and the dregs of his ale erupted across the tablecloth. I'm sick of waiting. We have a girl, we have a tree, and we have lords enough to witness. I'll wed her on the morrow, plant a sun between her legs, and march before her maiden's blood has dried. She'll pray for you to march, Reek thought and she'll pray that you never come back to her bed. You will plant a sun in her, Bruce Bolton said, but not here. I've decided you shall wed the girl at Winterfell. That prospect did not appear to please Lord Ramsay. I laid waste to Winterfell, or had you forgotten? No, but it appears you have. The Iron Men laid waste to Winterfell and butchered all its people, Theon Turncloak. Ramsay gave Reek a suspicious glance. Aye, so he did. But still, a wedding in that ruin? Even ruined and broken, Winterfell remains Lady Arya's home. What better place to wed her, bed her, and stake your claim? That is only half of it, however. We would be fools to march on Stannis. Let Stannis march on us. He is too cautious to come to Barreton, but he must come to Winterfell. His clansmen will not abandon the daughter of their precious Ned to such as you. Stannis must march or lose them. And being the careful commander that he is, he will summon all his friends and allies when he marches. He will summon Arnolf Karstark. Ramsay licked his chapped lips. And will have him. If the gods will it, Ruth rose to his feet. You'll wed at Winterfell. I shall inform the lords that we march in three days and invite them to accompany us. You are the warden of the north. Command them. An invitation will accomplish the same thing. Power tastes best when sweetened by courtesy. 
You had best learn that, if you ever hope to rule. The Lord of the Dreadfort glanced at Reek. Oh, and unchain your pet. I'm taking him. Taking him? Where? He's mine. You cannot have him. Roos seemed amused by that. All you have, I gave you. You would do well to remember that, bastard. As for this Reek, if you have not ruined him beyond redemption, he may yet be of some use to us. Get the keys and remove those chains from him. Before you make me rue the day I raped your mother. Reek saw the way Ramsay's mouth twisted, the spittle glistening between his lips. He feared he might leap the table with his dagger in his hand. Instead, he flushed red, turned his pale eyes from his father's paler ones, and went to find the keys. But as he knelt to unlock the fetters around Reek's wrists and ankles, he leaned close and whispered, "'Tell him nothing, and remember every word he says. I'll have you back, no matter what that dustin' bitch may tell you. Who are you?' Reek, my lord, your man, I'm Reek, it rhymes with sneak. It does. When my father brings you back, I'm going to take another finger. I'll let you choose which one. Unbidden, tears began to trickle down his cheeks. Why? he cried, his voice breaking. I never asked for him to take me from you. I'll do whatever you want. Serve, obey, I... Please, no. Ramsay slapped his face. Take him, he told his father. He's not even a man. The way he smells disgusts me. The moon was rising over the wooden walls of Barriton when they stepped outside. Reek could hear the wind sweeping across the rolling plains beyond the town. It was less than a mile from Barrow Hall to Hardwood Start's modest keep beside the eastern gates. Lord Bolton offered him a horse. Can you ride? I, uh, my lord, I, I think so. Walton, help him up. Even with the fetters gone, Reek moved like an old man. His flesh hung loosely on his bones, and Sir Allen and Ben Bones said he twitched, and his smell. Even the mare... They'd bought for him shied away when he tried to mount. She was a gentle horse, though, and she knew the way to Barrow Hall. Lord Bolton fell in beside him as they rode out the gate. The guards fell back to a discreet distance. "'What would you have me call you?' the Lord asked, as they trotted down the broad, straight streets of Barriton. "'Reek, I'm Reek. It rhymes with Reek.' "'Reek,' he said." If it please, my lord. My lord, Bolton's lips parted just enough to show a quarter inch of teeth. It might have been a smile. He did not understand. My lord, I said. My lord, when you should have said my lord. Your tongue betrays your birth with every word you say. If you want to sound a proper peasant, say it as if you had mud in your mouth or were too stupid to realise it was two words, not just one. If that please, my, uh, my lord. Better. Your stench is quite appalling. Uh, yes, my lord. I beg your pardon, my lord. Why? 
The way you smell is my son's doing, not your own. I'm well aware of that. They rode past a stable and a shuttered inn with a wheat sheaf painted on its sign. Reek heard music coming through its windows. I knew the first Reek. He stank, though not for want of washing. I have never known a cleaner creature, truth be told. He bathed thrice a day and wore flowers in his hair as if he were a maiden. Once when my second wife was still alive, he was caught stealing scent from her bedchamber. I had him whipped for that, a dozen lashes. Even his blood smelled wrong. The next year he tried it again. This time he drank the perfume and almost died of it. It made no matter. The smell was something he was born with. A curse, the small folk said. The guards had made him stink so that men would know his soul was rotting. My old maester said it was a sign of sickness, yet the boy was otherwise as strong as a young bull. No one could stand to be near him, so he slept with the pigs, until the day that Ramsay's mother appeared at my gates to demand that I provide a servant for my bastard, who was growing up wild and unruly. I gave her reek. It was meant to be amusing, but he and Ramsay became inseparable. I do wonder, though, was it Ramsay who corrupted Reek, or Reek Ramsay? His lordship glanced at the new Reek with eyes as pale and strange as two white moons. What was he whispering whilst he unchained you? He, uh, he said, he said to tell you nothing. The words caught in his throat, and he began to cough and choke. Breathe deep, I know what he said. You ought to spy on me and keep his secrets. Bolton chuckled. As if he had secrets. Sow Allen, Luton, Skinner, and the rest. Where does he think they came from? Can he truly believe they are his men? His men, Reek echoed. Some comment seemed to be expected of him, but he did not know what to say. Has my bastard ever told you how I got him? That he did know, to his relief. Uh, yes, my, uh, my lord. You met his mother whilst out riding, and were smitten by her beauty. Smitten? Bolton laughed. Did he use that word? <laughs> Why, the boy has a singer's soul. Though if you believe that song, you may well be dimmer than the first reek. Even the riding part is wrong. I was hunting a fox along the weeping water when I chanced upon a mill and saw a young woman washing clothes in the stream. The old miller had gotten himself a new young wife, a girl not half his age. She was a tall, willowy creature, very healthy-looking, long legs and small, firm breasts, like two ripe plums, pretty in a common sort of way. The moment that I set eyes on her, I wanted her. Such was my due. The maces will tell you that King Jeheris abolished the Lord's right to the first knight, to appease his shrewish queen. But where the old gods rule, old customs linger. The umbers keep the first knight too, deny it as they may. Certain of the mountain clans as well, and on Skagos, well, only heart trees 
ever see half of what they do on Skagos. This Miller's marriage had been performed without my leave or knowledge. The man had cheated me, so I had him hanged and claimed my rights beneath the tree where he was swaying. If truth be told, the wench was hardly worth the rope. The fox escaped as well, and on our way back to the Dreadfort, my favourite courser came up lame, so all in all it was a dismal day. A year later this same wench had the impudence to turn up at the Dreadfort with a squalling, red-faced monster that she claimed was my own get. I should have had the mother whipped and thrown her child down a well, but the babe did have my eyes. She told me that when her dead husband's brother saw those eyes, he beat her bloody and drove her from the mill. That annoyed me. So I gave her the mill and had the brother's tongue cut out, to make certain that he did not go running to Winterfell with tales that might disturb Lord Rickard. Each year I sent the woman some piglets and chickens and a bag of stars, on the understanding that she was never to tell the boy who had fathered him. A peaceful land, a quiet people, that has always been my rule. A fine role, my lord. The woman disobeyed me, though. You see what Ramsay is? She made him, her and Reek, always whispering in his ear about his rights. He should have been content to grind corn. Does he truly think that he could ever rule the North? He fights for you, Reek blurted out. He's strong. Bulls are strong. Bears... I've seen my bastard fight is not entirely to blame. Reek was his tutor, the first Reek, and Reek was never trained at arms. Ramsay is ferocious, I will grant you, but he swings that sword like a butcher hacking meat. He's not afraid of anyone, my lord. He should be. Fear is what keeps a man alive in this world of treachery and deceit. Even here in Barrington, the crows are circling, waiting to feast upon our flesh. The servants and the tall hearts are not to be relied on. My fat friend, Lord Wyman, plots betrayal, and Horsbane, the umbers may seem simple, but they are not without a certain low cunning. Ramsay should fear them all, as I do. Next time you see him, tell him that. Tell him? Tell him to be afraid? Reek felt ill the very thought of it. My lord, if I, if I, I did that, he... I know, Lord Bolton sighed. His blood is bad. He needs to be leeched. The leeches suck away the bad blood, all the rage and pain. No man can think so full of anger. Ramsay, though, his tainted blood would poison even leeches, I fear. He is your only son? Uh, for the moment... I had another once, Domerick, a quiet boy, but most accomplished. He served four years as Lady Dustin's page, and three in the Vale as a squire to Lord Redford. He played the high harp, read histories, and rode like a wind. Horses. The boy was mad for horses. Lady Dustin will tell you. Not even Lord Rickard's daughter could outrace him. And that one was half a horse herself. Redford said he showed great promise in the lists. 
A great jouster must be a great horseman first. Yes, my lord. Domerick, I... I have heard his name. Ramsay killed him. A sickness of the bowels, Mr. Youthor says, but I say poison. In the vale, Domerick had enjoyed the company of Redfort's sons. He wanted a brother by his side, so he rode up the weeping water to seek my bastard out. I forbade it, but Domerick was a man grown, and thought that he knew better than his father. Now his bones lie beneath the Dreadfort, with the bones of his brothers who died still in the cradle, and I am left with Ramsay. Tell me, my lord, if the kinslayer is accursed, what is a father to do when one son slays another? The question frightened him. Once he had heard Skinner say that the bastard had killed his true-born brother, but he had never dared to believe it. It could be wrong. Brothers die sometimes. It does not mean that they were killed. My brothers died, and I never killed them. My lord has a new wife to give him sons. And won't my bastard love that? Lady Walder is a fray, and she has a fertile feel to her. I have become oddly fond of my fat little wife. The two before her never made a sound in bed, but this one squeals and shudders. I find it quite endearing. If she pops out sons, the way she pops in tarts, the dreadfort will soon be overrun with Boltons. Ramsay will kill them all, of course. That's for the best. I will not live long enough to see new sons to manhood, and boy lords are the bane of any house. Walder will grieve to see them die, though. Reek's throat was dry. He could hear the wind rattling the bare branches of the elms that lined the street. My lord, I... My lord, remember? My lord, if I might ask, why did you want me? I'm no use to anyone. I'm not even a man. I'm broken, and the smell. A bath and a change of clothes will make you smell sweeter. A bath? Reek felt her clenching in his guts. I, I, I would sooner not, my lord. Please, I have wounds. I, and these clothes, Lord Ramsay gave them to me. He, he said that I was never to take them off, save at his command. You are wearing rags, Lord Bolton said, quite patiently. Filthy things, torn and stained and stinking of blood and urine. And thin. You must be cold. We'll put you in lamb's wool, soft and warm, perhaps a fur-lined cloak. Would you like that? No. He could not let them take the clothes Lord Ramsay gave him. He could not let them see him. Would you prefer to dress in silk and velvet? There was a time when you were fond of such, I do recall. No, he insisted shrilly. No, I only want these clothes, Reek's clothes. I'm Reek, it rhymes with peak. His heart was beating like a drum, and his voice rose to a frightened squeak. I don't want a bath, please, my lord. Don't take my clothes. Will you let us wash them, at least? No, no, my lord, please. He clutched his tunic 
to his chest with both hands and hunched down in the saddle, half afraid that Roose Bolton might command his guardsmen to tear the clothes off him right there in the street. As you wish. Bolton's pale eyes looked empty in the moonlight, as if there were no one behind them at all. I mean you no harm, you know. I owe you much and more. You do? Some part of him was screaming. This is a trap. He's playing with you. The son is just the shadow of the father. Lord Ramsay played with his hopes all the time. What? What do you owe me, my lord? The North. The Starks were done and doomed the night that you took Winterfell. He waved a pale hand, dismissive. All this is only squabbling over spoils. The short journey reached its end at the wooden walls of Barrow Hall. Banners flew from its square towers, flapping in the wind. The flayed man of the Dreadfort, the battle-axe of Serwin, tall hearts pines, the merman of Manderley, old Lord Locke's cross-keys, the umber giant and the stony hand of Flint, the hornwood moose, for the starts, chevroni, russet and gold, for slate a grey field within a double treasure white. Four horseheads proclaimed the four risewells of the rills, one grey, one black, one gold, one brown. The jape was that the risewells could not even agree upon the colour of their arms. Above them streamed the stag and lion of the boy who sat upon the iron throne a thousand leagues away. Reek listened to the veins turning on the old windmill as they rode beneath the gatehouse into a grassy courtyard where stable boys ran out to take their horses. This way, if you please, Lord Bolton led him toward the keep, where the banners for those of the late Lord Dustin and his widowed wife. His showed a spike crown above cross long axes. Hers courted those same arms, with Roderick Risewell's golden horsehead. As he climbed a wide flight of wooden steps to the hall, Reek's legs began to shake. He had to stop to steady them, staring up at the grassy slopes of the great barrow. Some claimed it was the grave of the first king, who had led the first men to Westeros. Others argued that it must be some king of the giants who was buried there, to account for its size. A few had even been known to say it was no barrow, just a hill. But if so, it was a lonely hill, for most of the barrow lands were flat and windswept. Inside the hall, a woman stood beside the hearth, warming thin hands above the embers of a dying fire. She was clad all in black, from head to heel, and wore no gold nor gems, but she was high-born, that was plain to see. Though there were wrinkles at the corners of her mouth and more around her eyes, she still stood tall, unbent, and handsome. Her hair was brown and grey in equal parts, though she wore it tied behind her head in a widow's knot. "'Who is this?' she said. "'Where is the boy? Did your bastard refuse to give him up? Is this old man his—oh, God, be good! What is that smell?' Has this creature soiled himself? He has been with Ramsay. 
Lady Barbary, allow me to present the rightful lord of the Iron Islands, Theon of House Greyjoy. No, he thought, no, don't say that name. Ramsay will hear you. He'll know, he'll know, he'll hurt me. Her mouth pursed. He's not what I expected. He is what we have. What did your bastard do to him? Uh, remove some skin, I would imagine. A few small parts, nothing too essential. Is he mad? He may be. Does it matter? Reek could hear no more. Please, my lord, my lady, there's been some mistake. He fell to his knees, trembling like a leaf in a winter storm, tears streaming down his ravaged cheeks. Oh, I'm not him. I'm not the turned cloak. He died at Winterfell. My name is Reek. He had to remember his name. It rhymes with freak. Tyrion The Celesori Coron was seven days from Volantis, when Penny finally emerged from her cabin, creeping up on deck like some timid woodland creature emerging from a long winter sleep. It was dusk, and the Red Priest had lit his night fire in the great iron brazier amidships, as the crew gathered around to pray. Makaro's voice was a bass drum that seemed to boom from somewhere deep within his massive torso. We thank you for your son that keeps us warm, he prayed. We thank you for your stars that watch over us as we sail this cold black sea. A huge man, taller than Sir Jorah, and wide enough to make two of him. The priest wore scarlet robes, embroidered at sleeve and hem and collar, with orange satin flames. His skin was black as pitch, his hair as white as snow. The flames tattooed across his cheeks and brow, yellow and orange. His iron staff was as tall as he was, and crowned with a dragon's head. When he stamped its butt upon the deck, the dragon's maw spat crackling green flame. His guardsmen, five slave warriors of the fiery hand, led the responses. They chanted in the tongue of old Volantis, but Tyrion had heard the prayers enough to grasp the essence. Light our fire and protect us from the dark, blah, blah. Light our way and keep us toasty warm. The night is dark and full of terrors. Save us from the scary things and blah, 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 some more. He knew better than to voice such thoughts aloud. Tyrion Lannister had no use for any god. But on this ship it was wise to show a certain respect for Red Relor. Jorah Mormont had removed Tyrion's chains and fetters once they were safely underway, and the dwarf did not wish to give him cause to clap them on again. The Celesori Coran was a wallowing tub of five hundred tons, with a deep hold, high castles fore and aft, and a single mast between. At her forecastle stood a grotesque figurehead, some worm-eaten wooden eminence with a constipated look and a scroll tucked up under one arm. Tyrion had never seen an uglier ship. Her crew was no prettier. Her captain, a mean-mouthed, flinty, kettle-bellied man, 
with close-set greedy eyes, was a bad Cyves player and a worse loser. Under him served four mates, freedmen all, and fifty slaves bound to the ship, each with a crude version of the cog's figurehead tattooed upon one cheek. No nose, the sailors liked to call Tyrion, no matter how many times he told them his name was Hugo Hill. Three of the mates and more than three-quarters of the crew were fervent worshippers of the Lord of Light. Tyrion was less certain about the captain, who always emerged for the evening prayers, but took no other part in them. But Makoro was the true master of the Selasori Koran, at least for this voyage. Lord of Light, bless your slave Makoro, and light his way in the dark places of the world, the Red Priest boomed, and defend your righteous slave, Benero, grant him courage, grant him wisdom, fill his heart with fire. That was when Tyrion noticed Penny. Watching the mummery from the steep wooden stair, that led down beneath the stern castle. She stood on one of the lower steps, so only the top of her head was visible. Beneath her hood, her eyes shone big and white in the light of the night fire. She had a dog with her, the big grey hound she rode in the muck joust. My lady, Tyrion called softly. In truth, she was no lady but he could not bring himself to mouth that silly name of hers, and he was not about to call her girl or dwarf. She cringed back. I... I did not see you. Well, I am small. I... I was unwell, her dog barked. Sick with grief, you mean? If I can be of help, no. And quick as that, she was gone again retreating back below to the cabin that she shared with her dog and sow. Tyrion could not fault her. The crew of the Selasori Curran had been pleased enough when he first came on board. A dwarf was good luck, after all. His head had been robbed so often and so vigorously that it was a wonder that he wasn't bald. But Penny had met with a more mixed reaction. She might be a dwarf, but she was also a woman and women were bad luck aboard ship. For every man who tried to rub her head, there were three who muttered maledictions under their breath when she went by. And the sight of me can only be salt in her wound. They hacked off her brother's head in the hope that it was mine. Yet here I sit, like some bloody gargoyle, offering empty consolations. If I were her, I'd want nothing more than to shove me into the sea. He felt nothing but pity for the girl. She did not deserve the horror visited on her in Volantis any more than her brother had. The last time he had seen her, just before they left port, her eyes had been raw from crying, two ghastly red holes in a one pale face. By the time they raised sail, she had locked herself in her cabin with her dog and her pig, but at night they could hear her weeping. Only yesterday he had heard one of the mates say that they ought to throw her overboard before her tears could swamp the ship. Tyrion was not entirely sure he had been japing. When the evening prayers had ended, 
and the ship's crew had once again dispersed, some to their watch and others to food and rum and hammocks. Makaro remained beside his night fire, as he did every night. The red priest rested by day, but kept vigil through the dark hours, to tend his sacred flames so that the sun might return to them at dawn. Tyrion squatted across from him and warmed his hands against the night's chill. Makaro took no notice of him for several moments. He was staring into the flickering flames, lost in some vision. Does he see days yet to come, as he claims? If so, that was a fearsome gift. After a time, the priest raised his eyes to meet the dwarfs. Hugo Hill, he said, inclining his head in a solemn nod. Have you come to pray with me? Someone told me that the night is dark and full of terrors. What do you see in those flames? Dragons, Makoro said, in the common tongue of Westeros. He spoke it very well, with hardly a, a trace of accent. No doubt that was one reason that the high priest, Benero, had chosen him to bring the faith for a law to Daenerys Targaryen. Dragons old and young, true and false, bright and dark, and you, a small man with a big shadow, snarling in the midst of all. Snarling? An amiable fellow like me? Tyrion was almost flattered. And no doubt that is just what he intends. Every fool loves to hear that he's important. Perhaps it was Penny you saw. We're almost of a size. No, my friend. My friend? When did that happen, I wonder? Did you see how long it will take us to reach Merin? You are eager to behold the world's deliverer. Yes and no. The world's deliverer may snick off my head or give me to our dragons as a savory. Not me, said Tyrion. For me, it is all about the olives, though I fear I may grow old and die before I taste one. I could dog-paddle faster than we're sailing. Tell me, was Celis or a Coran a triarch or a turtle? The red priest chuckled. Neither. Corin is not a ruler, but one who serves and counsels such, and helps conduct his business. You of Westeros might say Stuart or Magister. King's Hand, that amused him. And Selasori? Makoro touched his nose, imbued with a pleasant aroma, fragrant, would you say? Flowery. So, sir, sorry, Coran means stinky Stuart, more or less. A fragrant Stuart, rather. Tyrion gave a crooked grin. I believe I will stay with stinky, but I do thank you for the lesson. I am pleased to have enlightened you. Perhaps some day you will let me teach you the truth of Relor as well. Uh, some day, when I'm ahead on a spike. The quarters he shared with Sajora were a cabin only by courtesy. The dank, dark, foul-smelling closet 
had barely enough space to hang a pair of sleeping hammocks, one above the other. He found Mormont stretched out in the lower one, swaying slowly with the motion of the ship. The girl finally poked her nose above decks, Tyrion told him. One look at me and she scurried right back down below. You're not a pretty sight. Not all of us can be as comely as you. The girl is lost. It would not surprise me if the poor creature wasn't sneaking up to jump over the side and drown herself. The poor creature's name is Penny. I know her name. He hated her name. Her brother had gone by the name of Groat, though his true name had been Upper. Groat and Penny, the smallest coins worth the least, and what's worse, they chose the names themselves. It left a bad taste in Tyrion's mouth. By any name she needs a friend. Sir Jorah sat up in his hammock. Befriend her then. Marry her, for all I care. That left a bad taste in his mouth as well. Like with like. Is that your notion? Or do you mean to find a she-bear for yourself, sir? You were the one who insisted that we bring her. I said we could not abandon her in Volantis. That does not mean I want to fuck her. She wants me dead. Have you forgotten? I'm the last person she's like to want as a friend. You're both dwarfs? Yes, and so was her brother, who was killed because some drunken fools took him for me. Feeling guilty, are you? No, Tyrion bristled. I have sins enough to answer for. I'll have no part of this one. I might have nurtured some ill will toward her and her brother for the part they played the night of Joffrey's wedding, but I never wish them harm. You are a harmless creature, to be sure. Innocent as a lamb. Sir Jorah got to his feet. The dwarf girl is your burden. Kiss her, kill her, or avoid her, as you like. It's naught to me. He shouldered past Tyrion and out of the cabin. Twice exiled, and small wonder, Tyrion thought. I'd exile him too if I could. The man is cold, brooding, sullen, deaf to humour. And those are his good points. Sir Jorah spent most of his waking hours pacing the forecastle, or leaning on the rail, gazing out to sea. Looking for his silver queen, looking for Daenerys, willing the ship to sail faster. Well, I might do the same, if Tysha waited in Meereen. Could Slaver's Bay be where Hawes went? It seemed unlikely. From what he'd read, the Slaver cities were the place where halls were made. Mormont should have brought one for himself. A pretty slave girl might have done wonders to improve his temper, particularly one with silvery hair, like the whore had been sitting on his cock back in Siloris. On the river, Tyrion had to endure Griff, but there had at least been the mystery of the captain's true identity to divert him and the more congenial companionship of the rest of the pole-boat's little company. On the cog, alas, everyone was just who they appeared to be. No one was particularly congenial, and only the Red Priest was interesting. Him and maybe Penny, but the girl hates me, 
and she should. Life aboard the Celis Oricorin was nothing if not tedious, Tyrion had found. The most exciting part of his day was pricking his toes and fingers with a knife. On the river there had been wonders to behold, giant turtles, ruined cities, stone men, naked scepters. One never knew what might be lurking around the next bend. The days and nights at sea were all the same. Leaving Volantis, the cog had sailed within sight of land at first, so Tyrion could gaze at passing headlands, watch clouds of seabirds rise from stony cliffs and crumbling watchtowers, count bare brown islands as they slipped past. He saw many other ships as well, fishing boats, lumbering merchantmen, proud galleys with their oars lashing the waves into white foam. But once they struck out into deeper waters, there was only sea and sky, air and water. The water looked like water. The sky looked like sky. Sometimes there was a cloud. Too much blue. And the nights were worse. Tyrion slept badly at the best of times, and this was far from that. Sleep meant dreams, as like as not, and in his dreams the sorrows waited. And a stony king with his father's face. That left him with a beggar's choice of climbing up into his hammock and listening to Jorah Mormon snore beneath him, or remaining above decks to contemplate the sea. On moonless nights, the water was as black as maester's ink. From horizon to horizon, dark and deep and forbidding, beautiful in a chilly sort of way, but when he looked at it too long, Tyrion found himself musing on how easy it would be to slip over the gunwale and drop down into that darkness. One very small splash, and the pathetic little tale that was his life would soon be done. But what if there is a hell, and my father's waiting for me? The best part of each evening was supper. The food was not especially good, but it was plentiful, so that was where the dwarf went next. The galley where he took his meals was a cramped and uncomfortable space, with a ceiling so low that the taller passengers were always in danger of cracking their heads. A hazard the strapping slave soldiers of the fiery hand seemed particularly prone to. As much as Tyrion enjoyed sniggering at that, he had come to prefer taking his meals alone. Sitting at a crowded table with men who did not share a common language with you, listening to them talk and jape whilst understanding none of it, had quickly grown wearisome, particularly since he always found himself wondering if the japes and laughter were directed at him. The galley was also where the ship's books were kept. Her captain being an especially bookish man, she carried three, a collection of nautical poetry that went from bad to worse, a well-thumbed tome about the erotic adventures of a young slave girl in a Lycian pillow house, and the fourth and final volume of The Life of the Triarch Belicho, a famous volunteer patriot whose unbroken succession of conquests and triumphs entered rather abruptly when he was eaten by giants. Tyrion had finished them all by their third day at sea. 
Then, for lack of any other books, he started reading them again. The slave girl's story was the worst written, but the most engrossing. And that was the one he took down this evening to see him through a supper of buttered beets, cold fish stew, and biscuits that could have been used to drive nails. He was reading the girl's account of the day she and her sister were taken by slavers when Penny entered the gallery. Oh, she said, I thought I did not mean to disturb, my lord. I... You're not disturbing me. You're not going to try to kill me again, I hope. No. She looked away, her face reddening. In that case, I would welcome some company. There's little enough aboard this ship. Tyrion closed the book. Come, sit, eat. The girl had left most of her meals untouched outside her cabin door. By now she must be starving. The stew is almost edible. The fish is fresh, at least. No, I... I, I choked on a fish bone once. I can't eat fish. Have some wine, then. He filled a cup and slid it toward her. Compliments of our captain. Closer to piss than arbor gold, if truth be told. But even piss tastes better than the black tar rum the sailors drink. It might help you sleep. The girl made no move to touch the cup. Thank you, my lord, but no. She backed away. I should not be bothering you. Do you mean to spend your whole life running away? Tyrion asked, before she could slip back out the door. That stopped her. Her cheeks turned a bright pink, and he was afraid she was about to start weeping again. Instead, she thrust out her lip defiantly and said, You're running too. I am, he confessed, but I'm running too, and you are running from. And there's a world of difference there. We would never have had to run at all but for you. It took some courage to say that to my face. Are you speaking of King's Landing or Volantis? Both. Tears glistened in her eyes. Everything. Why couldn't you just come joust with us the way the king wanted? You wouldn't have gotten hurt. What would that have cost, my lord, to climb up on our dog and ride a tilt to please the boy? It was just a bit of fun. They would have laughed at you, that's all. They would have laughed at me, said Tyrion. I made them laugh at Joff instead. <laughs> and wasn't that a clever ploy? My brother says that is a good thing, making people laugh, a noble thing, an honourable. My brother says he... The tears fell then, rolling down her face. I am sorry about your brother. Tyrion had said the same words to her before, back in Volantis, but she was so far gone in grief back there that he doubted she had heard them. She heard them now. Sorry? You are sorry? Her lip was trembling. Her cheeks were wet. Her eyes were red-rimmed holes. We left King's Landing that very night. My brother said it was for the best, before someone wondered if we'd had some part in the king's death and decided to torture us to find out. We went to Tyrush first. My brother thought that would be far enough, but it wasn't. We knew a, a juggler there, 
For years and years he would juggle every day by the fountain of the drunken god. He, he was old, so his hands were not as deft as they had been, and sometimes he would drop his balls and chase them across the square. But the Tairashi would laugh and throw him coins all the same. But one morning we heard that his buddy had been found at the temple of Trios. Trios has three heads, and there's a big statue of him beside the temple doors. The old man had been cut into three parts and pushed inside the threefold mouths of Trios. Only when the parts were sewn back together, his head was gone. A gift for my sweet sister. He was another dwarf. A little man, I, like you. An uppo, groat. Are you sorry about the juggler, too? I never knew your juggler existed until this very moment. But yes, I am sorry he is dead. He died for you. His blood is on your hands. The accusation stung, coming so hard on the heels of Jorah Mormont's words. His blood is on my sister's hands, and the hands of the brutes who killed him. My hands. Tyrion turned them over, inspected them, coiled them into fists. My hands are crusted with old blood. I call me Kinslayer, and you won't be wrong. Kingslayer, I'll answer to that one as well. I have killed mothers, fathers, nephews, lovers, men and women, kings and whores. A singer once annoyed me, so I had the bastard stewed. But I have never killed a juggler, nor a dwarf, and I am not to blame for what happened to your bloody brother. Penny picked up the cup of wine he'd poured for her and threw it in his face. Just like my sweet sister. He heard the galley door slam, but never saw her leave. His eyes were stinging, and the world was a blur. So much for befriending her. Tyrion Lannister had scant experience with other dwarfs. His lord father had not welcomed any reminders of his son's deformities, and such mummers as featured little folk in their troops soon learned to stay away from Lannisport and Castley Rock, at the risk of his displeasure. Growing up, Tyrion heard reports of a dwarf jester at the seat of the Dornish Lord Fowler, a dwarf maester in service on the fingers, and a female dwarf amongst the silent sisters, but he never felt the least need to seek them out. Less reliable tales also reached his ears of a dwarf witch who haunted a hill in the Riverlands, and a dwarf whore in King's Landing, renowned for coupling with dogs. His own sweet sister had told him of the last, even offering to find him a bitch in heat if he cared to try it out. When he asked politely if she were referring to herself, Circe had thrown a cup of wine in his face. That was red, as I recalled, and this is gold. Tyrion mopped his face with a sleeve. His eyes still stung. He did not see Penny again until the day of the storm. The salt air lay still and heavy that morning, but the western sky was a fiery red, streaked with lowering clouds that glowed as bright as Lannister crimson. Sailors were dashing about, 
battening hatches, running lines, clearing the decks, lashing down everything that was not already lashed down. Bad wind coming, one warned him. No nose should get below. Tyrion remembered the storm he'd suffered, crossing the narrow sea, the way the deck had jumped beneath his feet, the hideous creaking sounds the ship had made, the taste of wine and vomit. No nose will stay up here. If the guards wanted him, he would sooner die by drowning than choking on his own vomit, and overhead the cog's canvas sail rippled slowly, like the fur of some great beast stirring from a long sleep, then filled with a sudden crack that turned every head on the ship. The winds drove the cog before them, far off her chosen course. Behind them black clouds piled one atop another against a blood-red sky. By mid-morning they could see lightning flickering to the west, followed by the distant crash of thunder. The sea grew rougher, and dark waves rose up to smash against the hull of the stinky steward. It was about then that the crew started hauling down the canvas. Tyrion was underfoot amidships, so he climbed the forecastle and hunkered down, savouring the lash of cold rain on his cheeks. The cog went up and down, bucking more wildly than any horse he'd ever ridden, lifting with each wave before sliding down into the troughs between, jarring him to the bones. Even so, it was better here, where he could see, than down below, locked in some airless cabin. By the time the storm broke, evening was upon them, and Tyrion Lannister was soaked through to the small clothes, yet somehow he felt elated, and even more so later, when he found a drunken Jorah Mormont in a pool of vomit in their cabin. The dwarf lingered in the galley after supper, celebrating his survival by sharing a few tots of black tar rum with the ship's cook, a great, greasy, loutish volantine who spoke only one word of the common tongue, fuck, but played a ferocious game of Sivas, particularly when drunk. They played three games at night. Tyrion won the first, then lost the other two. After that he decided that he'd had enough, and stumbled back upon deck to clear his head of rum and elephants alike. He found Penny on the forecastle, where he had so often found Sir Jorah, standing by the rail beside the cog's hideous half-rotted figurehead and gazing out across the inky sea. From behind she looked as small and vulnerable as a child. Tyrion thought it best to leave her undisturbed, but it was too late. She had heard him. Hugo Hill, if you like, we both know better. I am sorry to intrude on you. I will retire. No. Her face was pale and sad, but she did not look to have been crying. I'm sorry, too, about the wine. It wasn't you who killed my brother, or that poor old man in Tyrosh. I played a part, though not by choice. I miss him so much. My brother, I... I understand. He found himself thinking of Jamie. Count yourself lucky. Your brother died before he could betray you. I thought I wanted to die, 
she said, but today, when the storm came and I thought the ship would sink, I... I... You realized that you wanted to leave after all. I have been there, too. <laughs> Something else we have in common. Her teeth were crooked, which made her shy with her smiles. But she smiled now. Did you truly cook a singer in a stew? Who, me? No, I do not cook. When Penny giggled, she sounded like the sweet young girl she was. Seventeen, eighteen, no more than nineteen. What did he do, this singer? He wrote a song about me. For she was his secret treasure. She was his shame and his bliss. And a chain and a keep are nothing compared to a woman's kiss. It was queer how quick the words came back to him. Perhaps they had never left him. Hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. It must have been a very bad song. Not really. It was no reigns of Castamere, mind you. But some parts were, well... How did it go? He laughed. No, you do not want to hear me sing. My mother used to sing to us when we were children, my brother and me. She always said that it didn't matter what your voice was like, so long as you loved the song. Was she a little person? No, but our father was. His own father sold him to a slaver when he was three. But he grew up to be such a famous mama that he bought his freedom. He travelled to all the free cities, and Westeros as well. In Old Town, they used to call him Hopbean. Of course they did. Tyrion tried not to wince. He's dead now, Penny went on. My mother too. Oppo, he was my last family. And now he's gone too. She turned her head away and gazed out across the sea. What will I do? Where will I go? I have no trade, just the jousting show. And that needs two. No, thought Tyrion, that is not a place you want to go, girl. Do not ask that of me. Do not even think it. Find yourself some likely orphan boy, he suggested. Penny did not seem to hear that. It was my father's idea to do the tilts. He even trained the first pig. But by then he was too sick to ride her, so Uppo took his place. I always rode the dog. We performed for the Sea Lord of Bravas once, and he laughed so hard that afterwards he gave each of us a, a, a grand gift. Is that where my sister found you? In Bravas? Your sister? The girl looked lost. Queen Cersei. Penny shook her head. She never. It was a man who came to us in Pentas. Osmond, no, Oswald, something like that. Oppo met with him, not me. Oppo made all of our arrangements. My brother always knew what to do, where we should go next. Murin is where we're going next. She gave him a puzzled look. Carth, you mean? We're bound for Carth, by way of new guests. Murin. You'll ride your dog for the Dragon Queen and come away with your weight in gold. Best start eating more, so you'll be nice and plump when you joust before her grace. Penny did not return the smile. 
By myself, all I can do is ride round in circles. And even if the Queen should laugh, where will I go afterwards? We never stay in one place long. The first time they see us, they laugh and laugh, but by the fourth or fifth time, they know what we're going to do before we do it. Then they stop laughing, so we have to go somewhere new. We make the most coin in the big cities, but I always like the little towns the best. Places like that, the people have no silver, but they feed us at their own tables, and the children follow us everywhere. That's because they've never seen a dwarf before in their wretched piss-pot towns, Tyrion thought. The bloody brats would follow around a two-headed goat if one turned up, until they got bored with its bleating and slaughtered it for supper. But he had no wish to make her weep again, so instead he said, Daenerys has a kind heart and a generous nature. It was what she needed to hear. She will find a place for you at her court, I don't doubt, a safe place beyond my sister's reach. Penny turned back to him. And you will be there too. Unless Daenerys decides she needs some Lannister blood to pay for the Targaryen blood my brother shed, I will. After that the dwarf girl was seen more frequently above deck. The next day, Tyrion encountered her and her spotted sow amidships in mid-afternoon, when the air was warm and the sea calm. Her name is Pretty, the girl told him shyly. Pretty the pig and Penny the girl, he thought. Someone has a deal to answer for. Penny gave Tyrion some acorns, and he let Pretty eat them from his hand. Do not think I don't see what you're doing, girl, he thought, as the big sow snuffled and squealed. Soon they began to take their meals together. Some nights it was just the two of them. At other meals they crowded in with Makoro's guards. The fingers, Tyrion called them. They were men of the fiery hand, after all, and there were five of them. Penny laughed at that. A sweet sound though not one he heard often. Her wound was too fresh, her grief too deep. He soon had her calling the ship the Stinky Stuart, though she got somewhat wroth with him whenever he called pretty Bacon. To return for that, Tyrion made an attempt to teach her Sivas, though he soon realized that was a lost cause. No, he said a dozen times, the dragonflies, not the elephants. That same night she came right out and asked him if he would like to tilt with her. No, he answered. Only later did it occur to him that perhaps tilt did not mean tilt. His answer would still have been no, but he might not have been so brusque. Back in the cabin he shared with Jorah Mormont, Tyrion twisted in his hammock for hours, slipping in and out of sleep. His dreams were full of grey, stony hands reaching for him from out of the fog, and a stare that led up to his father. Finally he gave it up and made his way up top for a breath of night air. The Salisori Coran had furled her big striped sail for the night, and her decks were all but deserted. One of the mates was on the stern castle, 
and amidships, Makaro sat by his brazier, where a few small flames still danced amongst the embers. Only the brightest stars were visible, all to the west. A dull red glow lit the sky to the northeast, the color of a blood bruise. Tyrion had never seen a bigger moon, monstrous swollen. It looked as if it had swallowed the sun and woken with a fever. Its twin, floating on the sea beyond the ship, shimmered red with every wave. "'What hour is this?' he asked Makoro. "'That cannot be sunrise, unless the east has moved. Why is the sky red?' "'The sky is always red above Valeria, Hugo Hill.' A cold chill went down his back. "'Are we close?' "'Closer than the crew would like.' Makoro said in his deep voice. Do you know the stories in your sunset kingdoms? I know some sailors say that any man who lays eyes upon that coast is doomed. He did not believe such tales himself, no more than his uncle had. Jerry and Lannister had set sail for Valeria when Tyrion was eighteen, intent on recovering the lost ancestral blade of House Lannister and any other treasures that might have survived the doom. Tyrion had wanted desperately to go with them, but his lord father had dubbed the voyage a fool's quest and forbidden him to take part. And perhaps he was not so wrong. Almost a decade had passed since the laughing lion headed out from Lannisport, and Jerrion had never returned. The man Lord Tywin sent to seek after him had traced his course as far as Valentis, where half his crew had deserted him, and he had bought slaves to replace them. No free man would willingly assign aboard a ship whose captain spoke openly of his intent to sail into the smoking sea. So those are fires of the fourteen flames we're seeing, reflected on the clouds. Fourteen or fourteen thousand? What man dares count them? Is not wise for mortals to look too deeply at those fires, my friend. Those are fires of God's own wrath, and no human flame can match them. We are small creatures, men. Some smaller than others. Valeria. It was written that on the day of doom every hill for five hundred miles had split asunder, to fill the air with ash and smoke and fire, blazes so hot and hungry that even the dragons in the sky were engulfed and consumed. Great rents had opened in the earth, swallowing palaces, temples, entire towns. Lakes boiled or turned to acid. Mountains burst. Fiery fountains spewed molten rock a thousand feet into the air. Red clouds rained down dragon glass and the black blood of demons, and to the north the ground splintered and collapsed and fell in on itself, and an angry sea came rushing in. The proudest city in all the world was gone in an instant. Its fabled empire vanished in a day. The lands of the long summer scorched and drowned and blighted. An empire built on blood and fire the Valerians reap the seed they had sown. 
Does our captain mean to test the course? Our captain would prefer to be fifty leagues further out to sea, well away from that accursed shore. But I have commanded him to steer the shortest course. Others seek Daenerys too. Griff with his young prince. Could all that talk of the Golden Company sailing west have been a feint? Tyrion considered saying something, then thought better. It seemed to him that the prophecy that drove the Red Priests had room for just one hero. A second Targaryen would only serve to confuse them. Have you seen these others in your fires? he asked wearily. Only their shadows, Makoro said. One most of all, a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms sailing on a sea of blood. Bren The moon was a crescent, thin, and sharp as a blade of a knife. A pale sun rose, and set, and rose again. Red leaves whispered in the wind. Dark clouds filled the skies and turned to storms. Lightning flashed, and thunder rumbled, and dead men with black hands and bright blue eyes shuffled round a cleft in the hillside, but could not enter. Under the hill the broken boy sat upon a weirwood throne, listening to whispers in the dark as ravens walked up and down his arms. "'You will never walk again,' the three-eyed crow had promised. "'But you will fly.' Sometimes a sound of song would drift up from some place far below. "'The children of the forest,' old Nan would have called the singers. "'But those who sing the song of earth,' was their own name for themselves, in the true tongue that no human could speak. The ravens could speak it, though. Their small black eyes were full of secrets, and they would caw at him and peck his skin when they heard the songs. The moon was fat and full. Stars wheeled across a black sky. Rain fell and froze, and tree limbs snapped from the weight of the ice. Bran and Mira made up names for those who sang the song of earth. Ash and leaf and scales, black knife and snowy locks and coals. Their true names were too long for human tongues, said Leaf. Only she could speak the common tongue, so what the others thought of their new names Bran never learned. After the bone-grinding cold of the lands beyond the wall, the caves were blessedly warm, and when the chill crept out of the rock, the singers would light fires to drive it off again. Down here there was no wind, no snow, no ice, no dead things reaching out to grab you, only dreams and rushlight and the kisses of the ravens and the whisperer in darkness. The last green seer, the singers called him, but in Bran's dreams he was still a three-eyed crow. When Mira Reed had asked him his true name, he made a ghastly sound that might have been a chuckle. I wore many names when I was quick, but even I once had a mother, and the name she gave me at her breast was Brynden. I have an uncle, Brynden, Bran said. 
He's my mother's uncle, really. Brynden Blackfriss, he's called. Your uncle may have been named for me. Some are still. Not so many as before. Men forget. Only the trees remember. His voice was so soft that Brandon had to strain to hear. Most of him has gone into the tree, explained the singer Miracle Leaf. He has lived beyond his mortal span, and yet he lingers. For us, for you, for the realms of men. Only a little strength remains in his flesh. He has a thousand eyes and one, but there is much to watch. One day you will know. What will I know? Bran asked the reeds afterward, when they came with torches burning brightly in their hand, to carry him back to a small chamber off the big cavern, where the singers had made beds for them to sleep. What do the trees remember? The secrets of the old gods, said Jojen Reed. Food and fire and rest had helped restore him after the ordeals of their journey, but he seemed sadder now, sullen, with a weary, haunted look about the eyes. Truth the first man knew, forgotten now in Winterfell, but not in the wet wild. We live closer to the green in our bogs and crannocks, and we remember. Earth and water, soil and stone, oaks and elms and willows, they were here before us all, and will still remain when we are gone. So will you, said Mira. That made Bran sad. What if I don't want to remain when you are gone, he almost asked, but he swallowed the words unspoken. He was almost a man grown, and he did not want Mira to think he was some weepy babe. Maybe you could be green seers too, he said instead. No, Bran. Now Mira sounded sad. It is given to a few to drink of that green fountain while still in mortal flesh, to hear the whisperings of the leaves and see as the trees see, as the gods see, said Jojen. Most are not so blessed. The gods gave me only green dreams. My task was to get you here. My part in this is done. The moon was a black hole in the sky. Wolves howled in the wood, sniffing through the snowdrifts after dead things. A murder of ravens erupted from the hillside, screaming their sharp cries, black wings beating above a white world. A red sun rose and set and rose again, painting the snows in shades of rose and pink. Under the hill, Jojen brooded. Mira fretted, and Hodor wandered through dark tunnels with a sword in his right hand and a torch in his left. Or was it Bran wandering? No one must ever know. The great cavern that opened on the abyss was as black as pitch, black as tar, blacker than the feathers of a crow. Light entered as a trespasser, unwanted and unwelcome, and soon was gone again. Cook fires, candles, and rushes burned for a little while, then gutted out again, their brief lives at an end. The singers made Bran a throne of his own, like the one Lord Brynden sat, white weirwood flecked with red, dead branches woven through living roots. They placed it in the great cavern by the abyss, where the black air echoed to the sound of running water far below. Of soft grey moss they made his seat. 
Once he had been lowered into place, they covered him with warm furs. There he sat, listening to the hoarse whispers of his teacher. Never fear the darkness, Bran. The Lord's words were accompanied by a faint rustling of wood and leaf, a slight twisting of his head. The strongest trees are rooted in the dark places of the earth. Darkness will be your cloak, your shield, your mother's milk. Darkness will make you strong. The moon was a crescent, thin and sharp as the blade of a knife. Snowflakes drifted down soundlessly to cloak the soldier pines and sentinels in white. The drifts grew so deep that they covered the entrance to the caves, leaving a white wall that Summer had to dig through whenever he went outside to join his pack and hunt. Bran did not oft range with them in those days, but some nights he watched them from above. Flying was even better than climbing. Slipping into Summer's skin had become as easy for him as slipping on a pair of breeches once had been, before his back was broken. Changing his own skin for a raven's night-black feathers had been harder, but not as hard as he had feared. Not with these ravens. A wild stallion will buck and kick when a man tries to mount him, and try to bite the hand that slips a bit between his teeth, Lord Brindon said. But a horse that has known one rider will accept another. Young or old, these birds have all been ridden. Choose one now, and fly. He chose one bird and then another, without success, but the third raven looked at him with shrewd black eyes, tilted its head, and gave a quark, and quick as that, he was not a boy looking at a raven, but a raven looking at a boy. The song of the river suddenly grew louder. The torches burned a little brighter than before and the air was full of strange smells. When he tried to speak, it came out in a scream, and his first flight ended when he crashed into a wall and ended back inside his own broken body. The raven was unhurt. It flew to him and landed on his arm, and Bran stroked its feathers and slipped inside of it again. Before long he was flying around the cavern, weaving through the long stone teeth, that hung down from the ceiling, even flapping out over the abyss and swooping down into its cold black depths. Then he realized he was not alone. Someone else was in the raven, he told Lord Brindon, once he had returned to his own skin. Some girl, I felt her. A woman of those who sing the song of earth, his teacher said, long dead, Yet a part of her remains, just as a part of you would remain in summer if your boy's flesh were to die upon the morrow. A shadow on the soul. She will not harm you. Do all the birds have singers in them? All, Lord Brindon said. It was the singers who taught the first men to send messages by raven. But in those days the birds would speak the words. The trees remember, but men forget, and so now they write the messages on parchment and tie them round the feet of birds who have never shared their skin. Old Nan had told him the same story once, Bran remembered, but when he asked Rob if it was true, his brother laughed and asked him if he believed in Grumpkins too. 
He wished Rob were with him now. I'd tell him I could fly, but he wouldn't believe, so I'd have to show him. I'll bet that he could learn to fly too. Him and Arya and Sansa, even baby Rickon and Jon Snow, we could all be ravens and live in Maester Lewin's rookery. That was just another silly dream, though. Some days Bran wondered if all of this wasn't just some dream. Maybe he had fallen asleep out in the snows and dreamed himself a safe, warm place. You have to wake, he would tell himself. You have to wake right now, or you'll go dreaming into death. Once or twice he pinched his arm with his fingers really hard, but the only thing that did was make his arm hurt. In the beginning he had tried to count the days by making note of when he woke and slept. But down here, sleeping and waking had a way of melting into one another. Dreams became lessons. Lessons became dreams. Things happened all at once, or not at all. Had he done that, or only dreamed it? Only one man in a thousand is born a skin-changer, Lord Brynden said one day, after Bran had learned to fly. And only one skin-changer in a thousand can be a greenseer. I thought the greenseers were the wizards of the children, Bran said. The singers, I mean. In a sense, those you call the children of the forest have eyes as golden as the sun, but once in a great while one is born amongst them with eyes as red as blood or green as the moss on a tree in the heart of the forest. By these signs do the guards mark those they have chosen to receive the gift. The chosen ones are not robust, and their quick years upon the earth are few, for every song must have its balance. But once inside the wood, they linger long indeed. A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees, green seers. Bran did not understand, so he asked the reeds. Do you like to read books, Bran? Jojen asked him. Some books I, I like the fighting stories. My sister Sansa likes the kissing stories, but those are stupid. A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies, said Jojen. The man who never reads lives only one. The singers of the forest had no books, no ink, no parchment, no written language. Instead, they had the trees, and the weirwoods above all. When they died, they went into the wood, into leaf, limb and root, and the trees remembered. All their songs and spells, their histories and prayers, everything they knew about this world. Maesters will tell you that the weirwoods are sacred to the old gods. The, the singers believed they are the old gods. When singers die, they become part of that godhood. Bran's eyes widened. They're going to kill me. No, Mira said. Jojen, you're scaring him. He is not the one who needs to be afraid. The moon was fat and full. Summer prowled through the silent woods, a long grey shadow that grew more gaunt with every hunt, for living game could not be found. The ward upon the cave mouth still held. The dead men could not enter. The snows had buried most of them again, but they were still there, hidden, frozen, waiting. Other dead things came to join them, 
things that had once been men and women, even children. Dead ravens sat on bare brown branches, wings crusted with ice. A snow bear crashed through the brush, huge and skeletal. Half its head sloughed away to reveal the skull beneath. Summer and his pack fell upon it and tore it into pieces. Afterwards they gorged, though the meat was rotted and half-frozen, and moved even as they ate it. Under the hill they still had food to eat. A hundred kinds of mushrooms grew down there. Blind whitefish swam in the Black River, but they tasted just as good as fish with eyes once you cooked them up. They had cheese and milk from the goats that shared the caves with the singers, even some oats and barleycorn and dried fruit laid by during the long summer. And almost every day they ate blood stew, thickened with barley and onions and chunks of meat. Jojen thought it might be squirrel meat, and Mira said it was rat. Bran did not care. It was meat, and it was good. The stewing made it tender. The caves were timeless, vast, silent. They were home to more than threescore living singers and the bones of thousands dead, and extended far below the hollow hill. "'Men should not go wandering in this place,' Leif warned them. "'The river ye hear is swift and black, and flows down and down to a sunless sea. And there are passages that go even deeper, bottomless pits, and sudden shafts, forgotten ways that lead to the very centre of the earth. Even my people have not explored them all, and we have lived here for a thousand thousand of your man-years.' Though the men of the Seven Kingdoms might call them the children of the forest, Leif and her people were far from childlike. Little wise men of the forest would have been closer. They were small compared to men, as a wolf is smaller than a dire wolf. That does not mean it is a pup. They had not brown skin, dappled like a deer's with paler spots, and large ears that could hear things that no man could hear. Their eyes were big, too, great golden cat's eyes that could see down passages where a boy's eyes saw only blackness. Their hands had only three fingers and a thumb, with sharp black claws instead of nails. And they did sing. They sang in true tongue, so Bran could not understand the words. But their voices were as pure as winter air. "'Where are the rest of you?' Bran asked Leif once. "'Gone down into the earth,' she answered. "'Into the stones, into the trees. "'Before the first men came, "'all this land that you call Westeros was home to us. "'Yet even in those days we were few. "'The gods gave us long lives, but not great numbers, "'lest we overrun the world, as deer will overrun a wood, "'where there are no wolves to hunt them. "'That was in the dawn of days.' when our sun was rising. Now it sinks, and this is our long dwindling. The giants are almost gone as well, they who were our bane and our brothers. The great lions of the western hills have been slain, the unicorns are all but gone, the mammoths down to a few hundred. The direwolves will outlast us all, but their time will come as well. In the world that men have made, there is no room for them or us. 
She seemed sad when she said it, and that made Bran sad as well. It was only later that he thought, Men would not be sad. Men would be wroth. Men would hate and swear a bloody vengeance. The singers sing sad songs where men would fight and kill. One day Mira and Jojen decided to go see the river, despite Leif's cautions. I want to come too, Bran said. Mira gave him a mournful look. The river was six hundred feet below, down steep slopes and twisty passages, she explained, and the last part required climbing down a rope. Hodor can never make the claim with you on his back. I'm sorry, Bran. Bran remembered a time when no one could climb as good as him, not even Rob or John. Part of him wanted to shout at them for leaving him, another part wanted to cry. He was almost a man grown, though, so he said nothing. But after they were gone, he slipped inside Hodor's skin and followed them. The big stable boy no longer fought him, as he had the first time back in the Lake Tower during the storm. Like a dog who has had all the fight whipped out of him, Hodor would curl up and hide whenever Bran reached out for him. His hiding place was somewhere deep within him, a pit where not even Bran could touch him. No one wants to hurt you, Odor, he said silently to the child man whose flesh he'd taken. I just want to be strong again for a while. I'll give it back, the way I always do. No one ever knew when he was wearing Hodor's skin. Bran only had to smile, do as he was told, and mutter, Hodor, from time to time, and he could follow Mira and Jojen grinning happily without anyone suspecting it was really him. He often tagged along, whether he was wanted or not. In the end, the reeds were glad he came. Jojen made it down the rope easily enough, but after Mira caught a blind white fish with her frog spear, and it was time to climb back up, his arms began to tremble, and he could not make it to the top, so he had to tie the rope around him and let Hodar hold him up. Hodor, he grunted every time he gave a pull. Hodor, Hodor, Hodor. The moon was a crescent, thin and sharp as a blade of a knife. Summer dug up a severed arm, black and covered with hoarfrost its fingers opening and closing as it pulled itself across the frozen snow. There was still enough meat on it to fill his empty belly, and after that was done, he cracked the arm bones for the marrow. Only then did the arm remember it was dead. Bran ate with Summer and his pack as a wolf. As a raven, he flew with the murder, circling the hill at sunset, watching for foes, feeling the icy touch of the air. As Hodor, he explored the caves. He found chambers full of bones, shafts that plunged deep into the earth, a place where the skeletons of gigantic bats hung upside down from the ceiling. He even crossed the slender stone bridge that arched over the abyss and discovered more passages and chambers on the far side. One was full of singers, enthroned like Brynden in nests of weirwood roots, that weaved under and through and around their bodies. Most of them looked dead to him, but as he crossed in front of them, their eyes would open and follow the light of his torch, and one of them opened and closed a wrinkled mouth as if he were trying to speak, 
Hodor, Bran said to him, and he felt the real Hodor stir down in his pit. Seated on his throne of roots in the great cavern, half corpse and half tree, Lord Brynden seemed less a man than some ghastly statue made of twisted wood, old bone and rotted wool. The only thing that looked alive in the pale ruin that was his face was his one red eye, burning like the last coal in a dead fire. Surrounded by twisted roots and tatters of leathery white skin, hanging off a yellowed skull. The sight of him still frightened Bran. The weirwood roots snaking in and out of his withered flesh, the mushrooms sprouting from his cheeks, the white wooden worm that grew from the socket where one eye had been. He liked it better when the torches were put out. In the dark he could pretend that it was only the three-eyed crow who whispered to him, and not some grisly talking corpse. One day I will be like him. The thought filled Bran with dread. Bad enough that he was broken, with his useless legs. Was he doomed to lose the rest too, to spend the rest of his years with a weirwood growing in him and through him? Lord Brynden drew his life from the tree, Leif told him. He did not eat. He did not drink. He slept. He dreamt. He watched. I was going to be a knight, Bran remembered. I used to run and climb and fight. It seemed a thousand years ago. What was he now? Only Bran, the broken boy, Brandon of House Stark, prince of a lost kingdom, lord of a burned castle, heir to ruins. He had thought the three-eyed crow would be a sorcerer, a wise old wizard who could fix his legs. But that was some stupid child's dream, he realized now. I am too old for such fancies, he told himself. A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees. That was as good as being a knight. Almost as good, anyway. The moon was a black hole in the sky. Outside the cave, the world went on. Outside the cave, the sun rose and set. The moon turned. The cold winds howled. Under the hill, Jojen Reed grew even more sullen and solitary, to his sister's distress. She would often sit with Bran, beside their little fire, talking of everything and nothing, petting Summer, where he slept between them, whilst her brother wandered the cabins by himself. Jojen had even taken to climbing up to the cave's mouth when the day was bright. He would stand there for hours, looking out over the forest, wrapped in furs, yet shivering all the same. He wants to go home, Mira told Bran. He will not even try and fight his fate. He says the green dreams do not lay. He's being brave, said Bran. The only time a man can be brave is when he is afraid, his father had told him once, long ago, on the day they found the dire wolf pups in the summer snows. He still remembered. He's being stupid, Mira said. I'd hoped that when we found your three-eyed crow, now I wonder why we ever came. For me, Bran thought. His green dreams, he said. His green dreams, Mira's voice was bitter. 
Hodor, said Hodor. Mira began to cry. Bran hated being crippled then. Don't cry, he said. He wanted to put his arms around her, hold her tight, the way his mother used to hold him back at Winterfell when he'd hurt himself. She was right there, only a few feet from him, but so far out of reach it might have been a hundred leagues. To touch her, he would need to pull himself along the ground with his hands, dragging his legs behind him. The floor was rough and uneven, and it would be slow going, full of scrapes and bumps. I could put on Hodor's skin, he thought. Hodor could hold her and pat her on the back. The thought made Bran feel strange, but he was still thinking it when Mira bolted from the fire back into the darkness of the tunnels. He heard her steps recede, until there was nothing but the voices of the singers. The moon was a crescent, thin and sharp as a blade of a knife. The days marched past, one after the other, each shorter than the one before. The nights grew longer. No sunlight reached the caves beneath the hill. No moonlight ever touched its stony halls. Even the stars were strangers there. Those things belonged to the world above, where time ran in its iron circles. Day to night, today, tonight, today. It is tame, Lord Brynden said. Something in his voice sent icy fingers running up Bran's back. Time for what? For the next step. For you to go beyond skin changing and learn what it means to be a green seer. The trees will teach him, said Leif. She beckoned, and another of the singers padded forward, the white-haired one that Mira had named Snowy Locks. She had a weirwood bowl in her hands, carved with a dozen faces, like the ones the heart trees wore. Inside was a white paste, thick and heavy, with dark red veins running through it. "'You must eat of this,' said Leif. She handed Bran a wooden spoon. The boy looked at the bowl uncertainly. "'What is it?' "'A paste of weirwood seeds.' Something about the look of it made Bran feel ill. The red veins were only weirwood sap, he supposed, but in the torchlight they looked remarkably like blood. He dipped the spoon into the paste, then hesitated. Will this make me a green seer? Your blood makes you a green seer, said Lord Brynden. This will help awaken your gifts and wed you to the trees. Brad did not want to be married to a tree, but who else would wed a broken boy like him? A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees, a green seer. He ate. It had a bitter taste, though not so bitter as acorn paste. The first spoonful was the hardest to get down. He almost wretched it right back up. The second tasted better. The third was almost sweet. The rest he spooned up eagerly. Why had he thought that it was bitter? It tasted of honey, of new-fallen snow, of pepper and cinnamon, and the last kiss his mother ever gave him. The empty bowl slipped from his fingers and clattered on the cavern floor. I don't feel any different. What happens next? 
Leif touched his hand. The trees will teach you. The trees remember. She raised a hand, and the other singers began to move about the cavern, extinguishing the torches one by one. The darkness thickened and crept towards them. Close your eyes, said the three-eyed crow. Slip your skin, as you do when you join with summer. But this time, go into the roots instead. Follow them up through the earth, to the trees upon the hill, and tell me what you see. Bran closed his eyes and slipped free of his skin. Enter the roots, he thought. Enter the weirwood. Become the tree. For an instant, he could see the cavern in its black mantle, could hear the river rushing by below. Then all at once, he was back home again. Lord Eddard Stark sat upon a rock beside the deep black pool in the godswood, the pale roots of the heart tree twisting around him like an old man's gnarled arms. The great sword Ice lay across Lord Eddard's lap, and he was cleaning the blade with an oilcloth. Winterfell, Bran whispered. His father looked up. Who's there? he asked, turning. And Bran, frightened, pulled away. His father and the black pool and God's wood faded and were gone, and he was back in the cavern. The pale, thick roots of his weirwood throne cradling his limbs as a mother does a child. A torch flared to life before him. Tell us what you saw. From far away, Leif looked almost like a girl. No older than Bran, or one of his sisters, but close at hand, she seemed far older. She claimed to have seen two hundred years. Bran's throat was very dry. He swallowed. Winterfell. I was back in Winterfell. I saw my father. He's not dead. He's not. I saw him. He's back at Winterfell. He's still alive. No, said Leif. He's gone, boy. Do not seek to call him back from death. I saw him. Bran could feel rough wood pressing against one cheek. He was cleaning ice. You saw what you wished to see. Your heart yearns for your father and your home. So that is what you saw. A man must know how to look before he can hope to see, said Lord Brynden. Those were shadows of days past that you saw, Bran. You were looking through the eyes of the heart tree in your goswood. Time is different for a tree than for a man. Sun and soil and water, these are the things a weirwood understands, not days and years and centuries. For men, time is a river. We are trapped in its flow, hurtling from past to present, always in the same direction. The lives of trees are different. They root and grow and die in one place, and that river does not move them. The oak is the acorn, the acorn is the oak, and the weirwood, a thousand human years, are a moment to a weirwood. And through such gates, you and I may gaze into the past. But, said Bran, he heard me. He heard a whisper on the wind, a rustling amongst the leaves. 
You cannot speak to him. Try as you might. I know. I have my own ghost, Bran. A brother that I loved. A brother that I hated. A woman I desired. Through the trees I see them still, but no word of mine has ever reached them. The past remains the past. We can learn from it, but we cannot change it. Will I see my father again? Once you have mastered your gifts, you may look where you will and see what the trees have seen. Be it yesterday or last year or a thousand ages past, men live their lives trapped in an eternal present between the mists of memory and the sea of shadow that is all we know of the days to come. Certain moths live their whole lives in a day, yet to them that little span of time must seem as long as years and decades do to us. An oak may live three hundred years, a redwood tree three thousand, a weirwood will live forever if left undisturbed. To them seasons pass in the flutter of a moth's wing, and past, present, and future are one. Nor will your sight be limited to your God's wood. The singers carved eyes into their heart trees to awaken them, and those are the first eyes a new green seer learns to use. But in time you will see well beyond the trees themselves. When? Bran wanted to know. In a year, or three, or ten. That I have not glimpsed. It will come in time, I promise you. But I am tired now, and the trees are calling me. We will resume on the morrow. Hodor carried Bran back to his chamber, muttering, Oh, no! in a low voice as Leif went before them with a torch. He had hoped that Mira and Jojen would be there, so he could tell them what he had seen. But their snug alcove in the rock was cold and empty. Hodor eased Bran down onto his bed, covered him with furs, and made a fire for them. A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees. Watching the flames, Bran decided he would stay awake till Mira came back. Jojen would be unhappy, he knew, but Mira would be glad for him. He did not remember closing his eyes. But then, somehow he was back at Winterfell again, in the guard's wood, looking down upon his father. Lord Eddard seemed much younger this time. His hair was brown, with no hint of grey in it. His head bowed. Let them grow up, close as brothers, with only love between them, he prayed and let my lady wife find it in her heart to forgive. Father! Bran's voice was a whisper in the wind, a rustle in the leaves. Father, it's me. It's Bran. Brandon. Eddard Stark lifted his head and looked long at the weirwood, frowning, but he did not speak. He cannot see me, Bran realized, despairing. He wanted to reach out and touch him, but all he could do was watch and listen. I am in the tree, I am inside the art tree, looking out of its red eyes, but the weirwood cannot talk, so I can't. Eddard Stark resumed his prayer. Bran felt his eyes fill up with tears. 
But were they his own tears, or the weirwoods? If I cry, will the tree begin to weep? The rest of his father's words were drowned out by a sudden clatter of wood on wood. Eddard Stark dissolved like mist in a morning sun. Now two children danced across the godswood, hooting at one another as they dueled with broken branches. The girl was the older and taller of the two. Harrier, Bran thought eagerly, as he watched her leap onto a rock and cut at the boy. But that couldn't be right. If the girl was Arya, the boy was Bran himself, and he had never worn his hair so long. And Arya never beat me, playing swords, the way that girl is beating him. She slashed the boy across his thigh, so hard that his leg went out from under him, and he fell into the pool and began to splash and shout. You be quiet, stupid, the girl said, tossing her own branch aside. It's just water. Do you want old Nan to hear and run tell father? She knelt and pulled her brother from the pool, but before she got him out again, the two of them were gone. After that the glimpses came faster and faster, till Bran was feeling lost and dizzy. He saw no more of his father, nor the girl who looked like Arya, but a woman, heavy with child, emerged naked and dripping from the black pool, knelt before the tree and begged the old gods for a son who would avenge her. Then there came a brown-haired girl, slender as a spear, who stood on the tips of her toes to kiss the lips of a young knight as tall as Hodor. A dark-eyed youth, pale and fierce, sliced three branches off the weirwood and shaped them into arrows. The tree itself was shrinking, growing smaller with each vision, whilst the lesser trees dwindled into saplings and vanished only to be replaced by other trees that would dwindle and vanish in their turn. And now the Lord's brand glimpsed were tall and hard, stern men in fur and chainmail. Some wore faces he remembered from the statues in the crypts, but they were gone before he could put a name to them. Then as he watched, a bearded man forced a captive down onto his knees before the heart tree. A white-haired woman stepped toward them, through a drift of dark red leaves, a bronze sickle in her hand. No, said Brand. no, don't. But they could not hear him, no more than his father had. The woman grabbed the captive by the hair, hooked the sickle round his throat, and slashed. And through the mist of centuries, the broken boy could only watch as a man's feet drummed against the earth. But as his life flowed out of him in a red tide, Brandon Stark could taste the blood. John The sun had broken through near midday after seven days of dark skies and snow flurries. Some of the drifts were higher than a man, but the stewards had been shoveling all day and the paths were as clean as they were like to get. Reflections glimmered off the wall, every crack and crevice glittering pale blue. Seven hundred feet up, John Snow stood looking down upon the haunted forest. A north wind swirled through the trees below, sending thin white plumes of snow crystals flying from the highest branches, like icy banners. Elsewise, nothing moved, not a sign of life. 
That was not entirely reassuring. It was not the living that he feared. Even so, the sun is out. The snow has stopped. It may be a moon's turn before we have another chance as good. It may be a season. Have Emmett assemble his recruits, he told Dolores Ed. We'll want an escort, ten rangers, armed with dragon glass. I want them ready to leave within the hour. Oi, my lord, and to command? That would be me. Ed's mouth turned on even more than usual. Some might think it better if the Lord Commander stayed safe and warm south of the wall. Not that I'd say such myself, but some might. John smiled. Some had best not say so in my presence. A sudden gust of wind said Ed's cloak to flapping noisily. Best to go down, my lord. This wind's like to push us off the wall, and I never did learn the knack of flying. They rode the winchlift back to the ground. The wind was gusting, cold as the breath of the ice dragon in the tales old Nan had told them when John was a boy. The heavy cage was swaying. From time to time it scraped against the wall, starting small crystalline showers of ice that sparkled in the sunlight as they fell, like shards of broken glass. Glass, John mused. Might be of use here. Castle Black needs its own glass gardens, like the ones at Winterfell. We could grow vegetables even in the deep of winter. The best glass came from Mere, but a good clear pane was worth its weight in spice, and green and yellow glass would not work as well. What we need is gold. With enough coin, we could buy Prentice glass blowers and glaziers in Mere. Bring them north, offer them their freedom for teaching their art to some of our recruits. That would be the way to go about it. If we had the gold, which we do not. At the base of the wall, he found Ghost rolling in a snowbank. The big white direwolf seemed to love fresh snow. When he saw John, he bounded back onto his feet and shook himself off. Dolores Ed said, He's going with you, eh? He is. Oh, a clever wolf, him. And me? You're not. A clever lord, you. Ghosts, the better choice. I don't have the teeth for biting wildlings any more. If the guards are good, we won't encounter any wildlings. I'll want the grey gelding. Word spread fast at Castle Black. Ed was still saddling the grey when Bowen Marsh stumped across the yard to confront John at the stables. My lord, I, I wish you would reconsider. The new men can take their vows in the sept as easily. The sept is home to the new gods. The old gods live in the wood, and those who honor them say their words amongst the weirwoods. You know that as well as I. Saturn comes from Old Town, and Aaron and Emric from the Westerlands. The old gods are not their gods. I do not tell men which god to worship. They were free to choose the seven, or the red woman's lord of light. They chose the trees instead, with all the peril that entails. The weeping man may still be out there watching. The grove is no more than two hours' ride, even with the snow. We should be back by midnight. Too long. This is not wise. 
Unwise, said John, but necessary. These men are about to pledge their lives to the Night's Watch, joining a brotherhood that stretches back in an unbroken line for thousands of years. The words matter, and so do these traditions. They bind us all together, high-born and low, young and old, base and noble. They make us brothers. He clapped Marsh on his shoulder. I promise you, we shall return. Aye, my lord, said the Lord Steward. But will it be as living men, or heads on spears, with your eyes scooped out? You will be returning through the black of night. The snowdrifts are waist-deep in places. I see that you are taking seasoned men with you. Well, that is good. But Black Jack Bulwer knew these woods as well. Even Benjamin Stark, your own uncle, he— I have something they did not. John turned his head and whistled. Ghost, to me. The dire wolf shook the snow from his back and trotted to John's side. The rangers parted to let him through, though one mare whinnied and shied away until Rory gave her reins a sharp tug. The wall is yours, Lord Bowen. He took his horse by the bridle and walked him to the gate and the icy tunnel that snaked beneath the wall. Beyond the ice, the trees stood tall and silent, huddled in thick white cloaks. Ghosts stalked beside John's horse as the rangers and recruits formed up, then stopped and sniffed, his breath frosting in the air. What is it? John asked. Is someone there? The woods were empty, as far as he could see, but that was not very far. Ghosts bounded toward the trees, slipped between two white-cloaked pines, and vanished in a cloud of snow. He wants to hunt, but what? John did not fear for the dire wolf so much as for any wildlings he might encounter. A white wolf in a white wood, silent as a shadow. They will never know his coming. He knew better than to go chasing him. Ghosts would return when he wanted to and not before. John put his heels into his horse. His men fell in around them, the hooves of their garrons breaking through the icy crust to the softer snow beneath. Into the woods they went, at a steady walking pace, as the wall dwindled behind them. The soldier pines and sentinels wore thick white coats, and icicles draped the bare brown limbs of the broadleafs. John sent Tom Barleycorn ahead to scout for them, though the way to the white grove was off-trod and familiar. Big Little and Luke of Longtown slipped into the brush to east and west. They would flank the column to give warning of any approach. All were seasoned rangers, armed with obsidian as well as steel. Warhorns slung across their saddles should they need to summon help. The others were good men, too. Good men in a fight, at least, and loyal to their brothers. John could not speak for what they might have been before they reached the war, but he did not doubt that most had pasts as black as their cloaks. Up here they were the sort of men he wanted at his back. Their hoods were raised against the biting wind, and some had scarves wrapped about their faces, hiding their features. John knew them, though. Every name was graven on his heart. They were his men, his brothers, 
Six more rode with them, a mix of young and old, large and small, seasoned and raw. Six to say the words. Horse had been born and raised in Molestown. Aaron and Emmerich came from Fair Isle, satin from the brothels of Old Town at the other end of Westeros. All of them were boys. Leathers and Jacks were older men, well past forty, sons of the haunted forest, with sons and grandsons of their own. They had been two of the sixty-three wildlings who had followed Jon Snow back to the wall the day he made his appeal. So far, the only two to decide they wanted a black cloak. Iron Emmett said they all were ready, or as ready as they were ever going to be. He and John and Bowen Marsh had weighed each man in turn and assigned them to an order. Leathers, Jacks, and Emmerich to the rangers, horse to the builders, Aaron and Satin to the stewards. The time had come for them to take their vows. Iron Emmett rode at the head of the column, mounted on the ugliest horse John had ever seen, a shaggy beast that looked to be all hair and hooves. Talk is there was some trouble at Harlot's Tower last night, the master at arms said. Harden's Tower? Of the sixty-three who had come back with him from Molestown, nineteen had been women and girls. John had housed them in the same abandoned tower where he had once slept when he had been new to the wall. Twelve were spearwives, more than capable of defending both themselves and the younger girls from the unwanted attentions of black brothers. It was some of the men they turned away who had given Harden's Tower its new inflammatory name. John was not about to condone the mockery. Three drunken fools mistook Harden's for a brothel, that's all. They are in the ice cells now, contemplating their mistake. Iron Emmett grimaced. Men are men, vows are words, and words are wind. You should put guards around the women. And who will guard the guards? You know nothing, John Snow. He had learned, though, and a grit had been his teacher. If he could not hold to his own vows, how could he expect more of his brothers? But there were dangers in trifling with wilding women. A man can own a woman, and a man can own a knife, Egret had told him once, but no man can own both. Bowen Marsh had not been all wrong. Harden's tower was tinder waiting for a spark. I mean to open three more castles, John said. Deep Lake, Sable Hall, and the Long Barrow, all garrisoned with free folk, under the command of our own officers. The Long Barrow would be all women, aside from the commander and chief steward. Oh, there would be some mingling, he did not doubt, but the distances were great enough to make that difficult, at least. And what poor fool will get that choice command? I am riding beside him. The look of mingled horror and delight that passed across Iron Emmett's face was worth more than a sack of gold. "'What have I done to make you hate me so, my lord?' John laughed. "'Have no fear. You won't be alone. I mean to give you Dolorous Ed as your second and your steward. "'The spearwives will be so happy. You might do well to bestow a castle on the magna.' John smiled died. "'I might, if I could trust him.' Sigorn blames me for his father's death, I fear. 
Worse, he was bred and trained to give orders, not to take them. Do not confuse their thens with free folk. Magna means lord in the old tongue, I am told, but Stir was closer to a god to his people, and his son is cut from the same skin. I do not require men to kneel, but they do need to obey. I am a lord, but you had best do something with a Magna. You'll have trouble with the thens if you ignore them. Trouble is the Lord Commander's lot, John might have said. His visit to Molestown was giving him plenty, as it happened, and the women were the least of it. Halleck was proving to be just as truculent as he had feared, and there were some amongst the Black Brothers whose hatred of the free folk was bone deep. One of Halleck's followers had already cut off a builder's ear in the yard, and like as not that was just a taste of the bloodshed to come. He had to get the old forts open soon, so Harmer's brother could be sent off to garrison Deep Lake or Sable Hall. Just now, though, neither of those was fit for human habitation, and Othel Yarvik and his builders were still off trying to restore the night fort. There were nights when Jon Snow wondered if he had not made a grievous mistake by preventing Stannis from marching all the wildlings off to be slaughtered. I know nothing, Igrit, he thought, and perhaps I never will. Half a mile from the grove, long red shafts of autumn sunlight were slanting down between the branches of the leafless trees, staining the snowdrifts pink. The riders crossed a frozen stream between two jagged rocks armoured in ice, then followed a twisting game trail to the northeast. Whenever the wind kicked up, Sprays of loose snow filled the air and stung their eyes. John pulled his scarf up over his mouth and nose and raised the hood on his cloak. Not far now, he told the men. No one replied. John smelled Tom Barleycorn before he saw him. Or was it Ghost who smelled him? Of late, John Snow sometimes felt as if he and the direwolf were one, even awake. The great white wolf appeared first, shaking off the snow. A few moments later, Tom was there. Wildlings, he told John softly, in the grove. John brought the riders to a halt. How many? I counted nine. No guards. Some dead might be or sleeping. Most looked to be women. One child, but there's a giant too. Just the one that I saw. They've got a fire burning. Smoke drifting through the trees. Fools. Nine, and I have seven and ten. Four of his were green boys, though, and none were giants. John was not of a mind to fall back to the wall, however. If the wildlings are still alive, it may be we can bring them in. And if they are dead, well, a corpse or two could be of use. We'll continue on foot, he said, dropping lightly to the frozen ground. The snow was ankle-deep. Rory, Pate, stay with the horses. He might have given that duty to the recruits, but they would need to be blooded soon enough. Well, this was as good a time as any. Spread out and form a crescent. I want to close in on the grove from three sides. Keep the men to your right and left in sight, so the gaps do not widen. The snow should muffle our steps. 
Less chance of blood if we take them unawares. Night was falling fast. The shafts of sunlight had vanished when the last thin slice of the sun was swallowed beneath the western woods. The pink snowdrifts were going white again, the colour leaching out of them as the world darkened. The evening sky had turned the faded grey of an old cloak that had been washed too many times, and the first shy stars were coming out. Ahead he glimpsed a pale white trunk that could only be a weirwood, crowned with a head of dark red leaves. John Snow reached back and pulled Longclaw from his sheath. He looked to right and left, gave Saturn and horse a nod, watched them pass it on to the men beyond. They rushed the grove together, kicking through drifts of old snow with no sound but their breathing. Ghost ran with them, a white shadow at John's side. The weirwoods rose in a circle around the edges of the clearing. There were nine, all roughly of the same age and size. Each one had a face carved into it, and no two faces were alike. Some were smiling, some were screaming, some were shouting at him. In the deepening glow their eyes looked black, but in daylight they would be blood-red, John knew, eyes like ghosts. The fire in the centre of the grove was a small sad thing, ashes and embers, and a few broken branches burning slow and smoky. Even then it had more life than the wildlings huddled near it. Only one of them reacted when John stepped from the brush. That was the child, who began to wail, clutching at his mother's ragged cloak. The woman raised her eyes and gasped. By then the grove was ringed by rangers, sliding past the bone-white trees, steel glinting in black-gloved hands, poised for slaughter. The giant was the last to notice him. He had been asleep, curled up by the fire. But something woke him. The child's cry, the sound of snow crunching beneath black boots, a sudden indrawn breath. When he stirred, it was as if a boulder had come to life. He heaved himself into a sitting position with a snort, pawing at his eyes with hands as big as hams to rub the sleep away, until he saw Iron Emmet, his sword shining in his hand. Roaring, he came leaping to his feet, and one of those huge hands closed around a maul and jerked it up. Ghost showed his teeth in answer. John grabbed the wolf by the scruff of the neck. We want no battle here. His men could bring the giant down, he knew, but not without cost. Once blood was shed, the wildlings would join the fray. Most or all would die here, and some of his own brothers too. This is a holy place. Yield, and we— The giant bellowed again, a sound that shook the leaves and the trees, and slammed his maul against the ground. The shaft of it was six feet of gnarled oak, the head a stone as big as a loaf of bread. The impact made the ground shake. Some of the other wildlings went scrambling for their own weapons. John Snow was about to reach for Longclaw when Leather spoke from the far side of the grove. His words sounded gruff and guttural, but John heard the music in it and recognized the old tongue. Leather spoke for a long while. When he was done, 
the giant answered. It sounded like growling, interspersed with grunts, and John could not understand a word of it. But Leathers pointed at the trees and said something else, and the giant pointed at the trees, ground his teeth, and dropped his maul. It's done, said Leathers. They want no fight. Well done, but what did you tell him? That they were our gods too, that we came to pray. We shall. Put away your steel, all of you. We will have no bloodshed here tonight. Nine, Tom Barleycorn had said, and nine there were, but two were dead, and one so weak he might have died by morning. The six who remained included a mother and child, two old men, a wounded thin in battered bronze, and one of the hornfoot folk, his bare feet so badly frostbitten that John knew at a glance he would never walk again. Most had been strangers to one another when they came to the grove, he learned, subsequently. When Stannis broke Mance Raider's host, they had fled into the woods to escape the carnage, wandered for a time, lost friends and kin to cold and starvation, and finally washed up here, too weak and weary to go on. "'The gods are here,' one of the old men said. "'This was a good place to die as any.' "'The wall is only a few hours south of here,' said John. "'Why not seek shelter there?' Others yielded, even Mance. The wildlings exchanged looks. Finally one said, "'We heard stories. The crows burn all them that yielded.' "'Even Mance himself,' the woman added. "'Melisandre, John thought. "'You and your red god have much and more to answer for. "'All those who wish are welcome to return with us. "'There's food and shelter at Castle Black, "'and the wall to keep you safe from the things that haunt these woods. "'You have my word. No one will burn.' "'A crow's word,' the woman said, hugging her child close. But who's to say that you can keep it? Who are you? Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and the son of Eddard Stark of Winterfell. John turned to Tom Barleycorn. Have Rory and Pate bring up the horses. I do not mean to stay here one moment longer than we must. As you say, my lord. One last thing remained before they could depart. The thing they had come for. Arn Emmett called forth his charges and as the rest of the company watched from a respectful distance, they knelt before the weirwoods. The last light of day was gone by then. The only light came from the stars above, and the faint red glow of the dying fire in the centre of the grove. With their black hoods and thick black cowls, the six might have been carved from shadow. Their voices rose together, small against the vastness of the night. Night gathers, and now my watch begins, they said, as thousands had said before them. Saturn's voice was sweet as song. Horses, hoarse and halting. Errands, a nervous squeak. It shall not end until my death. May those deaths be long in coming. John Snow sank to one knee in the snow. Gods of my fathers, protect these men and Arya too, my little sister, wherever she might be. I pray you, let Mance find her, 
and bring her safe to me. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children, the recruits promised, in voices that echoed back through years and centuries. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. Gods of the woods grant me the strength to do the same, John Snow prayed silently. Give me the wisdom to know what must be done and the courage to do it. I am the sword in the darkness, said the six, and it seemed to John as though their voices were changing, growing stronger, more certain. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. The shield that guards the realms of men? Ghost nuzzled up against his shoulder, and John draped an arm around him. He could smell horses' unwashed breeches, the sweet scent satin combed into his beard, the rank sharp smell of fear, the giant's overpowering musk. He could hear the beating of his own heart. When he looked across the grove, at the woman with her child, the two greybeards, the hornfoot man with his mane feet, all he saw was men. I pledge my life and honour to the night's watch for this night and all the nights to come. John Snow was the first unto his feet. Rise now, as men of the night's watch. He gave horse a hand to pull him up. The wind was rising. It was time to go. The journey back took much longer than the journey to the grove. The giant's pace was a ponderous one, despite the length and girth of those legs, and he was forever stopping to knock snow off low-hanging limbs with his maul. The woman rode double with Rory, her son with Tom Barleycorn, the old man with horse and satin. The Thin was frightened of the horses, however, and preferred to limp along despite his wounds. The Hornfoot man could not sit a saddle and had to be tied over the back of a garum like a sack of grain. So too the pale-faced crone with their stick-thin limbs, whom they had not been able to rouse. They did the same with the two corpses, to the puzzlement of Iron Emmet. "'They will only slow us, my lord,' he said to John. "'We should chop them up and burn them.' "'No,' said John, "'bring them. I have use for them.' They had no moon to guide them home, and only now and then a patch of stars. The world was black and white and still." It was a long, slow, endless trek. The snow clung to their boots and breeches, and the wind rattled the pines and made their cloaks snap and swirl. John glimpsed the red wanderer above, watching them through the leafless branches of great trees as they made their way beneath. The thief, the free folk called it. The best time to steal a woman was when the thief was in the moon maid, Igrit had always claimed. She never mentioned the best time to steal a giant or two dead men. It was almost dawn before they saw the wall again. A sentry's horn greeted them as they approached, sounding from on high like the cry of some huge, deep-throated bird, a single long blast that meant rangers returning. 
Big Little unslung his own war-horn and gave answer. At the gate they had to wait a few moments before Dolorous Ed Tollett appeared to slide back the bolts and swing open the iron bars. When Ed caught sight of the ragged band of wildings, he pursed his lips and gave the giant a long look. "'Might need some butter to slide that one through the tunnel, my lord. Shall I send someone to the larder?' "'Oh, I think he'll fit. Unbuttered.' So he did, on hands and knees, crawling. A big boy, this one, fourteen feet at least, even bigger than Mag the Mighty. Mag had died beneath this very ice, locked in mortal struggle with Donald Noy, a good man. The watch had lost too many good men. John took leathers aside. Take charge of him. You speak his tongue. See that he is fed and find him a warm place by the fire. Stay with him. See that no one provokes him. I, Leathers hesitated, my lord. The living wildlings John sent off to have their wounds and frostbites tended. Some hot food and warm clothes would restore most of them, he hoped, though the hornfoot man was like to lose both feet. The corpses he consigned to the ice cells. Clydus had come and gone, John noted, as he was hanging his cloak on the peg beside the door. A letter had been left on the table in his solar. East Watch, or the Shadow Tower, he assumed at first glance. But the wax was gold, not black. The seal showed a stag's head within a flaming heart. Stannis! John cracked the hardened wax, flattened the roll of parchment, read, A master's hand, but the king's words. Stannis had taken deep wood mott, and the mountain clans had joined him. Flint, Norrie, War, little, all. And we had other help, unexpected but most welcome, from a daughter of Bear Island, Alisane Mormont, whose men name her the She-Bear, hid fighters inside a gaggle of fishing sloops and took the iron men unawares where they lay off the strand. Greyjoy's longships are burned or taken, her crew slain or surrendered, the captains, knights, notable warriors, and others of high birth, we shall ransom or make other use of. The rest I mean to hang. The Night's Watch was sworn to take no side in the quarrels and conflicts of the realm. Nonetheless, Jon Snow could not help but feel a certain satisfaction. He read on, More Northmen coming in as word spreads of our victory. Fisher folk, free riders, hillmen, Crofters from the deep of the Wolf's Wood, and villagers who fled their homes along the stony shore to escape the Iron Men, survivors from the battle outside the gates of Winterfell, men once sworn to the Hornwoods, the Serwins, and the Tallhearts. We are five thousand strong, as I write, our numbers swelling every day, and word has come to us that Roost Bolton moves toward Winterfell, with all his power, there to wed his bastard to your half-sister. He must not be allowed to restore the castle to its former strength. We march against him. Arn of Carstock and Moore's Umber will join us. 
I will save your sister, if I can, and find a better match for her than Ramsay Snow. You and your brothers must hold the wall until I can return. It was signed in a different hand. Done in the light of Lord, under the sign and seal of Stannis of House Baratheon, the first of his name, King of the Andals, the Rhoynar, and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and protector of the realm. The moment John set the letter aside, the parchment curled up again, as if eager to protect its secrets. He was not at all sure how he felt about what he had just read. Battles had been fought at Winterfell before, but never one without a Stark on one side or the other. The castle is a shell, he said, not Winterfell, but the ghost of Winterfell. It was painful just to think of it, much less say the words aloud. And still, he wondered how many men old crow food would bring to the fray, and how many swords Arn of Carstock would be able to conjure up. Half the umbers would be across the field with Horsbane, fighting beneath the flayed man of the Dreadfort, and the greater part of the strength of both houses had gone south with Rob, never to return. Even ruined, Winterfell itself would confer a considerable advantage on whoever held it. Robert Baratheon would have seen that at once and moved swiftly to secure the castle, with the forced marches and midnight rides for which he had been famous. Would his brother be as bold? Not likely. Stannis was a deliberate commander, and his host was a half-digested stew of clansmen, Southron knights, king's men and queen's men, salted with a few northern lords. He should move on Winterfell swiftly or not at all, John thought. It was not his place to advise the king, but he glanced at the letter again. I will save your sister if I can. A surprisingly tender sentiment from Stannis, though undercut by that final brutal if I can, and the addendum and find a better match for her than Ramsay Snow. But what if Arya was not there to be saved? What if Lady Melisandre's flames had told it true? Could his sister truly have escaped such captors? How would she do that? Arya was always quick and clever, but in the end she's just a little girl, and Roose Bolton is not the sort who would be careless for the prize of such great worth. What if Bolton never had his sister? This wedding could well be just some ruse to lure Stannis into a trap. Eddard Stark had never had any reason to complain of the Lord of the Dreadfort, so far as John knew. But even so, he had never trusted him, with his whispery voice and his pale, pale eyes. A grey girl on a dying horse, fleeing from her marriage. On the strength of those words, he had loose Mance Raider and six spare wives on the north. Young ones and pretty, Mance had said. The unburnt king supplied some names, and Dolores Ed had done the rest, smuggling them from Molestown. It seemed like madness now. He might have done better to strike down Mance the moment he revealed himself. John had a certain grudging admiration 
for the late king beyond the wall, but the man was an oath-breaker and a turncloak. He had even less trust in Melisandre. Yet somehow here he was, pinning his hopes on them, all to save my sister. But the men of the Night's Watch have no sisters. When John had been a boy at Winterfell, his hero had been the young dragon, the boy king who had conquered Dawn at the age of fourteen. Despite his bastard birth, or perhaps because of it, Jon Snow had dreamed of leading men to glory, just as King Daron had, of growing up to be a conqueror. Now he was a man grown, and the wall was his. Yet all he had were doubts. He could not even seem to conquer those. Daenerys The stench of the camp was so appalling, it was all that Danny could do not to gag. Sebastian wrinkled up his nose and said, Your grace should not be here, breathing these black humours. I am the blood of the dragon, Danny reminded him. Have you ever seen a dragon with a flux? Viserys had oft-claimed that Targaryens were untroubled by the pestilences that afflicted common men, and so far she could tell it was true. She could remember being cold and hungry and afraid, but never sick. Even so, the old knight said, I would feel better if your grace would return to the city. The many-coloured brick walls of Merian were half a mile back. The bloody flux has been the bane of every army since the dawn age. Let us distribute the food, your grace. On the morrow. I am here now. I want to see. She put her heels into her silver. The others trotted after her. Jogo rode before her, Ago and Ricaro just behind. Long Dothraki whips in hand to keep away the sick and dying. Sir Barristan was at her right, mounted on a dapple grey. To her left was Simon Stripeback of the Free Brothers, and Marcellin of the Mother's Men. Threescore soldiers followed close behind the captains to protect the food wagons. Mounted men all, Dothraki and brazen beasts and freedmen. They were united only by their distaste for this duty. The Astapori stumbled after them in a ghastly procession that grew longer with every yard they crossed. Some spoke tongues she did not understand. Others were beyond speaking. Many lifted their hands to Danny, or knelt as her silver went by. Mother, they called to her, in the dialects of Astapor, Lys, and Old Volantis, in guttural Dothraki and the liquid syllables of Karth, even in the common tongue of Westeros. Mother, please, mother, help my sister. She is sick. Give me food for my little ones, please. My old father, help him, help her, help me. I have no more help to give, Danny thought, despairing. The Astapori had no place to go. Thousands remained outside Mirian's thick walls, men and women and children, old men and little girls and newborn babes. Many were sick, most were starved, and all were doomed to die. Daenerys dared not open her gates to let them in. She had tried to do what she could for them. She had sent them healers, blue graces, 
spell singers and barber surgeons, but some of those had sickened as well, and none of their arts had slowed the galloping progression of the flocks that had come on the pale mare. Separating the healthy from the sick had proved impractical as well. Her stalwart shields had tried, pulling husbands away from wives and children from their mothers, even as the Astapori wept and kicked and pelted them with stones. A few days later, the sick were dead, and the healthy ones were sick. Dividing the one from the other had accomplished nothing. Even feeding them had grown difficult. Every day she sent them what she could, but every day there were more of them, and less food to give them. It was growing harder to find drivers willing to deliver the food as well. Too many of the men they had sent into the camp had been stricken by the flocks themselves. Others had been attacked on the way back to the city. Yesterday a wagon had been overturned and two of her soldiers killed. So today the queen had determined that she would bring the food herself. Every one of her advisers had argued fervently against it, from Raznak and the shave-pate to Sir Barristan. But Daenerys would not be moved. I will not turn away from them, she said stubbornly. A queen must know the sufferings of her people. Suffering was the only thing they did not lack. There is scarcely a horse or mule left, though many rode from Astapor, Marcellin reported to her. They've eaten every one, your grace, along with every rat and scavenger dog they could catch. Now some have begun to eat their own dead. Man must not eat the flesh of man, said Argo. It is known, agreed Ricaro. They will be cursed. They're past cursing, said Simon Stripeback. Little children with swollen stomachs trailed after them, too weak or scared to beg. Gaunt men with sunken eyes squatted amidst sand and stones, shitting out their lives in stinking streams of brown and red. Many shat where they slept now, too feeble to crawl to the ditches she'd commanded them to dig. Two women fought over a charred bone. Nearby, a boy of ten stood eating a rat. He ate one-handed, the other clutching a sharpened stick, lest anyone try to wrest away his prize. Unburied dead lay everywhere. Dennis Hall, one man, sprawled in the dirt under a black cloak, but as she rode past, his cloak dissolved into a thousand flies. Skeletal women sat upon the ground, clutching dying infants. Their eyes followed her. Those who had the strength called out, Mother! Please! Mother! Bless you, Mother! Bless me, Danny thought bitterly. Your city is gone to ash and bone. Your people are dying all around you. I have no shelter for you, no medicine, no hope. Only stale bread and wormy meat, hard cheese, a little milk. Bless me. Bless me. What kind of mother has no milk to feed her children? Too many dead, Ago said. They should be burned. Who will burn them? asked Sir Barristan. The bloody flocks is everywhere. A hundred die each night. It is not good to touch the dead, said Jogo. This is noon, Ago and Ricaro said together. And that may be so, said Danny, but this thing must be done all the same. She thought a moment. 
The unsolid have no fear of corpses. I shall speak to Grey Worm. Your Grace, said Sir Barrison, the unsolid are your best fighters. We dare not loose this plague amongst them. Let the Astapori bury their own dead. They're too feeble, said Simon Stripeback. Danny said, More food might make them stronger. Simon shook his head. Food should not be wasted on the dying, your worship. We do not have enough to feed the living. He was not wrong, she knew, but that did not make the words any easier to hear. This is far enough, the queen decided. We'll feed them here. She raised a hand. Behind her, the wagons bumped to a halt, and her riders spread out around them to keep the Astapori from rushing at the food. No sooner had they stopped than the press began to thicken around them, as more and more of the afflicted came limping and shambling toward the wagons. The riders cut them off. Wait your turn, they shouted. No pushing. Back, or stay back. Bread for everyone. Wait your turn. Danny could only sit and watch. Sir, she said to Barristan Selmy, is there no more we can do? You have provisions. Provisions for your grace's soldiers. We may well need to withstand a long siege. The storm crows and the second sons can harry the youngishmen, but they cannot hope to turn them. If your grace would allow me to assemble an army, if there must be a battle, I would sooner fight it from behind the walls of Mirin. Let the Yunkai try and storm my battlements. The queen surveyed the scene around her. If we were to share our food equally, the Astapori would eat through their portion in days, and we would have that much less for the siege. Danny gazed across the camp to the many-colored brick walls of Marin. The air was thick with flies and cries. The gods have sent this pestilence to humble me. So many dead. I will not have them eating corpses. She beckoned Ago closer. Ride to the gates and bring me Grey Worm and fifty of his unsullied. Khaleesi, the blood of your blood abyss. Ago touched his horse with his heels and galloped off. Sir Barrison watched with ill-concealed apprehension. You should not linger here over long, your grace. The Astapori are being fed, as you commanded. There's no more we can do for the poor wretches. We should repair back to the city. Go if you wish, sir. I will not detain you. I will not detain any of you. Danny vaulted down from the horse. I cannot heal them, but I can show them that their mother cares. Jogo sucked in his breath. Khaleesi, no. The bell in his braid rang softly as he dismounted. You must not get any closer. Do not let them touch you. Do not. Danny walked right past him. There was an old man on the ground a few feet away, moaning and staring up at the grey belly of the clouds. She knelt beside him, wrinkling her nose at the smell, and pushed back his dirty grey hair to feel his brow. His flesh is on fire. I need water to bathe him. Sea water will serve. Marcellin, will you fetch some for me? I need oil as well for the pyre. Who will help me burn the dead? By the time Ago returned with Grey Worm and fifty of the unsolid loping behind his horse, Danny had shamed all of them into helping her. 
Simon Stripeback and his men were pulling the living from the dead and stacking up the corpses, while Jogo and Ricardo and their Dothraki helped those who could still walk toward the shore to bathe and wash their clothes. Argo stared at them as if they'd all gone mad, but Grey Worm knelt beside the queen and said, This one would be of help. Before midday, a dozen fires were burning. Columns of greasy black smoke rose up to stain a merciless blue sky. Danny's riding clothes were stained and sooty as she stepped back from the pyres. Worship, Grey Worm said, this one and his brothers beg your leave to bathe in the salt sea when our work here is done, that we might be purified according to the laws of our great goddess. The queen had not known that the eunuchs had a goddess of their own. Who is this goddess? One of the gods of Gis? Grey Worm looked troubled. The goddess is called by many names. She is the Lady of Spears, the Bride of Battle, the Mother of Hosts, but her true name belongs only to these poor ones who have burned their manhoods upon her altar. We may not speak of her to others. This one begs your forgiveness. As you wish. Yes, you may bathe, if that is your desire. Thank you for your help. These ones live to serve you. When Daenerys returned to her pyramid, sore of limb and sick of heart, she found Masandi reading some old scroll, whilst Iri and Jiqui argued about Ricardo. You're too skinny for him, Jiqui was saying. You're almost a boy. Ricardo does not bed with boys, this is known. Iri bristled back. It is known that you are almost a cow. Ricardo does not bed with cows. Ricardo is blood of my blood. His life belongs to me, not you. Janet told the two of them. Ricaro had grown almost half a foot during his time away from Mirin, and returned with arms and legs thick with muscle and four bells in his hair. He tired over Argo and Jogo now, as her handmaids had both noticed. Now be quiet. I need to bathe. She had never felt more soiled. Jiqui, help me from these clothes, then take them away and burn them. Iri. Tell Kaiser to find me something light and cool to wear. The day was very hot. A cold wind was blowing on her terrace. Danny sighed with pleasure as she slipped into the waters of her pool. At her command, Masande stripped off her clothes and climbed in after her. This one heard the Astapori scratching at the walls last night, the little scribe said as she was washing Danny's back. Iri and Jigwe exchanged a look. No one was scratching, said Jigwe. Scratching? How could they scratch? With their hands, said Masande. The bricks are old and crumbling. They are trying to claw their way into the city. This would take them many years, said Iri. The walls are very thick. This is known. It is known, agreed Jigwe. I dream of them as well. Danny took Missandei's hand. The camp is a good half mile from the city, my sweetling. No one was scratching at the walls. Your grace knows best, said Missandei. Shall I wash your hair? It's almost time. Resnick, Moresnick, and the Green Grace are coming to discuss the wedding preparations. 
Dennis sat up with a splash. I'd almost forgotten. Perhaps I wanted to forget. And after them, I am to dine with Histar, she sighed. Eri, bring the green toker, the silk one, fringed with mirish lace. That one was being repaired, Khaleesi. The lace was torn. The blue toker has been cleaned. Blue, then. They will be just as pleased. She was only half wrong. The priestess and the seneschal were happy to see her garbed in a tokar, a proper Miranese lady for once. But what they really wanted was to strip her bare. Daenerys heard them out, incredulous. When they were done, she said, I have no wish to give offence, but I will not present myself naked to Histar's mother and sisters. But, said Resnick Mo Resnick, blinking, but you must, your worship, before a marriage it is traditional for the women of the man's house to examine the bride's womb and her uh, female parts to ascertain that they are well-formed and uh, fertile, finished Galaze Galare. An ancient ritual, your radiance. Three graces shall be present to witness the examination and to say the proper prayers. Yes, said Resnick, and afterwards there is a special cake, a women's cake, baked only for betrothals. Men are not allowed to taste it. I'm told it's delicious. Magical. And if my womb is withered and my female parts are cursed, is there a special cake for that as well? His star, Zoloric, may inspect my woman's parts after we are wed. Caldrogo found no fault with him. Why should he? Let his mother and his sisters examine one another and share the special cake. I shall not be eating it nor shall I wash the noble Histar's noble feet. Magnificence, you do not understand, protested Resnick. The washing of the feet is hallowed by tradition. It signifies that you shall be your husband's handmaid. The wedding garb is fraught with meaning, too. The bride is dressed in dark red veils above a tokar of white silk fringed with baby pearls. Ah, the queen of the rabbits must not be wed without her floppy ears. All those pearls will make me rattle when I walk. The pearls symbolize fidelity. The more pearls your worship wears, the more healthy children she will bear. Why would I want a hundred children? Danny turned to the green grace. If we should wed by Westerosi rites, the gods of Gis would deem it no true union. Galaza Galare's face was hidden behind a veil of green silk. Only her eyes showed, green and wise and sad. In the eyes of the city, you would be the noble Hisdar's concubine, not his lawful wedded wife. Your children would be bastards. Your worship must marry Hisdar in the Temple of the Graces with all the nobility of Marian on hand to bear witness to your union. Get the heads of all the noble houses out of the pyramids on some pretext, Dari Hood said. The dragon's words are fire and blood. Danny pushed the thought aside. It was not worthy of her. As you wish, she sighed. I shall marry his star in the Temple of the Graces, wrapped in a white tokar fringed with baby pearls. Is there anything else?
One more small matter, your worship, said Resnick. To celebrate your nuptials, it would be most fitting if you would allow the fighting pits to open once again. It would be your wedding gift to his dar and to your loving people, a sign that you had embraced the ancient ways and customs of Merin, and most pleasing to the gods as well, the Green Grace added in her soft and kindly voice. A bride price paid in blood. Daenerys was weary of fighting this battle. Even Sir Barrison did not think she could win. No ruler can make a people good, Selmy had told her. Baelor the Blessed prayed and fasted, and built the seven as splendid a temple as any gods could wish for. Yet he could not put an end to war and want. A queen must listen to her people. Danny reminded herself. After the wedding, Histar will be king. Let him reopen the fighting pits if he wishes. I want no part of it. Let the blood be on his hands, not mine. She rose. If my husband wishes me to wash his feet, he must first wash mine. I will tell him so this evening. She wondered how her betrothed would take that. She need not have been concerned. His daughter, Lorek, arrived an hour after the sun had set. His own tokar was burgundy, with a golden stripe and a fringe of golden beads. Danny told him of her meeting with Resnack and the Green Grace as she was pouring wine for him. These rituals are empty, his daughter declared. Just the sort of thing we must sweep aside. Marion has been steeped in these foolish old traditions for too long. He kissed her hand and said, Daenerys, my queen, I will gladly wash you from head to heel, if that's what I must do to be your king and consort. To be my king and consort, you need only bring me peace. Scarhas tells me you have had messages of late. I have. His dar crossed his long legs. He looked pleased with himself. Yonkai will give us peace, but for a price. The disruption of the slave trade has caused great injury throughout the civilized world. Yankai and her allies will require an indemnity of us, to be paid in gold and gemstones. Gold and gems were easy. What else? The Yankai will resume slaving as before. Astapor will be rebuilt as a slave city. You will not interfere. The Yunkai resumed their slaving before I was two leagues from their city. Did I turn back? King Cleon begged me to join with him against them, and I turned a deaf ear to his pleas. I want no war with Yunkai. How many times must I say it? What promises do they require? Ah, there is the thorn in the bower, my queen, said Hisdazo Lorik. Sad to say, Yunkai has no faith in your promises. They keep plucking the same string on the harp about some envoy that your dragon set on fire. Only his tokar was burned, said Danny scornfully. Be that as it may, they do not trust you. The men of New Gis feel the same. Words are wind, as you yourself have so oft said. No words of yours will secure this peace for Mirian. Your foes require deeds. They would see us wait and they would see me crowned as king to rule beside you. 
Danny filled his wine cup again, wanting nothing so much as to pour the flagon over his head and drown his complacent smile. Marriage or carnage? A wedding or a war? Are those my choices? I see only one choice, your radiant. Let us say our vows before the gods of Gis and make a new Marian together. The queen was framing her response when she heard a step behind her. Oh, the food, she thought. Her cooks had promised her to serve the noble Hisdar's favorite meal, dog in honey, stuffed with prunes and peppers. But when she turned to look, it was Sir Barristan standing there, freshly bathed and clad in white, his long sword at his side. Your Grace, he said, bowing, I am sorry to disturb you, but I thought that you would want to know at once. The storm crows have returned to the city with word of the foe. The Yunkish men are on the march, just as we had feared. A flicker of annoyance crossed the noble face of Hisdar Zoloric. The queen is at her supper. These sellswords can wait. Sir Barrister ignored him. I asked Lord Dario to make his report to me, as your grace had commanded. He laughed and said that he would write it out in his own blood. If your grace would send your little scribe to show him how to make the letters. Blood, said Danny, horrified. Is that a jape? No, no, don't tell me. I must see him for myself. She was a young girl and alone, and young girls can change their minds. I convene my captains and commanders. Hisdar, I know you will forgive me. Marian must come first, Hisdar smiled genially. We will have other knights, a thousand knights. Sir Barrison will show you out. Danny hurried off, calling for her handmaids. She would not welcome her captain home in a tow-car. In the end she tried a dozen gowns before she found one she liked, but she refused the crown the Jeque offered her. As Dario Naharis took a knee before her, Danny's heart gave a lurch. His head was matted with dried blood, and on his temple a deep cut glistened red and raw. His right sleeve was bloody almost to the elbow. "'You're hurt!' she gasped. "'This!' Dario touched his temple. "'A crossbowman tried to put a quarrel through me eye, but I outrode it. I was hurrying home to my queen to bask in the warmth of her smile.' He shook his sleeve, spattering red droplets. This blood is not mine. One of my sergeants said we should go over to the Yonkai, so I reached down his throat and pulled his heart out. I meant to bring it to you as a gift for my silver queen, but four of the cats cut me off and came snarling and spitting after me. One almost caught me, so I threw the heart into his face. Very gallant, said Sir Barrison, in a tone that suggested it was anything but. But do you have tidings for her grace? Hard tidings, sir grandfather. Astapor is gone, and the slavers are coming north in strength. This is old news and stale, growled the shavepate. Your mother said the same of your father's kisses, Dario replied. Sweet queen, I would have been here sooner, but the hills are a swarm with yunkish sellswords. Four free companies— your storm crows had to cut their way through all of them. There is more and worse. 
the Yankai are marching their host up the coast route, joined by four legions out of Nugis. They have elephants, a hundred, armoured and towered, Tulasi slingers too, and a corps of Carthine camelry. Two more Gascari legions took ship at Astapor. If our captives told it through, they will be landed beyond the Skahazadan to cut us off from the Dothraki Sea. As he told his tale, from time to time a drop of bright red blood would patter against the marble floor, and Danny would wince. How many men were killed? she asked when he was done. Of ours? Oh, I did not stop to count. We gained more than we lost, though. More turncoaks. More brave men drawn to your noble cause. My queen will like them. One is an axeman from the Basilisk Isles, a brute bigger than Bell was. You should see him. Some Westerosi, too, a score or more. Deserters from the windblown, unhappy with the Yunkai. They'll make good storm crows. If you say, Danny would not quibble. Marion might soon have need of every sort. Sebastian frowned at Daria. Hey, Captain, you made mention of four free companies. We know of only three. The Windblown, the Long Lancers, and the Company of the Cat. Sir Grandfather knows how to count. The second sons have gone over to the Yunkai. Daria turned his head and spat. That's for Brown Ben Plum. When next I see his ugly face... I will open him from throat to groin and rip out his black heart. Danny tried to speak and found no words. She remembered Ben's face the last time she had seen it. It was a warm face, a face I trusted. Dark skin and white hair, the broken nose, the wrinkles at the corners of his eyes. Even the dragons had been fond of old brown Ben, who liked to boast that he had a, a drop of dragon blood himself. Three treasons, will you know, once for gold, and once for blood, and once for love. Was Plum the third treason, or the second? And what did that make Sir Jorah, her gruff old bear? Would she never have a friend that she could trust? What good are prophecies if he cannot make sense of them? If I marry his star before the sun comes up, will all these armies melt away like morning dew and let me rule in peace? Dario's announcement had sparked an uproar. Resdak was wailing. The shave pate was muttering darkly. Her blood riders were swearing vengeance. Strong Belworth thumped his scarred belly with his fist and swore to eat Brown Ben's heart with plums and onions. Please, Danny said, but only Miss Sandy seemed to hear. The queen got to her feet. Be quiet! I have heard enough! Your grace, Sir Barristan went to one knee. We are yours to command. What would you have us do? Continue as we planned. Gather food as much as you can. If I look back, I'm lost. We must close the gates and put every fighting man upon the walls. No one enters. No one leaves. The hall was quiet for a moment. The men looked at one another. Then Resnick said, What of the Astapori? She wanted to scream. 
to gnash her teeth and tear her clothes and beat upon the floor. Instead, she said, Close the gates. Will you make me say it thrice? They were her children, but she could not help them now. Leave me. Dario remain. That cot should be washed, and I have more questions for you. The others bowed and went. Danny took Dario Naharis up the steps to her bedchamber, where Iri washed his cut with vinegar and Jigwe wrapped it in white linen. When that was done, she sent her handmaids off as well. Your clothes are stained with blood, she told Dario. Take them off. Only if you do the same. He kissed her. His hair smelled of blood and smoke and horse, and his mouth was hard and hot on hers. Danny trembled in his arms. When they broke apart, she said, I thought you would be the one to betray me. Once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love, the warlock said. I thought... I never thought, Brown Ben. Even my dragon seemed to trust him. She clutched her captain by the shoulders. Promise me that you will never turn against me. I could not bear that. Promise me. Never, my love. She believed him. I swore that I should wed his star Zolorek if he gave me ninety days of peace. But now I wanted you from the first time that I saw you. But you were a sellsword, fickle, treacherous. You boasted that you'd had a hundred women. A hundred? Dario chuckled through his purple beard. I lied, sweet queen. It was a thousand, but never once a dragon. She raised her lips to his. What are you waiting for? The Prince of Winterfell The hearth was caked with coal-black ash, the room unheated but for candles. Every time a door opened, their flames would sway and shiver. The bride was shivering, too. They had dressed her in white lamb's wool trimmed with lace. Her sleeves and bodice were sewn with fresh-water pearls, and on her feet were white doeskin slippers, pretty but not warm. Her face was pale, bloodless. A face carved of ice, the young Greyjoy thought, as he draped a fur-trimmed cloak about her shoulders. A corpse buried in the snow. My lady... It is time. Beyond the door, the music called them, lute and pipes and drum. The bride raised her eyes, brown eyes, shining in the candlelight. I will be a good wife to him, and tr true. I, I, I will please him and give him sons. I will be a better wife than a real Arya could have been. He'll see. Talk like that will get you killed, or worse. That lesson he had learned as Reek. You are the real Arya, my lady, Arya of House Star, Lord Eddard's daughter, heir to Winterfell. Her name, she had to know her name. Arya Underfoot. Your sister used to call you Arya Horseface. It was me made up that name. Her face was long and horsey. Mine isn't. I was pretty. Tears spilled from her eyes at last. I was never beautiful, like Sansa, but they all said I was pretty. Does Lord Ramsay think I'm pretty? Yes, he lied. He told me so. 
He knows who I am, though. Who I really am. I, I see it when he looks at me. He looks so angry, even when he smiles, but it's not my fault. They say he likes to hurt people. My lady should not listen to such uh, lies. They say that he hurt you. Your hands and... His mouth was dry. Um, I, um, I deserved it. I made him angry. You must not make him angry. Lord Ramsay is a, uh, a sweet man and kindly. Please him and he will be good to you. Be a good wife. Help me. She clutched him. Please. I used to watch you in the yard playing with your swords. You were so handsome. She squeezed his arm. If he ran away, I could be your wife or your, your whore, whatever you wanted. You could be my man. Theon wrenched his arm away from her. I'm no, I'm no one's man. A man will help her. Just, just be Arya. Be his wife. Please him or just please him. And stop this talk about being someone else. Jane. Her name is Jane. It rhymes with pain. The music was growing more insistent. It is time. Wipe those tears from your eyes. Brown eyes. They should be grey. Someone will see. Someone will remember. Good. Now smile. The girl tried. Her lips, trembling, twitched up and froze. And he could see her teeth. Pretty white teeth, he thought. But if she angers him, they will not be pretty long. When he pushed the door open, three of the four candles fluttered out. He led the bride into the mist, where the wedding guests were waiting. Why me? he had asked, when Lady Dustin told him he must give the bride away. Her father is dead, and all her brothers. Her mother perished at the twins. Her uncles are lost or dead or captive. She has a brother still. Well, she has three brothers still, he might have said. Jon Snow is with the Night's Watch. A half-brother, bastard-born, and bound to the wall. You are her father's ward, the nearest thing she has to living kin. It is only fitting that you give her hand in marriage. The nearest thing she has to living kin. Theon Greyjoy had grown up with Arya Stark. Theon would have known an impostor. If he was seen to accept Bolton's feigned girl as Arya, the northern lords, who had gathered to bear witness to the match, would have no grounds to question her legitimacy. Stout and slate, Horsbane Umber, the quarrelsome Risewells, Hornwood men and Serwin cousins, fat Lord Wyman Mandley, not one of them had known Ned Stark's daughters half so well as he. And if a few entertained private doubts, surely they would be wise enough to keep those misgivings to themselves. They are using me to cloak their deception, put in mine own face on their lie. That's why Roose Bolton had clothed him as a lord again, to play his part in this mummer's farce. Once that was done, once their false aria had been wedded and bedded, Bolton would have no more use for Theon Turncloak. Serve us in this, and when Stannis is defeated, we will discuss how best to restore you to your father's seat his lordship had said in that soft voice of his, a voice made for lies and whispers. Theon never believed a word of it. He would dance his dance for them, because he had no choice, but afterward, 
He will give me back to Ramsay, then, he thought, and Ramsay will take a few more fingers and turn me into Reek once more. Unless the guards were good, and Stannis Baratheon descended on Winterfell and put all of them to the sword, himself included. That was the best he could hope for. It was warmer in the godswood, strange to say. Beyond its confines, a hard white frost gripped Winterfell. The paths were treacherous with black ice, and hoarfrost sparkled in the moonlight on the broken panes of the glass gardens. Drifts of dirty snow had piled up against the walls, filling every nook and corner. Some were so high they hid the doors behind them. Under the snow lay grey ash and cinders, and here and there a blackened beam or a pile of bones adorned with scraps of skin and hair. Icicles long as lances hung from the battlements, and fringed the towers like an old man's stiff white whiskers. But inside the guard's wood the ground remained unfrozen, and steam rose off the hot pools, as warm as baby's breath. The bride was garbed in white and grey, the colours the true Arya would have worn had she lived long enough to wed. Theon wore black and gold, his cloak pinned to his shoulder by a crude iron kraken that a smith in Barrington had hammered together for him. But under the hood his hair was white and thin, and his flesh had an old man's greyish undertone. A stark at last, he thought. Arm in arm the bride and he passed through an arched stone door, as wisps of fog stirred round their legs. The drum was tremulous as a maiden's heart, the pipes high and sweet and beckoning. Up above the treetops a crescent moon was floating in a dark sky, half obscured by mist, like an eye peering through a veil of silk. Theon Greyjoy was no stranger to this godswood. He had played here as a boy, skipping stones across the cold black pool beneath the weirwood, hiding his treasures in the bowl of an ancient oak, stalking squirrels with a bow he made himself. Later, older, he had soaked his bruises in the hot springs after many a session in the yard with Rob and Jory and Jon Snow. In amongst these chestnuts and elms and soldier pines, he had found secret places where he could hide when he wanted to be alone. The first time he had ever kissed a girl had been here. Later, a different girl had made a man of him upon a ragged quilt in the shade of that tall, grey-green sentinel. He'd never seen the god's wood like this, though, grey and ghostly, filled with warm mists and floating lights and whispered voices that seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere. Beneath the trees, the hot spring steamed. Warm vapours rose from the earth, shrouding the trees in their moist breath, creeping up the walls to draw grey curtains across the watching windows. There was a path of sorts, a meandering footpath of cracked stones overgrown with moss, half buried beneath blown dirt and fallen leaves, and made treacherous by thick brown roots pushing up from underneath. He led the bride along it, Jane. Her name is Jane. It rhymes with pain. He must not think that, though. Should that name pass his lips, it might cost him a finger or an ear. He walked slowly, watching every step, 
His missing toes made him hobble when he hurried, and it would not do to stumble. Ma Lord Ramsay's wedding with a misstep, and Lord Ramsay might rectify such clumsiness by flaying the offending foot. The mists were so thick that only the nearest trees were visible. Beyond them stood tall shadows and faint lights. Candles flickered beside the wandering path and back amongst the trees. Pale fireflies floating in a warm grey soup. It felt like some strange underworld, some timeless place between the worlds, where the damned wandered mournfully for a time before finding their way down to whatever hell their sins had earned them. Are we all dead, then? Did Stannis come and kill us in our sleep? Is the battle yet to come, or has it been fought and lost? Here and there, a torch burned hungrily, casting its ruddy glow over the faces of the wedding guests. The way the mist threw back the shifting light made their features seem bestial, half-human, twisted. Lord Stout became a mastiff, old Lord Locke a vulture, Horsebane Umber a gargoyle, Big Walder Frey a fox, Little Walder a red bull, lacking only a ring for his nose. Roose Bolton's own face was a pale grey mask, with two chips of dirty ice where his eyes should be. Above their heads the trees were full of ravens, their feathers fluffed as they hunched on bare brown branches, staring down at the pageantry below. Maester Lewin's birds! Lewin was dead, and his maester's tower had been put to the torch, yet the ravens lingered. This is their home! Theon wondered what that would be like to have a home. Then the mist parted, like the curtain opening at a mummer show to reveal some new tableau. The heart tree appeared in front of them, its bony limbs spread wide. Fallen leaves lay about the wide white trunk in drifts of red and brown. The ravens were the thickest here, muttering to one another in the murder's secret tongue. Ramsay Bolton stood beneath them, clad in high boots of soft grey leather and a black velvet doublet slashed with pink silk and glittering with garnet teardrops. A smile danced across his face. Who comes? His lips were moist, his neck red above his collar. Who comes before the god? Theon answered. Arya of House Stark comes here to be wed, a woman grown and flowered, true-born and noble. She comes to beg the blessings of the gods. Who comes to claim her? Me, said Ramsay. Ramsay of House Bolton, Lord of the Hornwood, heir to the Dreadfort, I claim her. Who gives her? Theon of House Greyjoy, who was her father's ward. He turned to the bride. Lady Arya, will you take this man? She raised her eyes to his. Brown eyes, not grey. Are all of them so blind? For a long moment she did not speak, but those eyes were begging. This is your chance, he thought. Tell them, tell them now. Shout out your name before them all. Tell them that you are not Arya Stark. Let all the North hear how you were made to play this part. It would mean her death, of course, and his own as well. But Ramsay in his wrath might kill them quickly. 
The old guards of the north might grant them that small boon. I take this man, the bride said in a whisper. All around them lights glimmered in the mist. A hundred candles, pale as shrouded stars. Theon stepped back away, and Ramsay and his bride joined hands and knelt before the heart tree, bowing their heads in token of submission. The weirwood's carved red eyes stared down at them, its great red mouth open as if to laugh. In the branches overhead, a raven quacked. After a moment of silent prayer, the man and woman rose again. Ramsay undid the cloak that Theon had slipped about his bride's shoulders moments before, the heavy white wool cloak bordered in grey fur, emblazoned with a direwolf of House Stark. In his place, he fastened a pink cloak, spattered with red garnets, like those upon his doublet. On his back was the flayed man of the Dreadfort, done in stiff red leather, grim and grisly. Quick as that, it was done. Weddings went more quickly in the north. It came of not having priests, Theon supposed, but whatever the reason, it seemed to him a mercy. Ramsay Bolton scooped his wife up in his arms and strode through the mists with her. Lord Bolton and his Lady Walder followed, then the rest. The musicians began to play again, and the bard Abel began to sing Two Hearts That Beat As One. Two of his women joined their voices to his own to make a sweet harmony. Theon found himself wondering if he should say a prayer. Will the old gods hear me, if I do? They were not his gods, had never been his gods. He was Ironborn, a son of Pike. His god was the drowned god of the islands. But Winterfell was long leagues from the sea. It had been a lifetime since any god had heard him. He did not know who he was or what he was, why he was still alive, why he had ever been born. Theon, a voice seemed to whisper. His head snapped up. Who said that? All he could see were the trees and the fog that covered them. The voice had been as faint as rustling leaves, as cold as hate. A god's voice or a ghost's? How many died the day he took Winterfell? How many more the day he lost it? The day that Theon Greyjoy died, to be reborn as Reek. Reek, Reek, it rhymes with a shriek. Suddenly, he did not want to be here. Once outside the godswood, the cold descended on him like a ravening wolf and caught him in its teeth. He lowered his head into the wind and made for the great hall, hastening after the long line of candles and torches. Ice crunched beneath his boots, and a sudden gust pushed back his hood, as if a ghost had plucked at him with frozen fingers, hungry to gaze upon his face. Winterfell was full of ghosts for Theon Greyjoy. This was not the castle he remembered from the summer of his youth. This place was scarred and broken, more ruined than redoubt, a haunt of crows and corpses. The great double curtain wall still stood, for granite does not yield easily to fire, but most of the towers and keeps within were roofless. A few had collapsed. The thatch and timber had been consumed by fire, in whole or in part, and under the shattered panes of the glass garden 
the fruits and vegetables that would have fed the castle during the winter were dead and black and frozen. Tents filled the yard, half buried in the snow. Roose Bolton had brought his host inside the walls, along with his friends the Freys. Thousands huddled amongst the ruins, crowding every court, sleeping in cellar vaults and under topless towers, and in buildings abandoned for centuries. Plumes of grey smoke snaked up from the rebuilt kitchens and re-roofed barracks keep. The battlements and crenellations were crowned with snow and hung with icicles. All the colour had been leached from Winterfell, until only grey and white remained. A stark colours. Theon did not know whether he ought to find that ominous or reassuring. Even the sky was grey. Grey and grey and greyer. The whole world grey. Everywhere you look. Everything grey, except the eyes of the bride. The eyes of the bride were brown. Big and brown and full of fear. It was not right that she should look to him for rescue. What had she been thinking? That he would whistle up a winged horse and fly her out of here, like some hero in the stories she and Sansa used to love? He could not even help himself. Reek, reek, it rhymes with meek. All about the yard, dead men hung, half-frozen, at the end of hempen ropes, swollen faces white with hoarfrost. Winterfell had been crawling with squatters when Bolton's van had reached the castle. More than two dozen had been driven at spearpoint from the nests they had made amongst the castle's half-ruined keeps and towers. The boldest and most truculent had been hanged. The rest put to work. Serve well, Lord Bolton told them, and he would be merciful. Stone and timber were plentiful, with a wolf's wood so close at hand. Stout new gates had gone up first, to replace those that had been burned. Then the collapsed roof of the great hall had been cleared away, and a new one raised hurriedly in its stead. When the work was done, Lord Bolton hanged the workers. True to his word, he showed them mercy, and did not flay a one. By that time, the rest of Bolton's army had arrived. They raised King Tommen's stag and lion above the walls of Winterfell, as the wind came howling from the north, and below it the flayed man of the dreadfort. Theon arrived in Barbary Dustin's train, with her ladyship herself, her baritone levies, and the bride-to-be. Lady Dustin had insisted that she should have custody of Lady Arya until such time as she was wed, but now that time was done. She belongs to Ramsay now. She said the words. By this marriage, Ramsay would be Lord of Winterville, so long as Jane took care not to anger him. He should have no cause to harm her. Arya. Her name is Arya. Even inside fur-lined gloves, Theon's hands had begun to throb with pain. It was often his hands that hurt the worst, especially his missing fingers. Had there truly been a time when women yearned for his touch? I made myself the Prince of Winterfell, he thought, and from that came all of this. He had thought that men would sing of him for a hundred years and tell tales of his daring, but if anyone spoke of him now, it was as Theon Turncloak, and the tales they told were of his treachery 
This was never my home. I was a hostage here. Lord Stark had not treated him cruelly, but the long steel shadow of his great sword had always been between them. He was kind to me, but never warm. He knew that one day he might need to put me to death. Theon kept his eyes downcast as he crossed the yard, weaving between the tents. I learned to fight in this yard, he thought, remembering warm summer days spent sparring with Rob and Jon Snow under the watchful eyes of old Sir Roderick. That was back when he was whole, when he could grasp a sword hilt as well as any man. But the yard held darker memories as well. This was where he had assembled Stark's people the night Bran and Rickon fled the castle. Ramsay was weak then, standing at his side, whispering that he should flay a few of his captives to make them tell him where the boys had gone. There will be no flaying here whilst I am Prince of Winterfell. Theon had responded, little dreaming how short his rule would prove. None of them would help me. I'd known them all for half my life, and not one of them would help me. Even so, he had done his best to protect them. But once Ramsay put Reek's face aside, he'd slain all the men, and Theon's Arnborn as well. He set my horse afire. That was the last sight he had seen the day the castle fell. Smiler burning, the flames leaping from his mane as he reared up, kicking, screaming, his eyes white with terror. Here, in this very yard. The doors of the great hall loomed up in front of him, new made, to replace the doors that burned. They seemed crude and ugly to him, raw planks hastily joined. A pair of spearmen guarded them, hunched and shivering under thick fur cloaks, their beards crusty with ice. They eyed Theon resentfully, as he hobbled up the steps, pushed against the right-hand door, and slipped inside. The hall was blessedly warm and bright with torchlight, as crowded as he'd ever seen it. Theon let the heat wash over him, then made his way toward the front of the hall. Men sat crammed knee to knee along the benches, so tightly packed that the servers had to squirm between them. Even the knights and lords above the salt enjoyed less space than usual. Up near the dais, Abel was plucking at his lute and singing Fair Maids of Summer. He calls himself a bard. In truth, he's more a panda. Lord Manderley had brought musicians from White Harbour, but none were singers. So when Abel turned up at the gates with a lute and six women, he had been made welcome. Two sisters, two daughters, a wife, and my old mother, the singer claimed though not one looked like him. Some dance, some sing, one plays the pipe, and one the drums. Good washerwomen, too. Bard or panda, Abel's voice was passable, his playing fair. Here amongst the ruins, that was as much as anyone might expect. Along the walls the banners hung, the horse heads of the Risewells in gold, brown, grey and black, the roaring giant of House Umber, the stone hand of House Flint of Flint's finger, the moose of Hornwood, and the merman of Manderley, Serwin's black battle-axe, and the tall heart pines. Yet their bright colours 
could not entirely cover the blackened walls behind them, nor the boards that closed the holes where windows once had been. Even the roof was wrong, its raw new timbers light and bright, where the old rafters had been stained almost black by centuries of smoke. The largest banners were behind the dais, where the direwolf of Winterfell and the flayed man of the Dreadfort hung back of the bride and groom. The sight of the Stark banner hit Theon harder than he had expected. Wrong! It's wrong! As wrong as her eyes! The arms of House Pool were a blue plate on white, framed by a grey treasure. Those were the arms they should have hung. Theon Turncloak, someone said as he passed. Other men turned away at the sight of him, one spat. And why not? He was a traitor who had taken Winterfell by treachery, slain his foster brothers, delivered his own people to be flayed at Moat Kaelin, and given his foster sister to Lord Ramsay's bed. Bruce Bolton might make use of him, but true Northmen must despise him. The missing toes on his left foot had left him with a crabbed, awkward gait, comical to look upon. Back behind him he heard a woman laugh. Even here, in this half-frozen lichyard of a castle, surrounded by snow and ice and death, there were women. Washerwomen. That was a polite way of saying, Camp follower, which was the polite way of saying, Whore. Where they came from, Theon could not say. They just seemed to appear, like maggots on a corpse, or ravens after a battle. Every army drew them. Some were hardened whores, who could fuck twenty men in a night and drink them all blind. Others looked as innocent as maids, but that was just a trick of their trade. Some were camp brides, bound to the soldiers they followed with words whispered to one guard or another, but doomed to be forgotten once the war was done. They would warm a man's bed by night, patch the holes in his boots at morning, cook his supper come dusk, and loot his corpse after the battle. Some even did a bit of washing. With them, oft as not, came bastard children, wretched, filthy creatures born in one camp or the other. And even such as these made muck of Theon Turncloak. Let them laugh. His pride had perished here in Winterfell. There was no place for such in the dungeons of the Dreadfort. When you have known the kiss of a flaying knife, a laugh loses all its power to hurt you. Birth and blood accorded him a seat upon the dais at the end of the high table beside a wall. To his left sat Lady Dustin, clad as ever in black wool, severe in cut and unadorned. To his right sat no one. They were all afraid that his honour might rub off on them. If he had dared, he would have laughed. The bride had the place of highest honour between Ramsay and his father. She sat with eyes downcast as Ruth Bolton bid them drink to Lady Arya. In her children our two ancient houses will become as one, he said, and the long enmity between Stark and Bolton will be ended. His voice was so soft that the hall grew hushed as men strained to hear. I am sorry that our good friend, Stannis, 
has not seen fit to join us yet, he went on to a ripple of laughter, as I know Ramsay had hoped to present his head to Lady Aria as a wedding gift. The laughs grew louder. We shall give him a splendid welcome when he arrives, a welcome worthy of true Northmen. Until that day, let us eat and drink and make merry. For winter is almost upon us, my friends, and many of us here shall not live to see the spring. The Lord of White Harbour had furnished the food and drink, black stout and yellow beer, and wines red and gold and purple, brought up from the warm south on fat bottom ships and aged in his deep cellars. The wedding guests gorged on cod cakes and winter squash, hills of neeps and great round wheels of cheese, on smoking slabs of mutton and beef ribs, charred almost black, and lastly, on three great wedding pies, wide across as wagon wheels, their flaky crusts stuffed to bursting with carrots, onions, turnips, parsnips, mushrooms, and chunks of seasoned pork swimming in a savory brown gravy. Ramsay hacked off slices with his falchion, and Wyman Manderley himself served, presenting the first steaming portions to Roose Bolton and his fat fray wife the next to Sir Hostein and Sir Anus, the sons of Walter Frey. "'The best pie you've ever tasted, my lords,' the fat lord declared. "'Wash it down with arbor gold and savor every bite. I know I shall.' True to his word, Mandalay devoured six portions, two from each of the three pies, smacking his lips and slapping his belly and stuffing himself until the front of his tunic was half brown with gravy stains and his beard was flecked with crumbs of crust. Even fat Walder Frey could not match his gluttony, though she did manage three slices herself. Ramsay ate heartily as well, though his pale bride did no more than stare at the portion set before her. When she raised her head and looked at Theon, he could see the fear behind her big brown eyes. No longswords had been allowed within the hall, but every man there wore a dagger, even Theon Greyjoy. How else to cut his meat? Every time he looked at the girl who had been Jane Poole, he felt the presence of that steel at his side. I've no way to save her, he thought. But I could kill her easy enough. No one would expect it. I could beg her for the honour of a dance and cut her throat. That would be a kindness, wouldn't it? And if the old guards hear my prayer, Ramsay, in his wrath, might strike me dead as well. Theon was not afraid to die. Underneath the dread fort, he'd learned that there were far worse things than death. Ramsay had taught him that lesson, finger by finger, and toe by toe, and it was not one that he was ever like to forget. "'You do not eat,' observed Lady Dustin. "'No.' Eating was hard for him. Ramsay had left him with so many broken teeth that chewing was an agony. Drinking was easier, though he had to grasp the wine cup with both hands to keep from dropping it. "'No taste for pork pie, my lord.' The best pork pie we ever tasted, our fat friend, would have us believe, she gestured towards Lord Mandley with her wine cup. 
Have you ever seen a fat man so happy? He's almost dancing, serving with his own hands. It was true, the Lord of White Harbour was a very picture of the jolly fat man, laughing and smiling, japing with the other lords and slapping them on the back, calling out to the musicians for this tune or that tune, Give us the night that ended, singer, he bellowed. The bride will like that one, I know. Or sing to us of brave young Danny Flint and make a sweep. To look at him, you would have thought that he was the one newly wed. He's drunk, said Theon, drowning his fears. He's craven to the bone, that one. Was he? Theon was not certain. His sons had been fat as well, but they had not shamed themselves in battle. Ironborn will feast before a battle too. A last taste of life should death await. If Stannis comes, he will. <laughs> he must. <laughs> Lady Dustin chuckled. And when he does, the fat man will piss himself. His son died at the Red Wedding, yet he shared his bread and salt with Freys, welcomed them beneath his roof, promised one his granddaughter. He even serves them pie. The Mandalays ran from the south once, hounded from their lands and keeps by enemies. Blood runs true. The fat man would like to kill us all. I do not doubt, but he does not have the belly for it, for all his girth. Under that sweaty flesh beats a heart as craven and cringing as, well, yours. Her last word was a lash but Theon dared not answer back in kind. Any insolence would cost him skin. If my lady believes Lord Manderley wants to betray us, Lord Bolton is the one to tell. You think Roos does not know, silly boy? Watch him. Watch how he watches Manderley. No dish so much as touches Roos's lips until he sees Lord Wyman eat of it first. No cup of wine is sipped until he sees Manderley drink of the same cask. I think he would be pleased if the fat man attempted some betrayal. It would amuse him. Roos has no feelings, you see. Those leeches that he loved so well sucked all the passions out of him years ago. He does not love. He does not hate. He does not grieve. This is a game to him. Mildly diverting. Some men hunt, some hawk, some tumble dice. Roos plays with men. You and me, these frays, Lord Manderley, his plump new wife, even his bastard. We are but his playthings. A serving man was passing by. Lady Dustin held out her wine cup and let him fill it, then gestured for him to do the same for Theon. Truth be told, she said, Lord Bolton aspires to more than mere lordship. Why not King of the North? Tywin Lannister is dead, the Kingslayer is maimed, the imp is fled. The Lannisters are a spent force, and you were kind enough to rid him of the Starks. Old Walder Frey will not object to his fat little Walder becoming a queen. White Harbour might prove troublesome, should Lord Wyman survive this coming battle, but I am quite sure that he will not. No more than Stannis, 
Roos will remove Bertham as he removed the young wolf. Who else is there? You, said Theon. There is you, the lady of Barriton, a Dustin by marriage, a Risewell by birth. That pleased her. She took a sip of wine, her dark eyes sparkling, and said, The widow of Barriton, and yes, if I so choose, I could be an inconvenience. Of course, Ruth sees that too, so he takes care to keep me sweet. She might have said more, but then she saw the maesters. Three of them had entered together by the Lord's door behind the dais, one tall, one plump, one very young. But in their robes and chains, they were three grey peas from a black pod. Before the war, Medrick had served Lord Hornwood, Rodri, Lord Serwin, and young Henley, Lord Slate. Roose Bolton had brought them all to Winterfell to take charge of Lewin's ravens, so messages might be sent and received from here again. As Maester Medrick went to one knee to whisper in Bolton's ear, Lady Dustin's mouth twisted in distaste. If I were a queen, the first thing I would do would be to kill all those grey rats. They scurry everywhere, living on the leavings of the lords, chittering to one another, whispering in the ears of their masters. But who are the masters, and who are the servants, truly? Every great lord has his master. Every lesser lord aspires to one. If you do not have a maester, it is taken to mean that you are of little consequence. The grey rats read and write our letters, even for such lords as cannot read themselves. And who can say for a certainty that they are not twisting the words for their own ends? Hmm? What good are they? I ask you. They heal, said Theon. It seemed to be expected of him. They heal, yes. I never said they were not subtle. They tend to us when we are sick and injured or distraught over the illness of a parent or a child. Whenever we are weakest and most vulnerable, there they are. Sometimes they heal us and we are duly grateful. When they fail, they console us in our grief and we are grateful for that as well. Out of gratitude, we give them a place beneath our roof and make them privy to all our shames and secrets, a part of every council. And before too long, the ruler has become the ruled. That was how it was with Lord Rickard Stark. Maester Wallace was his grey rat's name. And isn't it clever how the maesters go by only one name? Even those who had two when they first arrived at the Citadel. That way we cannot know who they truly are or where they come from. But if you are dogged enough, you can still find out. Before he forged his chain, Maester Wallace had been known as Wallace Flowers. Flowers, hill, rivers, snow, we give such names to baseborn children to mark them for what they are. But they are always quick to shed them. Wallace Flowers had a high-tower girl for a mother and an archmaster of the Citadel for a father, it was rumoured. The grey rats are not as chaste as they would have us believe. Old-town maesters are the worst of all. 
Once he forged his chain, his secret father and his friends wasted no time dispatching him to Winterfell to fill Lord Rickard's ears with poisoned words as sweet as honey. The Tully marriage was his notion. Never doubted he— She broke off as Roose Bolton rose to his feet, pale eyes shining in the torchlight. My friends, he began, and a hush swept through the hall, so profound that Theon could hear the wind plucking at the boards over the windows. Stannis and his knights have left Deepwood Mott, flying the banner of his new red god. The cans of the northern hills come with him on their shaggy, runtish horses. If the weather holds, they could be on us in a fortnight, and crow food umber marches down the king's road, whilst the Carstarks approach from the east. They mean to join with Lord Stannis here, and take this castle from us. Sir Hustine Frey pushed to his feet. We should ride forth to meet them. Why allow them to combine their strength? Because Arnulf Carstark awaits only a sign from Lord Bolton before he turns his cloak, thought Theon, as the other lords began to shout out counsel. Lord Bolton raised his hands for silence. The hall is not the place for such discussions, my lords. Let us adjourn to the solar, whilst my son consummates his marriage. The rest of you remain and enjoy the food and drink. As the lord of the Dreadfort slipped out, attended by the three maesters, other lords and captains rose to follow. Hutha Umber, the gaunt old man called Horsbane, went grim-faced and scowling. Lord Mandley was so drunk, he required four strong men to help him from the hall. "'We should have a song about the rat cook,' he was muttering, as they staggered past Theon, leaning on his knights. "'Singer, give us a song about the rat cook!' Lady Dustin was amongst the last to bestir herself. When she had gone, all at once the hall seemed stifling. It was not until Theon pushed himself to his feet that he realized how much he'd drunk. When he stumbled from the table, he knocked a flagon from the hands of a serving girl. Wine splashed across his boots and breeches, a dark red tide. A hand grabbed his shoulder. Five fingers, hard as iron, digging deep into his flesh. "'You're wanted, Reek,' said Sir Alan, his breath foul with the smell from his rotten teeth. Yellowdick and Damon Dance for me were with him. "'Ramsay says you're to bring his bride to his bed.' A shiver of fear went through him. "'I played my part,' he thought. "'Why me?' He knew better than to object, though. Lord Ramsay had already left the hall. His bride, forlorn and seemingly forgotten, sat hunched and silent beneath the banner of House Stark, clutching a silver goblet in both hands. Judging from the way she looked at him when he approached, she had emptied that goblet more than once. Perhaps she hoped that if she drank enough, the ordeal would pass her by. Theon knew better. "'Lady Arya,' he said, "'come.' It's time you did your duty. Six of the bastard's boys accompanied them as Theon led the girl out of the back of the hall and across the frigid yard.
to the great keep. It was up three flights of stone steps to Lord Ramsay's bedchamber, one of the rooms the fires had touched but lightly. As they climbed, Damon Dunsamy whistled, while Skinner boasted that Lord Ramsay had promised him a piece of the bloody sheet as a mark of special favour. The bedchamber had been well prepared for the consummation. All the furnishings were new, brought up from Barreton in the baggage train. The canopy bed had a feather mattress and drapes of blood-red velvet. The stone floor was covered with wolf skins. A fire was burning in the hearth, a candle on the bedside table. On the sideboard was a flagon of wine, two cups, and a half-wheel of veined white cheese. There was a chair as well, carved of black oak with a red leather seat. Lord Ramsay was seated in it when they entered. Spittle glistened on his lips. "'There's my sweet maid. Good lads. You may leave us now. Not you, Reek. You stay. Reek. Reek. It rhymes with peak.' He could feel his missing fingers cramping, two on his left hand, one on his right and on his hip his dagger rested, sleeping in its leather sheath, but heavy, oh, so heavy. It is only my pinky gone on my right hand, Theon reminded himself, I can still grip a knife. My lord, how may I serve you? You gave the wench to me. Who better to unwrap the gift? Let's have a look at Ned Stark's little daughter. She is no kin to Lord Eddard, Theon almost said. Ramsay knows. He has to know. What new cruel game is this? The girl was standing by a bedpost, trembling like a doe. Lady Arya, if you will turn your back, I must needs unlace your gown. No. Lord Ramsay poured himself a cup of wine. Laces take too long. Cut it off her. Theon drew the dagger. All I need to do is turn and stab him. The knife is in my hand. He knew the game by then. Another trap, he told himself, remembering Kyra with her keys. He wants me to try and kill him. And when I fail, he'll flay the skin from the hand I used to hold the blade. He grabbed a handful of the bride's skirt. Stand still, my lady. The gown was loose below the waist. So that was where he slid the blade in, slicing upward slowly, so as not to cut her. Steel whispered through wool and silk with a faint, soft sound. The girl was shaking. Theon had to grab her arm to hold her still. Jane! Jane! It rhymes with pain! He tightened his grip as much as his maimed left hand would allow. Stay still! Finally the gown fell away a pale tangle round her feet. Her small clothes, too, Ramsay commanded. Reek obeyed. When it was done, the bride stood naked, her bridal finery a heap of white and grey rags about her feet. Her breasts were small and pointed, her hips narrow and girlish, her legs as skinny as a bird's. A child! Theon had forgotten how young she was, Sansa's age. Arya would be even younger. Despite the fire in the hearth, 
the bedchamber was chilly. Jane's pale skin was pebbled with goose prickles. There was a moment when her hands rose, as if she was about to cover her breasts, but Theon mouthed a silent, No! And she saw, and stopped at once. What do you think of her, Reek? asked Lord Ramsay. She, um, what answer does he want? What was it the girl had said before the gods would? They all said that I was pretty. She was not pretty now. He could see a spider web of faint, thin lines across her back where someone had whipped her. She is beautiful, so, so beautiful. Ramsay smiled his wet smile. Does she make your cock hard, Reek? Is it straining against your laces? Would you like to fuck her first? He laughed. The Prince of Winterfell should have that right, as all lords did in days of old. The first night. But you're no lord, are you? <laughs> Only Reek. Not even a man, truth be told. He took another gulp of wine, then threw the cup across the room to shatter off a wall. Red rivers ran down across the stone. Lady Arya, get on the bed. Yes, against the pillows. That's a good wife. Now spread your legs and let us see your cunt. The girl obeyed, wordless. Theon took a step back toward the door. Lord Ramsay sat beside his bride, slid his hand along her inner thigh, then jammed two fingers up inside her. The girl let out a gasp of pain. You're dry as an old bone. Ramsay pulled his hand free and slapped her face. I was told that you'd know how to please a man. Was that a lie? N no, my lord, I was tra trained. Ramsay rose, the firelight shining on his face. Reek, get over here. Get her ready for me. For a moment he did not understand. Oh, I... Do you mean, my lord, I have no... I... With your mouth, Lord Ramsay said, and be quick about it. If she is not wet by the time I have done disrobing, I will cut off that tongue of yours and nail it to the wall. Somewhere in the god's wood, a raven screamed. The dagger was still in his hand. He sheathed it. Reek. My name is Reek. It rhymes with weak. Reek bent to his task. The Watcher Let us look upon this head, his prince commanded. Ariahotar ran his hand along the smooth shaft of his long axe, his ash and iron wife, all the while watching. He watched the white knight, Sir Balon Swan and the others who had come with him. He watched the sand snakes, each at a different table. He watched the lords and ladies, the serving men, the old blind seneschal, and the young maester, Miles, with his silky beard and servile smile. Standing half in light and half in shadow, he saw all of them. Serve, protect, obey. That was his task. All the rest had eyes only for the chest. It was carved of ebony, with silver clasps and hinges. A fine-looking box, no doubt, 
but many of those assembled here in the old palace of Sunspear might soon be dead, depending on what was in that chest. His slippers whispering against the floor, Maester Calliot crossed the hall to Sir Balan Swan. The round little man looked splendid in his new robes, with their broad bands of dun and butternut and narrow stripes of red. Bowing, he took the chest from the hands of the white knight and carried it to the dais, where Doran Martell sat in his rolling chair between his daughter Ariane and his dead brother's beloved paramour, Elaria. A hundred scented candles perfumed the air. Gemstones glittered on the fingers of the lords and the girdles and hairnets of the ladies. Arya Hota had polished his shirt of copper scales mirror-bright, so he would blaze in the candlelight as well. A hush had fallen across the hall. Dawn holds its breath. Maester Calliot set the box on the floor beside Prince Doran's chair. The maester's fingers, normally so sure and deft, turned clumsy as he worked the latch and opened the lid to reveal the skull within. Hotar heard someone clear his throat. One of the Fowler twins whispered something to the other. Ilaria Sand had closed her eyes and was murmuring a prayer. Sir Balan Swan was taut as a drawn bow, the captain of guards observed. This new white knight was not so tall nor comely as the old one, but he was bigger across the chest, burlier, his arms thick with muscle. His snowy cloak was clasped at the throat by two swans on a silver brooch. One was ivory, the other onyx, and it seemed to Arya Hota as if the two of them were fighting. The man who wore them looked a fighter too. This one will not die so easy as the other. He will not charge into my axe the way Sir Ares did. He will stand behind his shield and make me come at him. If it came to that, Hota would be ready. His long axe was sharp enough to shave with. He allowed himself a brief glance at the chest. The skull rested on a bed of black felt, grinning. All skulls grinned, but this one seemed happier than most. And bigger. The captain of guards had never seen a larger skull. Its brow shelf was thick and heavy, its jaw massive. The bone shone in the candlelight, white as Sir Balan's cloak. Place it on the pedestal, the prince commanded. He had tears glistening in his eyes. The pedestal was a column of black marble, three feet taller than Maester Calliot. The fat little maester hopped up on his toes, but still could not quite reach. Arya Hota was about to go and help him, but Obara Sand moved first. Even without her whip and shield, she had an angry, mannish look to her. In place of a gown, she wore men's breeches and a calf-length linen tunic, cinched at the waist with a belt of copper suns. Her brown hair was tied back in a knot. Snatching the skull from the maester's soft pink hands, she placed it up atop the marble column. "'The mountain rides no more,' the prince said gravely. "'Was his dying long and hard, Sir Balin?' asked Tyne Sand, in the tone a maiden might use to ask if her gown was pretty. 
He screamed for days, my lady, the white knight replied, though it was plain that it pleased him little to say so. We could hear him all over the red keep. Does that trouble you, sir? asked the lady Nim. She wore a gown of yellow silk, so sheer and fine that the candles shone right through it to reveal the spun gold and jewels beneath. So immodest was her garb that the white knight seemed uncomfortable looking at her, but Hotar approved. Nymeria was least dangerous when nearly naked. Elsewise she was sure to have a dozen blades concealed about her person. Sir Gregor was a bloody brute. All men agree. If every man deserved to suffer, it was him. That is as it may be, my lady, said Balan Swan. But Sir Gregor was a knight, and a knight should die with sword in hand. Poison is a foul and filthy way to kill. Lady Tyene smiled at that. Her gown was cream and green, with long lace sleeves so modest and so innocent that any man who looked at her might think her the most chaste of maids. Arya Hotar knew better. Her soft pale hands were as deadly as Obara's calloused ones, if not more so. He watched her carefully, alert to every little flutter of her fingers. Prince Doran frowned. That is so, Sir Balin, but the Lady Nim is right. If ever a man deserved to die screaming, it was Gregor Clegane. He butchered my good sister, smashed her babe's head against a wall. I only pray that now he is burning in some hell, and that Elia and her children are at peace. This is the justice that dawn has hungered for. I am glad that I live long enough to taste it. At long last, the Lannisters have proved the truth of their boast and paid this old blood debt. The prince left her to Ricasso, his blind seneschal, to rise and propose the toast. Lords and ladies, let us now drink to Tommen, the first of his name, king of the Andals, the Ronar, and the first men, and lord of the seven kingdoms. Serving men had begun to move amongst the guests as the seneschal was speaking, filling cups from the flagons that they bore. The wine was Dornish strong wine, dark as blood and sweet as vengeance. The captain did not drink of it. He never drank at feasts, nor did the prince himself partake. He had his own wine, prepared by Maester Miles, and well laced with puppy juice to ease the agony in his swollen joints. The white knight did drink, as was only courteous, his companions likewise. So did the princess Ariane, Lady Jourdain, the lord of God's grace, the knight of Lemonwood, the lady of Ghost Hill, even Hilaria Sand, Prince Oberon's beloved paramour, who had been with him in King's Landing when he died. Hotar paid more note to those who did not drink, Sir Damon Sand, Lord Tremond Gargallon, the Fowler twins, Dagus Manwoody, the Ollers of the Hellholt, the Wills of the Boneway. If there is trouble, it could start with one of them. Dawn was an angry and divided land, and Prince Doran's hold on it was not as firm as it might be. Many of his own lords thought him weak 
and would have welcomed open war with the Lannisters and the boy king on the Iron Throne. Chief amongst those were the Sand Snakes, the bastard daughters of the prince's late brother Oberyn, the Red Viper, three of whom had been at the feast. Doran Martell was the wisest of princes, and it was not the place of his captain of guards to question his decisions. But Arya Hotar did wonder why he had chosen to release the ladies Obara, Nemeria, and Tyene from their lonely cells in the Spear Tower. Tyene declined Ricasso's toast with a murmur, and Lady Nim with a flick of a hand. Obara let them fill her cup to the brim, then upended it to spill the red wine on the floor. When a serving girl knelt to wipe up the spilled wine, Obara left the hall. After a moment, Princess Ariane excused herself and went after her. Obara would never turn her rage on the little princess, Hotar knew. They are cousins, and she loves her well. The feast continued late into the night, presided over by the grinning skull on its pillar of black marble. Seven courses were served, in honour of the seven guards and the seven brothers of the king's god. The soup was made with eggs and lemons, the long green peppers stuffed with cheese and onions. There were lamprey pies, capons glazed with honey, a whisker fish from the bottom of the green blood that was so big it took four serving men to carry it to table. After that came a savoury snake stew, chunks of seven different sorts of snake, slow-simmered with dragon peppers and blood oranges and a dash of venom to give it a good bite. The stew was fiery hot, Hotar knew, though he tasted none of it. Sherbet followed to cool the tongue. For the sweet, each guest was served a skull of spun sugar. When the crust was broken, they found sweet custard inside and bits of plum and cherry. Princess Ariane returned in time for the stuffed peppers. My little princess, Hotar thought. But Ariane was a woman now. The scarlet silks she wore left no doubt of that. Of late she had changed in other ways as well. Her plot to crown Mycella had been betrayed and smashed. Her white knight had perished bloodily at Hotar's hand, and she herself had been confined to the spear tower condemned to solitude and silence. All of that had chastened her. There was something else as well, though, some secret. Her father had confided in her before releasing her from her confinement. What that was, the captain did not know. The prince had placed his daughter between himself and the white knight, a place of high honour. Ariane smiled, as she slipped into her seat again and murmured something in Sir Balan's ear. The knight did not choose to respond. He ate little, Hotar observed. A spoon of soup, a bite of the pepper, the leg of a capon, some fish. He shunned the lamprey pie and tried only one small spoonful of the stew. Even that made his brow break out in sweat. Hotar could sympathize. When first he came to dawn, the fiery food would tie his bowels in nuts and burn his tongue. That was years ago, however. Now his hair was white, and he could eat anything a Dornish man could. 
When the sponge-sugar skulls were served, Sir Balan's mouth grew tight, and he gave the prince a lingering look to see if he was being mocked. Doran Martell took no notice, but his daughter did. "'It is the cook's little jeep, Sir Balan,' said Ariane. "'Even death is not sacred to a Dornishman. "'You won't be cross with us, I pray.' She brushed the back of the white knight's hand with her fingers. "'I hope you have enjoyed your time in Dorne.' "'Everyone has been most hospitable, milady.' Ariane touched the pin that clasped his cloak with its quarrelling swans. "'I have always been fond of swans. No other bird is half so beautiful this side of the Summer Isles.' "'Your peacocks might dispute that,' said Sir Balan. "'They might,' said Ariane. "'But peacocks are vain, proud creatures, strutting about in all those gaudy colours. Give me a swan serene in white.' or beautiful in black. Sir Balan gave a nod and sipped his wine. This one is not so easily seduced as was his sworn brother, Hotar thought. Sir Eris was a boy despite his years. This one is a man and weary. The captain had only to look at him to see that the white knight was ill at ease. This place is strange to him and a little to his liking. Hotar could understand that. Dawn had seemed a queer place to him as well, when first he came here with his own princess many years ago. The bearded priests had drilled him in the common speech of Westeros before they sent him forth, but the Dornish men all spoke too quickly for him to understand. Dornish women were lewd, Dornish wine was sour, and Dornish food was full of queer, hot spices. And the Dornish sun was hotter than the pale one sun of Norvas, glaring down from a blue sky day after day. Sir Balin's journey had been shorter, but travelling in its own way, the captain knew. Three knights, eight squires, twenty men at arms, and sundry grooms and servants had accompanied him from King's Landing, but once they had crossed the mountains into dawn, their progress had been slowed by a round of feasts, hunts, and celebrations at every castle they had chanced to pass. And now that they had reached Sunspear, neither Princess Marcella nor Sir Eris Oakheart was on hand to greet them. The White Knight knows that something is amiss, Hotar could tell. But it is more than that. Perhaps the presence of the Sand Snakes unnerved him. If so, Obara's return to the hall must have been vinegar in the wound. She slipped back into her place without a word, and sat there sullen and scowling, neither smiling nor speaking. Midnight was close at hand when Prince Doran turned to the white knight and said, Sir Balan, I have read the letter that you brought me from our gracious queen. Might I assume that you are familiar with its contents, sir? Hotar saw the knight tense. I am, my lord. Her grace informed me that I might be called upon to escort her daughter back to King's Landing. King Tommen has been pining for his sister, and would like Princess Macella to return to court for a short visit. Princess Ariane made a sad face. Oh, but we have all grown so fond of Macella, sir. 
she and my brother, Tristane, have become inseparable. Prince Tristane would be welcoming King's Landing as well, said Balon Swan. King Tommen would wish to meet him, I am sure. His grace has so few companions near his own age. The bonds formed in boyhood can last a man for life, said Prince Doran. When Tristane and Marcella are wed, he and Tommen will be as brothers. Queen Cersei has the right of it. The boys should meet, become friends. Dawn will miss him, to be sure. But it is past time Tristine saw something of the world beyond the walls of Sonspear. I know King's Landing will welcome him most warmly. Why is he sweating now? The captain wondered, watching. The hall is cool enough, but he never touched the stew. As for the other matter that Queen Cersei raises, Prince Doran was saying, it is true Dawn's seat upon the small council has been vacant since my brother's death, and it has passed time that it was filled again. I am flattered that her grace fills my council might be of use to her, though I wonder if I have the strength for such a journey. Perhaps if we went by sea, by ship, Sir Balin seemed taken aback. That, um, would that be safe, my prince? Autumn is a bad season for storms, or so I've heard, and uh, the, the pirates in the stepstones, they, um, the pirates, <laughs> to be sure, you may be right, sir, safer to return the way you came. Prince Doran smiled pleasantly. Let us talk again on the morrow. When we reach the water gardens, we can tell Marcella. I know how excited she will be. She misses her brother, too, I do not doubt. I am eager to see her once again, said Sir Balin, and to visit your water gardens. I've heard they are very beautiful. Beautiful and peaceful, the prince said. Cool breezes, sparkling water, and the laughter of children. The water gardens are my favorite place in this world, sir. One of my ancestors had them built to please his Targaryen bride and free her from the dust and heat of Sunspear. Daenerys was her name. She was sister to King Daron the Good, and it was her marriage that made Dawn part of the Seven Kingdoms. The whole realm knew that the girl loved Daron's bastard brother, Daemon Blackfire, and was loved by him in turn. But the king was wise enough to see that the good of thousands must come before the desires of two, even if those two were dear to him. It was Daenerys who filled the gardens with laughing children, her own children at the start, but later the sons and daughters of lords and landed knights were brought in to be companions to the boys and girls of princely blood. And one summer's day, when it was scorching hot, she took pity on the children of her grooms and cooks and serving men and invited them to use the pools and fountains too, a tradition that has endured to this day. The prince grasped the wheels of his chair and pushed himself from the table. But now you must excuse me, sir. All this talk has wearied me, and we should leave at break of day. Obara, would you be so kind as to help me to my bed? Nymeria, Tyene, come as well. 
and bid your old uncle a fun good night. So it fell to Obarasan to roll the prince's chair from Sunspear's feast hall and down a long gallery to his solar. Arihotta followed with her sisters, along with Princess Ariane and Ilaria Sand. Maester Calliot hurried behind on slippered feet, cradling the mountain skull as if it were a child. You cannot seriously intend to send Tristane and Marcella to King's Landing, Obara said as she was pushing. Her strides were long and angry, much too fast, and the chair's big wooden wheels clacked noisily across rough-cut stone floors. Do that, and we will never see the girl again, and your son will spend his life a hostage to the Iron Throne. Do you take me for a fool, Obara? The prince sighed. There is much you do not know. Things best not discussed here, what anyone can hear. If you hold your tongue, I may enlighten you. He winced. Slower for the love you bear me. Ugh, that last jolt sent a knife right through my knee. Obara slowed her pace by half. What will you do, then? Her sister Tyene gave answer. What he always does, she purred. Delay, obscure, prevaricate. Oh, no one does that half so well as our brave uncle. You do him wrong, said Princess Ariane. Be quiet, all of you, the prince commanded. Not until the doors of his solar were safely closed behind them did he wheel his chair about to face the women. Even that effort left him breathless, and the mirish blanket that covered his legs caught between two spokes as he rolled, so he had to clutch it to keep it from being torn away. Beneath the coverlet, his legs were pale, soft, ghastly. Both of his knees were red and swollen, and his toes were almost purple, twice the size they should have been. Arihotar had seen them a thousand times, and still found them hard to look upon. Princess Ariane came forward. Let me help you, father. The prince pulled the blanket free. I can still master mine own blanket. That much at least. It was little enough. His legs had been useless for three years, but there was still some strength in his hands and shoulders. Shall I fix my prince a thimble cup of milk of the poppy? Maester Calliot asked. I would need the bucket with this pain. Thank you, but no. I want my wits about me. I'll have no more need of you tonight. Very good, my prince. Maester Calliot bowed. Sir Gregor's head still clutched in his soft pink hands. I'll take that. Obara Sand plucked the skull from him and held it at arm's length. What did the mountain look like? How do we know that this is him? They could have dipped the head in tar. Why strip it to the bone? Tar would have ruined the box, suggested Lady Nim, as Maester Calliot scurried off. No one saw the mountain die, and no one saw his head removed. That troubles me, I confess. But what could the bitch queen hope to accomplish by deceiving us? If Gregor Clegane is alive, soon or late the truth will out. The man was eight feet tall. 
there's not another like him in all of Westeros. If any such appears again, Cersei Lannister will be exposed as a liar before all the Seven Kingdoms. She would be an utter fool to risk that. What could she hope to gain? The skull is large enough, no doubt, said the prince, and we know that Oberyn wounded Gregor grievously. Every report we have had since claims that Clegane died slowly, in great pain. Just as father intended, said Tyene. Sisters, truly, I know the poison father used. If his spear so much as broke the mountain skin, Clegane is dead. I do not care how big he was. Doubt your little sister if you like, but never doubt our sire. Obara bristled. I never did, and never shall. She gave the skull a mocking kiss. This is a start, I'll grant. A start, said Ilaria Sand, incredulous. Gods forbid I would it were a finish. Tywin Lannister is dead. So are Robert Baratheon, Amory Lorch, and now Gregor Clegane. All those who had a hand in murdering Elia and her children. Even Joffrey, who was not yet born when Elia died. I saw the boy perish with mine own eyes clawing at his throat as he tried to draw a breath. Who else is there to kill? Do Marcella and Tommen need to die, so the shades of Rhaenys and Aegon can be at rest? Where does it end? It ends in blood as it began, said Lady Nim. It ends when Castle Rock is cracked open, so the sun can shine on the maggots and the worms within. It ends with the utter ruin of Tywin Lannister and all his works. The man died at the hand of his own son, Ilaria snapped back. What more could you wish? I could wish that he died at my hand. Lady Nim settled in a chair, her long black braid falling across one shoulder to her lap. She had her father's widow's peak. Beneath it, her eyes were large and lustrous. Her wine-red lips curled in a silken smile. If he had, his dying would not have been so easy. Sir Gregor does look lonely, said Tyene, in her sweet scepter's voice. He would like some company, I'm certain. Ilaria's cheeks were wet with tears, her dark eyes shining. Even weeping, she has a strength in her, the captain thought. Oberon wanted vengeance for Ilya. Now the three of you want vengeance for him. I have four daughters, I remind you. Your sisters. My Ilya is fourteen, almost a woman. Obella is twelve, on the brink of maidenhood. They worship you, as Doria and Noreza worship them. If you should die, must Eel and Obella seek vengeance for you, then Doria and Lori for them. Is that how it goes? Round and round forever. I ask you, where does it end? Ilaria Sand laid her hand on the mountain's head. I saw your father day. Here is his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me, to give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh, write me songs, 
care for me when I am old and sick. What will you have us do, my lady? asked Lady Nim. Shall we lay down our spears and smile and forget all the wrongs that have been done to us? War will come, whether we wish it or not, said Obara. A boy king sits the Iron Throne. Lord Stannis holds the war and is gathering Northmen to his cause. The two queens are squabbling over Tommen like bitches with a juicy bone. The Iron Men have taken the shields and are raiding up the Manda, deep into the heart of the Reach, which means High Garden will be preoccupied as well. Our enemies are in disarray. The time is ripe. Ripe for what? To make more skulls? Hilaria Sand turned to the prince. They will not see. I can hear no more of this. Go back to your girls, Hilaria, the prince told her. I swear to you, no harm will come to them. My prince, Hilaria kissed him on the brow and took her leave. Arya Hotar was sad to see her go. She is a good woman. When she had gone, Lady Nim said, I know she loved our father well, but it is plain she never understood him. The prince gave her a curious look. She understood more than you ever will, Nymeria. And she made your father happy. In the end, a gentle heart may be worth more than pride or valor. Be that as it may, there are things Alaria does not know and should not know. This war has already begun. Obara laughed. Aye, our sweet Ariane has seen to that. The princess flushed, and Hotar saw a spasm of anger pass across her father's face. What she did, she did as much for you as for herself. I would not be so quick to mock. That was praise, Obara Sand insisted. Procrastinate, obscure, prevaricate, dissemble, and delay all you like, uncle. Sir Balin must still come face to face with Missella at the water gardens, and when he does, he's like to see she's short an ear. And when the girl tells him how your captain cut Ares Oakheart from neck to groin with that steel wife of his, well... No, Princess Ariane unfolded from the cushion where she sat and put a hand on Hotar's arm. That wasn't how it happened, cousin. Sir Eris was slain by Geraldine. The sand snakes looked at one another. Darkstar? Darkstar did it, his little princess said. He tried to kill Princess Marcella too, as she will tell Sir Balin. Nim smiled. That part at least is true. It is all true, said the prince, with a wince of pain. Is it his gout that hurts him, or the lie? And now Sir Gerald has fled back to high hermitage beyond our reach. Darkstar, Tyene murmured with a giggle. Why not? It's all his doing, but will Sir Balin believe it? He will if he hears it from Marcella, Ariane insisted. Obara snorted in disbelief. She may lie today and lie tomorrow, but soon or late she'll tell the truth. If Sir Balin is allowed to carry tales back to King's Landing, drums will sound and blood will flow. 
he should not be allowed to leave. We could kill him, to be sure, said Tyeen. But then we would need to kill the rest of his party, too, even those sweet young squires. That would be, oh, so messy. Prince Doran shut his eyes and opened them again. Hotar could see his leg trembling underneath the blanket. If you were not my brother's daughters, I would send the three of you back to your cells and keep you there until your bones were grey. Instead, I mean to take you with us to the water gardens. There are lessons there, if you have the wit to see them. Lessons, said Obara, all I've seen are naked children. Aye, the prince said, I told the story to Sir Balin, but not all of it. As the children splashed in the pools, Daenerys watched from amongst the orange trees, and a realization came to her. She could not tell the highborn from the low. Naked, they were only children, all innocent, all vulnerable, all deserving of long life, love, protection. There is your realm, she told her son and heir. Remember them in everything you do. My own mother said those same words to me when I was old enough to leave the pools. It is an easy thing for a prince to call the spears, but in the end the children pay the price. For their sake the wise prince will wage no war without good cause, nor any war he cannot hope to win. I am not blind, not deaf. I know that you all believe me weak, frightened, feeble, your father knew me better. Oberyn was ever the viper, deadly, dangerous, unpredictable. No man dared tread on him. I was the grass, pleasant, complacent, sweet-smelling, swaying with every breeze. Who fears to walk upon the grass? But it is the grass that hides the viper from his enemies and shelters him until he strikes. Your father and I worked more closely than you know. But now he's gone. The question is, can I trust his daughters to serve me in his place? Hotar studied each of them in turn. Obara rusted nails and boiled leather with her angry, close-set eyes and rat-brown hair. Nemeria, languid, elegant, olive-skinned, her long black braid bound up in red-gold wire. Tyeen, blue-eyed and blonde, a child-woman, with her soft hands and little giggles. Tyeen answered for the three of them. It is doing nothing that is hard, uncle. Set a task for us, any task, and you shall find us as leal and obedient as any prince could hope for. That is good to hear, the prince said. But words are wind. You are my brother's daughters, and I love you, but I have learned I cannot trust you. I want your oath. Will you swear to serve me to do as I command? If we must, said Lady Nim, then swear it now, upon your father's grave. Obara's face darkened. If you are not my uncle, I am your uncle, and your prince, swear or go. I swear said Tyene, on my father's grave. I swear, said Lady Nim, 
by Oberon Martell, the Red Viper of Dawn, and a better man than you. I, said Abara, me as well. By father, I swear. Some of the tension went out of the prince. Hotel saw him sag back into his chair. He held out his hand, and Princess Ariane moved to his side to hold it. Tell them, father. Prince Doran took a jagged breath. Dorn still has friends at court. Friends who tell us things we were not meant to know. This invitation Cersei sent us is a ruse. Tristan is never meant to reach King's Landing. On the road back, somewhere in the King's Wood, Sir Balin's party will be attacked by outlaws, and my son will die. I am asked to court only so that I may witness this attack with my own eyes, and thereby absolve the Queen of any blame. Oh, and these outlaws? They will be shouting, Half-man! Half-man! as they attack. Sir Balin may even catch a quick glimpse of the imp, though no one else will. Arya Hotar would not have believed it possible to shock the Sand Snakes. He would have been wrong. Seven savers, whispered Tyene. Tristan, why? The woman must be mad, Obara said. He's just a boy. This is monstrous, said Lady Nim. I would not have believed it, not of a king's guard knight. They are sworn to obey, just as my captain is. The prince said, I had my doubts as well, but you all saw how Sir Balin balked when I suggested that we go by sea. A ship would have disturbed all the queen's arrangements. Obara's face was flushed. Give me back my spear, uncle. Cersei sent us ahead. We should send her back a bag of them. Prince Doran raised a hand. His knuckles were as dark as cherries and near as big. Sir Balin is a guest beneath my roof. He has eaten of my bread and salt. I will not do him harm. No. We will travel to the water gardens, where he will hear Marcella's story, and send a raven to his queen. The girl will ask him to hunt down the man who hurt her. If he is a man I judge, Swan will not be able to refuse. Obara, you will lead him to High Hermitage, to beard Darkstar in his den. The time has not yet come for Dawn to openly defy the Iron Throne, so we must needs return Marcella to her mother. But I will not be accompanying her. That task will be yours, Nemeria. The Lannisters will not like it, no more than they liked it when I sent them over it, but they dare not refuse. We need a voice in council, an heir at court. Be careful, though. King's Landing is a pit of snakes. Lady Nim smiled. Why, uncle, I love snakes. And what of me? asked Tyene. Your mother was a scepter. Oberyn once told me that she read to you in the cradle from the seven-pointed star. I want you in King's Landing, too but on the other hill. The swords and the stars have been reformed, and this new High Septon is not the puppet that the others were. Try and get close to him. Why not? 
White suits my coloring. I look so pure. Good, the prince said. Good, he hesitated. If, if certain things should come to pass, I will send word to each of you. Things can change quickly in the Game of Thrones. I know you will not fail us, cousins. Ariane went to each of them in turn, took their hands, kissed them lightly on the lips. Obara, so fierce. Nemeria, my sister. Cain, sweetling, I love you all. The sun of dawn goes with you. Unbowed, unbent, unbroken, the sand snake said together. Princess Ariane lingered when her cousins had departed. Arya Hotar remained as well, as was his place. They are their father's daughters, the prince said. The little princess smiled. Three Oberons with teats. Prince Doran laughed. It had been so long since Hotar last heard him laugh. He had almost forgotten what it sounded like. I still say it should be me who goes to King's Landing, not Lady Nim. Ariane said. It is too dangerous. You are my heir, the future of dawn. Your place is by my side. Soon enough, you'll have another task. That last part, about the message, have you had tidings? Prince Doran shared his secret smile with her. From Lice, a great fleet has put in there to take on water. Volunteer ships, chiefly. Carrying an army. No word as to who they are or where they might be bound. There was talk of elephants. No dragons. Elephants. Easy enough to hide a young dragon in a big cog's hole, though. Daenerys is most vulnerable at sea. If I were her, I would keep myself and my intentions hidden as long as I could, so I might take King's Landing unawares. Do you think Quentin will be with them? He could be, or not. We will know by where they land, if Westeros is indeed their destination. Quentin will bring her up the green blood, if he can. But it does no good to speak of it. Kiss me. We leave for the water gardens at first light. We may depart by midday, then, Hotar thought. Later... When Ariane had gone, he put down his long axe and lifted Prince Doran into his bed. Until the mountain crushed my brother's skull, no Dornishman had died in this war of the Fave Kings, the prince murmured softly, as Hotar pulled a blanket over him. Tell me, Captain, is that my shame or my glory? That is not for me to say, my prince. Serve, protect, obey. Simple vows for simple men. That was all he knew. John Val waited by the gate in the pre-dawn cold, wrapped up in a bearskin cloak so large it might well have fit Sam. Beside her was a garron, saddled and bridled, a shaggy grey with one white eye. Molly and Dolores Ed stood with her, a pair of unlikely guards. 
their breath frosted in the cold black air. You gave her a blind horse, John said, incredulous. He's only half blind, my lord, offered Molly. Elsewise, he's sound enough. He patted the garron on the neck. The horse may be half blind, but I am not, said Val. I know where I must go. My lady, you do not have to do this. The risk is mine, Lord Snow, and I am no southern lady, but a woman of the free folk. I know the forest better than all your black cloak rangers. It holds no ghost for me. I hope not. John was counting on that. Trusting that Val could succeed, where Black Jack Bulwer and his companions had failed. She need fear no harm from the free folk, he hoped. But both of them knew too well that wildlings were not the only ones waiting in the woods. You have sufficient food? Hard bread, hard cheese, oat cakes, salt cod, salt beef, salt mutton, and a skin of sweet wine to rinse all that salt out of my mouth. I will not die of hunger. Then it's time you were away. You have my word, Lord Snow. I will return, with Tormund or without him. Val glanced at the sky. The moon was but half full. Look for me on the first day of the full moon. I will. Do not fail me, he thought, or Stannis will have my head. Do I have your word that you will keep our princess closely, the king had said, and John had promised that he would. Val is no princess, though. I told him that half a hundred times. It was a feeble sort of evasion, a sad rag wrapped around his wounded word. His father would never have approved. I am the sword that guards the realm of men, John reminded himself, and in the end that must be worth more than one man's honor. The road beneath the wall was as dark and cold as the belly of an ice dragon and as twisty as a serpent. Dolores Ed led them through with a torch in hand. Molly had the keys for the three gates, where bars of black iron as thick as a man's arm closed off the passage. Spearmen at each gate knuckled their foreheads at Jon Snow, but stared openly at Val and her garron. When they emerged north of the wall, through a thick door made of freshly hewn green wood, the wilding princess paused for a moment to gaze out across the snow-covered field where King Stannis had won his battle. Beyond, the haunted forest waited, dark and silent. The light of the half-moon turned Val's honey-blonde hair a pale silver and her cheeks as white as snow. She took a deep breath. The air tastes sweet. My tongue is too numb to tell. All I can taste is cold. Cold? Val laughed lightly. No, when it is cold, it will hurt to breathe. When the others come. The thought was a disquieting one. Six of the rangers John had sent out were still missing. It is too soon. They may yet be back. But another part of him insisted, They are dead, every man of them. You sent them out to die, and you are doing the same to Val. Tell Tormund what I've said. He may not heed your words, but he will hear them. Val kissed him lightly on the cheek. You have my thanks, Lord Snow. 
for the half-blind horse, the salt cud, the free air, for hope. Their breath mingled, a white mist in the air. John Snow drew back and said, The only thanks I want is torment giant's bane, aye. Val pulled up the hood of her bearskin. The brown pelt was well salted with grey. Before I go, one question. Did ye kill Jarl, my lord? The wall killed Jarl. So I'd heard, but I had to be sure. You have my word. I did not kill him. Though I might have, if things had gone otherwise. This is farewell, then, she said almost playfully. Jon Snow was in no mood for it. It is too cold and dark to play, and the hour is too late. Only for a time you will return, for the boy if for no other reason. Craster's son, Val shrugged, he is no kin to me. I've heard you singing to him. I was singing to myself. Am I to blame if he listens? A faint smile brushed her lips. It makes him laugh. Oh, very well. He is a sweet little monster. Monster? His milk name. I had to call him something. See that he stays safe and warm for his mother's sake and mine, and keep him away from the red woman. She knows who he is. She sees things in her fires. Arya, he thought, hoping it was so. Ashes and cinders. Kings and dragons. Dragons again. For a moment, John could almost see them too, coiling in the night, their dark wings outlined against a sea of flame. If she knew, she would have taken the boy away from us. Dala's boy, not your monster. A word in the king's ear would have been the end of it. End of me. Stannis would have taken it for treason. Why let it happen if she knew? Because it suited her. Fire is a fickle thing. No one knows which way a flame will go. Val put a foot into a stirrup, swung her leg over a horse's back, and looked down from the saddle. Do you remember what my sister told you? Yes. A sword without a hilt, with no safe way to hold it. But Melisandre had the right of it. Even a sword without a hilt is better than an empty hand when foes are all around you. Good, Val wheeled the garron towards the north. The first night of the full moon, then. John watched her ride away, wondering if he would ever see her face again. I'm no southern lady, he could hear her say, but a woman of the free folk. I don't care what she says, muttered Dolorous Ed as Val vanished behind a stand of soldier pines. The air is so cold, it hurts to breathe. I would stop, but that would hurt worse. He rubbed his hands together. This is going to end badly. You say that of everything. Oi, my lord, usually I'm right. Molly clears his throat. My lord, the wildling princess, letting her go. The men may say that I'm half a wildling myself. A turncloak who means to sell the realm to our raiders, cannibals, and giants. John did not need to stare into a fire to know what was being said of him. The worst part was, 
they were not wrong, not holy. Words are wind, and the wind is always blowing at the wall. Come. It was still dark when John returned to his chambers behind the armory. Ghost was not yet back, he saw. Still hunting. The big white direwolf was gone more off than not of late, ranging farther and farther in search of prey. Between the men of the watch and the wildlings down in Molestown, the hills and fields near Castle Black had been hunted clean, and there had been little enough game to begin with. Winter is coming, John reflected, and soon, too soon. He wondered if they would ever see a spring. Dolores Ed made the trek to the kitchens and soon was back with a tankard of brown ale and a covered platter. On the lid, John discovered three duck's eggs fried in drippings, a strip of bacon, two sausages, a blood pudding, and half a loaf of bread, still warm from the oven. He ate the bread and half an egg. He would have eaten the bacon too, but the raven made off with it before he had the chance. Thief! John said, as the bird flapped up to the lintel above the door to devour its prize. Thief! the raven agreed. John tried a bite of sausage. He was washing the taste from his mouth with a sip of ale when Ed returned to tell him Bowen Marsh was without. As hell's with him, and Septon Celador. That was quick. He wondered who was telling tales, and if there was more than one. Send them in. Aye, my lord, you'll want to watch your sausages with this lot, though. They have a hungry look about them. Hungry was not the word John would have used. Septon Salador appeared confused and groggy, and in dire need of some scales from the dragon that had flamed him, whilst first builder, Othel Yarwick, looked as if he'd swallowed something he could not quite digest. Bowen Marsh was angry, John could see it in his eyes, the tightness around his mouth, the flush to those round cheeks. That red is not from cold. Please sit, he said. May I offer you food or drink? We broke her fast in the commons, said Marsh. I could do with more. Yarwick eased himself down onto a chair. Good of you to offer. Perhaps some wine? said Septon Celador. Corn! screamed the raven from the lintel. Corn! Corn! Wine for the Septon, and a plate for our first builder, John told Dolores Ed. Nothing for the bird. He turned back to his visitors. You're here about Val? And other matters, said Bowen Marsh. The men have concerns, my lord. And who is it who appointed you to speak for them? As do I, Othell. How goes the work at the night fort? I have had a letter from Sir Axel Florent, who styles himself the Queen's Hand. He tells me that Queen Celise is not pleased with her quarters at Eastwatch by the sea, and wishes to move into her husband's new seat at once. Will that be possible? Yarwick shrugged. We've got most of the keep restored and put a roof back on the kitchens. She'd need food and furnishings and firewood, mind you, but it might serve. Not so many comforts as East Watch, to be sure, and a long way from the ships, 
should her grace wish to leave us, but uh, I, she could live there, though it will be years before the place looks a proper castle. Sooner if I had more builders. I could offer you a giant. That gave Othel a start. The monster in the yard? His name is Wanweg Wandawang, Leathers tells me. A lot to wrap a tongue around, I know. Leathers calls him One-One, and that seems to serve. One-One was very little like the giants in old Nan's tales, those huge savage creatures who mixed blood into their morning porridge and devoured whole bulls, hair and hide and horns. This giant ate no meat at all, though he was a holy terror when served a basket of roots, crunching onions and turnips, and even raw hard neeps between his big square teeth. He is a willing worker, though getting him to understand what you want is not always easy. He speaks the old tongue after a fashion, but nothing of the common. Tireless, though, and his strength is prodigious. He could do the work of a dozen men. I, um, my lord, the men would never... Giants eat human flesh, I think. No, my lord, I thank you. But I do not have the men to watch over such a creature. He, um... John Snow was unsurprised. As you wish, we will keep the giant here. Truth be told, he would have been loath to part with one one. You know nothing, John Snow, Igrit might say. But John spoke with the giant whenever he could, through leathers, or one of the free folk they had brought back from the grove, and was learning much and more about his people and their history. He only wished that Sam was here to write the stories down. That was not to say that he was blind to the danger one one represented. The giant would lash out violently when threatened, and those huge hands were strong enough to rip a man apart. He reminded John of Hodor. Hodor twice as big, twice as strong, and half as clever. There's a thought to sober even Septon Selador. But if Tormans had giants with him, one wed one Darwan may help us treat with them. Mormon's raven muttered his annoyance as the door opened beneath him, heralding the return of Dolorous Ed with a flagon of wine and a plate of eggs and sausages. Burn Marsh waited with obvious impatience as Ed poured, resuming only when he left again. Tullet is a good man and well-liked, and Iron Emmet has been a fine master at arms, he said then. Yet the talk is that you mean to send them away. We need good men at Long Barrow. Whore's Hole, the men have started calling it, said March. But be that as it may, is it true that you mean to replace Emmet with the savage leathers as our master at arms? That is an office most often reserved for knights or rangers at the least. Leathers is savage, John agreed mildly. I can attest to that. I've tried him in the practice yard. He's as dangerous with a stone axe as most knights are with castle-forged steel. I grant you he's not as patient as I'd like, and some of the boys are terrified of him. But that's not all for the bad. One day they'll find themselves in a real fight, and a certain familiarity with terror will serve them well. He's a wildling. He was, until he said the words. Now he is our brother. 
one who can teach the boys more than swordcraft. It would not hurt them to learn a few words of the old tongue and something of the ways of the free folk. Free, the raven muttered. Corn, king. But the men do not trust him. Which men, John might have asked. How many? But that would lead him down a road he did not mean to ride. I am sorry to hear that. Is there more? Septon Serador spoke up. This boy, Satin, it said you mean to make him your steward and squire in Tollet's place. Uh, my lord, the boy's a whore, uh, dare I say, a painted catamite from the brothels of Old Town. And you are a drunk. What he was in Old Town is none of our concern. He's quick to learn and very clever. The other recruits started out despising him, but he won them over and made friends of them all. He's fearless in a fight, and can even read and write after a fashion. He should be capable of fetching me my meals and saddling my horse, don't you think? Most like, said Bowen Marsh, stony-faced. But the men do not like it. Traditionally, the Lord Commander's squires are lads of good birth, being groomed for command. Does my lord believe the men of the Night's Watch would ever follow a whore into battle? John's temper flashed. They have followed worse. The old bear left a few cautionary notes about certain of the men for his successor. We have a cook at the Shadow Tower who was fond of raping scepters. He burned a seven-pointed star into his flesh for everyone he claimed. His left arm is stars from wrist to elbow and stars mark his calves as well. At Eastwatch, we have a man who set his father's house afire and barred the door. His entire family burned to death, all nine. Whatever Saturn may have done in Old Town, he is our brother now, and he will be my squire. Septon Salador drank some wine. Othel Yarwick stabbed a sausage with his dagger. Bowen Marsh sat red-faced. The raven flapped his wings and said, Court! Court! Kill! Finally, the Lord Steward cleared his throat. Your Lordship knows best, I'm sure. Might I ask about these corpses in the ice cells? They make the men uneasy, and to keep them under guard. Surely that is a waste of two good men, unless you fear that they... will rise? I pray they do. Septon Celador paled. Seven save us. Wine dribbled down his chin in a red line. Lord Commander, whites are monstrous, unnatural creatures, abominations before the eyes of the gods. You, you cannot mean to try to talk with them? Can they talk? asked Jon Snow. I think not, but I cannot claim to know. Monsters they may be, but they were men before they died. How much remains? The one I slew was intent on killing Lord Commander Mormont. Plainly, it remembered who he was and where to find him. Maester Eamon would have grasped his purpose, John did not doubt. Sam Tarley would have been terrified, but he would have understood as well. My Lord Father used to tell me that a man must know his enemies— we understand little of the whites, and less about the others. We need to learn. 
That answer did not please them. Septon Selador fingered the crystal that hung about his neck and said, I think this most unwise, Lord Snow. I shall pray to the crone to lift her shining lamp and lead you down the path of wisdom. John Snow's patience was exhausted. We could all do with a bit more wisdom, I'm sure. You know nothing, John Snow. Now shall we speak of Val? It is true, then, said Marsh. You have released her. Beyond the wall. Septon Selador sucked in his breath. The king's prize? His grace will be most wroth to find her gone. Val will return. Before Stannis, if the gods are good. Well, how can you know that? demanded Bowen Marsh. She said she would. And if she lied, if she meets with misadventure. Why then, you may have a chance to choose a Lord Commander more to your liking. Until such time, I fear you still need to suffer me. John took a swallow of ale. I sent her to find Tormund Giantsbane and bring him my offer. If we may know, what offer is this? The same offer I made at Molestown. Food and shelter and peace. If he will join his strength to ours, fight our common enemy, help us hold the wall. Bowen Marsh did not appear surprised. You mean to let him pass? His voice suggested he had known all along. To open the gates for him and his followers, hundreds, thousands, if he has that many left. Septon Celador made the sign of the star. Othel Yarwick grunted. Bowen Marsh said, Some might call this treason. These are wildling savages, raiders, rapers, more beasts than man. Tormund is none of those things, said John. No more than man's raider. But even if every word you said were true, they are still men, Bowen. "'Living men, human as you and me. "'Winter is coming, my lords, and when it does, "'we living men will need to stand together against the dead.' "'Snow!' screamed Lord Mormon's raven. "'Snow! Snow!' John ignored him. "'We have been questioning the wildlings we brought back from the grove. "'Several of them told an interesting tale of a woods witch called Mother Mole.' Mother Mole, said Bowen Marsh, an unlikely name. Supposedly she made her home in a burrow beneath a hollow tree. Whatever the truth of that, she had a vision of a fleet of ships arriving to carry the free folk to safety across the narrow sea. Thousands of those who fled the battle were desperate enough to believe her. Mother Mole has led them all to hard home, there to pray and await salvation from across the sea. Athel Yarvik scowled. I'm no ranger, but hard home is an unholy place, it said. Cursed! Even your uncle used to say as much, Lord Snow. Why would they go there? John had a map before him on the table. He turned it so they could see. Hard home sits on a sheltered bay and has a natural harbour deep enough for the bigger ships afloat. Wood and stone are plentiful near there, the waters teem with fish, and there are colonies of seals and sea cows close at hand. All that's true, I don't doubt, 
said Yarwick. "'But it's not a place I'd want to spend a night. "'You know the tale.' "'He did. "'Hard Home had been halfway toward becoming a town, "'the only true town north of the wall. "'Until the night, six hundred years ago, "'when hell had swallowed it. "'Its people had been carried off into slavery "'or slaughtered for meat, "'depending on which version of the tale you believed. "'Their homes and halls consumed in a conflagration that burned so hot that watchers on the wall far to the south had thought the sun was rising in the north. Afterward, ashes rained down on haunted forest and shivering sea alike for almost half a year. Traders reported finding only nightmarish devastation where hard home had stood. A landscape of charred trees and burned bones— Waters choked with swollen corpses, blood-chilling shrieks echoing from the cave mouths that pocked the great cliff that loomed above the settlement. Six centuries had come and gone since that night, but Hard Home was still shunned. The wild had reclaimed the site, John had been told, but rangers claimed that the overgrown ruins were haunted by ghouls and demons, and burning ghosts with an unhealthy taste for blood. It is not the sort of refuge I'd choose either, John said, but Mother Mole was heard to preach that the free folk would find salvation where once they found damnation. Septon Senador pursed his lips. Salvation can be found only through the seven. This witch has doomed them all. "'And save the wall, mayhaps,' said Bowen Marsh. "'These are enemies we speak of. "'Let them pray amongst the ruins, "'and if their gods send ships to carry them off "'to a better world, well and good. "'In this world I have no food to feed them.' "'John flexed the fingers of his sword-hand. "'Cutter Pike's galleys sail past hard home from time to time. "'He tells me there is no shelter there,' but the caves. The Screaming Caves, his men call them. Mother Mole and those who followed her will perish there, of cold and starvation, hundreds of them, thousands. Ah, thousands of enemies, thousands of wildlings. Thousands of people, John thought. Men, women, children. Anger rose inside him, but when he spoke, his voice was quiet and cold. Are you so blind? Or is it that you do not wish to see? What do you think will happen when all these enemies are dead? Above the door, the raven muttered, Dead! 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 Let me tell you what will happen, John said. The dead will rise again, in their hundreds and their thousands. They will rise as whites, with black hands and pale blue eyes, and they will come for us. He pushed himself to his feet, the fingers of his sword hand opening and closing. You have my leave to go. Septon Celador rose, grey-faced and sweating. Othel Yarvik stiffly. Bowen Marsh tight-lipped and pale. I thank you. For your time, Lord Snow. 
they left without another word. Tyrion The Tsar had a sweeter temper than some horses he had ridden. Patient and sure-footed, she accepted Tyrion with hardly a squeal when he clambered onto her back and remained motionless as he reached for shield and lance. Yet when he gathered up her reins and pressed his feet into her side, she moved at once. Her name was Pretty, short for Pretty Pig, and she had been trained to saddle and bridle since she was a piglet. The painted wooden armour clattered as Pretty trotted across the deck. Tyrion's armpits were prickly with perspiration, and a bead of sweat was trickling down his scar beneath the oversized, ill-fitting helm. Yet for one absurd moment he felt almost like Jamie, riding out onto a tawny field with lance in hand, his golden armour flashing in the sun. When the laughter began, the dream dissolved. He was no champion, just a dwarf on a pig, clutching a stick, capering for the amusement of some restless, rum-soaked sailors in hopes of sweetening their mood. Somewhere down in hell, his father was seething, and Joffrey was chuckling. Tyrion could feel their cold, dead eyes watching this mummer's farce, as avid as the crew of the Celesauri Corran. And now here came his foe. Penny rode her big grey dog, her striped lance waving drunkenly as the beast bounded across the deck. Her shield and armour had been painted red, though the paint was chipped and fading. His own armour was blue. Not mine, groats. Never mine, I pray. Tyrion kicked at Pretty's haunches to speed her to a charge, as the sailors urged him on with hoots and shouts. Whether they were shouting encouragement or mocking him, he could not have said for certain, though he had a fair notion. Why did I ever allow myself to be talked into this farce? He knew the answer, though. For twelve days now, the ship had floated becalmed in the gulf of grief. The mood of the crew was ugly, and liked to turn uglier when their daily rum ration went dry. There were only so many hours a man could devote to mending sails, corking leaks, and fishing. Jorah Mormont had heard the muttering about how dwarf luck had failed them. Whilst the ship's cook still gave Tyrion's head a rub from time to time, in hopes that it might stir a wind, the rest had taken to giving him venomous looks whenever he crossed their paths. Penny's lot was even worse, since the cook had put about the notion that squeezing a dwarf girl's breast might be just the thing to win their luck back. He'd also started referring to Pretty Pig as Bacon, a jape that had seemed much funnier when Tyrion had made it. We have to make them laugh, Penny had said, pleading. We have to make them like us. If we give them a show, it will help them forget. Please, my lord. And somehow, somewise, some way, he had consented. It must have been the rum. The captain's wine had been the first thing to run out. You could get drunk much quicker on rum than on wine, Tyrion Lannister had discovered. So he found himself clad in groats painted wooden armour, astride groats sow, 
while Scrooge's sister instructed him in the finer points of the mummer's joust that had been their bread and salt. It had a certain delicious irony to it, considering that Tyrion had almost lost his head once by refusing to mount the dog for his nephew's twisted amusement. Yet somehow he found it difficult to appreciate the humour of it all from Sourbeck. Penny's lance descended just in time for its blunted point to brush his shoulder. His own lance wobbled as he brought it down and banged it noisily off a corner of her shield. She kept her seat. He lost his. But then he was supposed to. Easy as falling off a pig, though falling off this particular pig was harder than it looked. Tyrion curled into a ball as he dropped, remembering his lesson. But even so, he hit the deck with a solid thump and bit his tongue so hard he tasted blood. He felt as if he were twelve again, cartwheeling across the supper table in Castle Rock's great hall. Back then his uncle Garion had been on hand to praise his efforts in place of surly sailors. Their laughter seemed sparse and strained compared to the great gales that had greeted Groats and Penny's antics at Joffrey's wedding feast, and some hissed at him in anger. No, no, you ride the same way you look. Ugly, one man shouted from the stern castle. Must have no balls. That girl beat you. He wagered coin on me, Tyrion decided. He let the insult wash right over him. He had heard worse in his time. The wooden armour made rising awkward. He found himself flailing like a turtle on his back. That at least set a few of the sailors to laughing. A shame I did not break my leg. That would have left them howling. And if they had been in that privy when I shot my father through the bowels, they might have laughed hard enough to shit their breeches right along with him. But anything to keep the bloody bastard sweet. Jorah Mormont finally took pity on Tyrion's struggles and pulled him to his feet. You looked a fool. That was the intent. It is hard to look a hero when you're mounted on a pig. That must be why I stay off pigs. Tyrion unbuckled his helm, twisted it off, and spat a gobbet of bloody pink phlegm over the side. It feels as though I bit through half my tongue. Next time, bite harder, Sir Jorah shrugged. Truth be told, I've seen worse justice. Was that praise? I fell off the bloody pig and bit my tongue. What could possibly be worse than that? Getting a splinter through your eye and dying. Penny had vaulted off her dog, a big grey brute called Crunch. The thing is not to joust well, Hugo. She was always careful to call him Hugo, where anyone might hear. The thing is to make them laugh and throw coins. Poor payment for the blood and bruises, Tyrion thought, but he kept that to himself as well. We failed at that as well. No one threw coins. Not a penny, not a groat. They will when we get better. Penny pulled off her helm. Mouse brown hair spilled down to her ears. Her eyes were brown too, beneath a heavy shelf of brow, her cheeks smooth and flushed. 
she pulled some acorns from a leather bag for Pretty Pig. The sow ate them from her hand, squealing happily. When we perform for Queen Daenerys, the silver will rain down, you'll see. Some of the sailors were shouting at them and slamming their heels against the deck, demanding another tilt. The ship's cook was the loudest, as always. Tyrion had learned to despise that man, even if he was the only half-decent Cyvers player on the cog. "'You see, they liked us,' Penny said, with a hopeful little smile. "'Shall we go again, Hugo?' He was on the point of refusing when a shout from one of the mates spared him the necessity. It was mid-morning, and the captain wanted the boats out again. The cog's huge striped sail hung limply from her mast, as it had for days, but he was hopeful that they could find a wind somewhere to the north. That meant rowing. The boats were small, however, and the cog was large. Towing it was hot, sweaty, exhausting work that left the hands blistered and the back aching and accomplished nothing. The crew hated it. Tyrion could not blame them. The widow should have put us on a galley, he muttered sourly. If someone could help me out of these bloody planks, I would be grateful. I think I may have a splinter through my crutch. Mormont did the duty, albeit with poor grace. Penny collected her dog and pig and led them both below. You might want to tell your lady to keep her door closed and barred when she's inside, Sir Jorah said, as he was undoing the buckles on the straps that joined the wooden breastplate to the backplate. I'm hearing too much talk about ribs and hams and bacon. That pig is half a livelihood. A Giscari crew would eat the dog as well. Mormont pulled the breastplate and backplate apart. Just tell her. As you wish. His tunic was soaked with sweat and clinging to his chest. Tyrion plucked at it, wishing for a bit of breeze. The wooden armor was as hot and heavy as it was uncomfortable. Half of it looked to be old paint, layer on layer on layer of it, from a hundred past repaintings. At Joffrey's wedding feast, he recalled, one rider had displayed the direwolf of Rob Stark, the other the arms and collars of Stannis Baratheon. We will need both animals if we are to tilt for Queen Daenerys, he said. If the sailors took it in their heads to butcher pretty pig, neither he nor Penny could hope to stop them. But Sir Jorah's longsword might give them pause, at least. Is that how you hope to keep your head, imp? Sir Imp, if you please, and yes, once her grace knows my true worth, she'll cherish me. I am a lovable little fellow, after all, and I know many useful things about my kin, but until such time, I'd best keep her amused. Keep her as you like. It won't wash out your crimes. Daenerys Targaryen is no silly child to be diverted by japes and tumbles. She will deal with you justly. Oh, I hope not. Tyrion studied Mormont with his mismatched eyes. And how will she welcome you, this just queen? A warm embrace? A girlish titter? A headsman's axe? He grinned at the knight's obvious discomfort. Did you truly expect me to believe? 
you were about the Queen's business in that whorehouse, defending her from half a world away? Or could it be that you were running, that your dragon queen sent you from her side? But why would she— Oh, wait, you were spying on her. Tyrion made a clucking sound. You hope to buy your way back into a favor by presenting her with me. <laughs> an ill-considered scheme, I'd say. One might even say an act of drunken desperation. Perhaps if I were Jamie. Oh, but Jamie killed her father. I only killed my own. You think Daenerys will execute me and pardon you? But the reverse is just as likely. Maybe you should hop on that pig, Sir Jorah. Put on a suit of iron motley, like Florian the... The blow the big knight gave him cracked his head around and knocked him sideways. So hard that his head bounced off the deck. Blood filled his mouth as he staggered back onto one knee. He spat out a broken tooth. Growing prettier every day, but I do believe I poked a wound. Did the dwarf say something to offend you, sir? Tyrion asked innocently, wiping bubbles of blood off his broken lip with the back of his hand. I am sick of your mouth, dwarf, said Mormont. You still have a few teeth left. If you want to keep them, stay away from me for the rest of this voyage. That could be difficult. We share a cabin. You can find somewhere else to sleep, down in the hold, up on deck. It makes no matter. Just keep out of my sight. Tyrion pulled himself back to his feet. As you wish, he answered, through a mouthful of blood. But the big knight was already gone, his boots pounding on the deck boards. Below in the galley, Tyrion was rinsing out his mouth with rum and water and wincing at the sting when Penny found him. I heard what happened. Oh, are you hurt? He shrugged. A bit of blood and a broken tooth. But I believe I hurt him more. And him a knight. Sad to say, I would not count on Sir Jorah should we need protection. What did you do? Oh, your lip is bleeding. She slipped a square from her sleeve and dabbed it. What did you say? A few truths, sir, Bazaar, did not care to hear. You mustn't mock him. Don't you know anything? You can't talk that way to big persons. They can hurt you. Sir Jorah could have tossed you in the sea. The sailors would have laughed to see you drown. You have to be careful around big people. Be jolly and playful with them. Keep them smiling. Make them laugh. That's what my father always said. Didn't your father ever tell you how to act with big people? My father called them small folk, said Tyrion. And he was not what you'd call a jolly man. He took another sip of water drum slushed it around his mouth, spat it out. Still, I take your point. I have a deal to learn about being a dwarf. Perhaps you will be good enough to teach me, between the jousting and the pig-riding. I will, my lord, gladly. But uh, what were these truths? Why did Sir Jorah hit you so hard? Why, for love, the same reason that I stewed that singer. He thought of Shay, and the look in her eyes as he tightened the chain about her throat, twisting it in his fist. 
a chain of golden hands. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. Are you a maid, Penny? She blushed. Yes, of course. Who would have stay that way? Love is madness, and lust is poison. Keep your maidenhead. You'll be happier for it, and you're less like to find yourself in some dingy brothel on the ruin with a whore who looks a bit like your lost love, or chasing across half the world, hoping to find wherever whores go. Sir Jorah dreams of rescuing his dragon queen and basking in her gratitude. But I know a thing or two about the gratitude of kings, and I'd sooner have a palace in Valeria. He broke off suddenly. Did you feel that? The ship moved. It did. Penny's face lit up with joy. We're moving again. The wind. She rushed to the door. I want to see. Come, I'll race you up. Off she went. She is young, Tyrion had to remind himself, as Penny scrambled from the galley and up the steep wooden steps as fast as her short legs would allow. Almost a child. Still, it tickled him to see her excitement. He followed her topside. The sail had come to life again, billowing, emptying, then billowing again, the red stripes on the canvas wriggling like snakes. Sailors dashed across the decks and hauled on lines as the mates bellowed orders in the tongue of old Volantis. The rowers in the ship's boats had loosed their tow ropes and turned back toward the cog, stroking hard. The wind was blowing from the west, swirling and gusting, clutching at ropes and cloaks like a mischievous child. The Selasoria Coran was underway. Might be we'll make marine after all. Tyrion thought. But when he clambered up the ladder to the stern castle and looked off from the stern, his smile faltered. Blue sky and blue sea here, but off west I have never seen a sky that colour. A thick band of clouds ran along the horizon. A bar sinister, he said to Penny, pointing. What does that mean? she asked. It means some big bastard is creeping up behind us. He was surprised to find that Makoro and two of his fiery fingers had joined them on the stern castle. It was only midday, and the red priest and his men did not normally emerge till dusk. The priest gave him a solemn nod. There you see it, Hugo Hill, God's wrath. The Lord of Light will not be mocked. Tyrion had a bad feeling about this. The widow said this ship would never reach her destination. I took that to mean that once we were out to sea, beyond the reach of Triarchs, the captain would change course for Merin. Or perhaps that you would seize the ship with your fiery hand and take us to Daenerys. But that isn't what your high priest saw at all, is it? No. Makaro's deep voice told as solemnly as a funeral bell. This is what he saw. The red priest lifted his staff and inclined its head toward the west. Penny was lost. I don't understand. What does it mean? It means we had best get below. Sir Jorah has exiled me from our cabin. 
Might I hide in yours when the time comes? Yes, she said. You would be... Oh. For the better part of three hours they ran before the wind as the storm grew closer. The western sky went green, then grey, then black. A wall of dark clouds loomed up behind them, churning like a kettle of milk left on the fire too long. Tyrion and Penny watched from the forecastle, huddled by the figurehead and holding hands, careful to stay out of the way of captain and crew. The last storm had been thrilling, intoxicating, a sudden squall that had left him feeling cleansed and refreshed. This one felt different right from the first. The captain sensed it too. He changed their course to north by northeast to try and get out of the storm's path. It was a futile effort. This storm was too big. The seas around them grew rougher. The wind began to howl. The stinky Stuart rose and fell as waves smashed against her hull. Behind them, lightning stabbed down from the sky, blinding purple bolts that danced across the sea in webs of light. Thunder followed. The time has come to aid. Tyrion took Penny by the arm and led her below decks. Pretty and Crunch were both half mad with fear. The dog was barking, barking, barking. He knocked Tyrion right off his feet as they entered. The sow had been shitting everywhere. Tyrion cleaned it up as best he could, whilst Penny tried to calm the animals. Then they tied down or put away anything that was still loose. I'm frightened, Penny confessed. The cabin had begun to tilt and jump, going this way and that, as the waves hammered at the hull of the ship. There are worse ways to die than drowning. Your brother learned that, and so did my lord father. And she, that lying cunt. Hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. <laughs> we should play a game, Tyrion suggested. That might help take our thoughts off the storm. Not Cybass, she said at once. Not Cybass, Tyrion agreed, as the deck rose under him. That would only lead to pieces flying violently across the cabin and raining down on sow and dog. When you were a little girl, did you ever play Come Into My Castle? No, can you teach me? Could he? Tyrion hesitated. Fool of a dwarf, of course she's never played Come Into My Castle. She never had a castle. Come Into My Castle was a game for high-born children. One meant to teach them courtesy, heraldry, and a thing or two about their lord father's friends and foes. That won't, he started. The deck gave another violent heave, slamming the two of them together. Penny gave a squeak of fright. That game won't do, Tyrion told her, gritting his teeth. Sorry, I, I don't know what game... I do. Penny kissed him. It was an awkward kiss. Rushed, clumsy. But it took him utterly by surprise. His hands jerked up and grabbed hold of her shoulders to shove her away. Instead, he hesitated, then pulled her closer, gave her a squeeze. Her lips were dry, hard, closed up tighter than a miser's purse. A small mercy, thought Tyrion. This was nothing he had wanted. He liked Penny. He pitied Penny. 
He even admired Penny in a way, but he did not desire her. He had no wish to hurt her, though. The guards and his sweet sister had given her enough pain. So he let the kiss go on, holding her gently by the shoulders. His own lips stayed firmly shut. The Celesori Corrin rolled and shuddered around them. Finally, she pulled back an inch or two. Tyrion could see his own reflection shining in her eyes. Pretty eyes, he thought, but he saw other things as well. A lot of fear, a little hope, but not a bit of lust. She does not want me, no more than I want her. When she lowered her head, he took her under the chin and raised it up again. We cannot play that game, my lady. Above the thunder boomed, close at hand now. I, I never meant... I, I never kissed a boy before, but I only thought, what if we drown and I... I... It was sweet, lied Tyrion. But I am married. She was with me at the feast. You may remember her, Lady Sansa. Was she your wife? She... She was very beautiful. And false. Sansa, Shay, all my women. Tysha was the only one who ever loved me. Where do whores go? A lovely girl, said Tyrion, and we were joined beneath the eyes of gods and men. It may be that she is lost to me, but until I know that for a certainty, I must be true to her. I understand. Penny turned her face away from his. My perfect woman, Tyrion thought bitterly, one still young enough to believe such blatant lies. The hull was creaking, the deck moving, and Pretty was squealing in distress. Penny crawled across the cabin floor on her hands and knees, wrapped her arms around the sow's head, and murmured reassurance to her. Looking at the two of them, it was hard to know who was comforting whom. The sight was so grotesque, it should have been hilarious, but Tyrion could not even find a smile. The girl deserves better than a pig, he thought. An honest kiss, a little kindness, everyone deserves that much, however big or small. He looked about for his wine cup, but when he found it, all the rum had spilled. Drowning is bad enough, he reflected sourly, but drowning sad and sober, that's too cruel. In the end they did not drown, though there were times when the prospect of a nice, peaceful drowning had a certain appeal. The storm raged for the rest of that day and well into the night. Wet winds howled around them and waves rose up like the fists of drowned giants to smash down on their decks. Above, they learned later, a mate and two sailors were swept overboard. The ship's cook was blinded when a kettle of hot grease flew up into his face, and the captain was thrown from the stern castle to the main deck so violently he broke both legs. Below, Crunch howled and barked and snapped at Penny, and Pretty Pig began to shit again, turning the cramped, damp cabin into a sty. Tyrion managed to avoid retching his way through all of this, chiefly thanks to the lack of wine. Penny was not so fortunate, but he held her anyway 
as the ship's hull creaked and groaned alarmingly around them, like a cask about to burst. Nearby midnight, the winds finally died away, and the sea grew calm enough for Tyrion to make his way back up onto deck. What he saw there did not reassure him. The cog was drifting on a sea of dragon glass beneath a bowl of stars, but all around the storm raged on. East, west, north, south, everywhere he looked, the clouds rose up like black mountains, their tumbled slopes and colossal cliffs alive with blue and purple lightning. No rain was falling, but the decks were slick and wet underfoot. Tyrion could hear someone screaming from below, a thin, high voice hysterical with fear. He could hear Makaro, too. The Red Priest stood on the forecastle, facing the storm, his staff raised above his head as he boomed a prayer. Amidships, a dozen sailors and two of the fiery fingers were struggling with tangled lines and sudden canvas. But whether they were trying to raise the sail again or pull it down, he never knew. Whatever they were doing, it seemed to him a very bad idea. And so it was. The wind returned as a whispered threat, cold and damp, brushing over his cheek, flapping the wet sail, swirling and tugging at Makaro's scarlet robes. Some instinct made Tyrion grab hold of the nearest rail just in time. In the space of three heartbeats, the little breeze became a howling gale. Makoro shouted something, and green flames leapt from the dragon's moor atop his staff to vanish in the night. Then the rains came, black and blinding, and Foxel and Sterncastle both vanished behind a wall of water. Something huge flapped overhead and Tyrion glanced up in time to see the sail taking wing, with two men still dangling from the lines. Then he heard a crack. Oh, bloody hell! He had time to think. That had to be the mast! He found a line and pulled on it, fighting towards the hatch to get himself below out of the storm. But a gust of wind knocked his feet from under him, and a second slammed him into the rail, and there he clung. Rain lashed at his face, blinding him. His mouth was full of blood again. The ship groaned and growled beneath him, like a constipated fat man straining to shit. Then the mast burst. Tyrion never saw it, but he heard it. That cracking sound again, and then a scream of tortured wood, and suddenly the air was full of shards and splinters. One missed his eye by half an inch. A second found his neck. A third went through his calf, boots and breeches and all. He screamed, but he held on to the line, held on with a desperate strength he did not know he had. The widow said the ship would never reach her destination, he remembered. Then he laughed and laughed, wild and hysterical, as thunder boomed and timbers moaned and waves crashed all around him. By the time the storm abated, and the surviving passengers and crew came crawling back on deck like pale pink worms wriggling to the surface after a rain. The Celesori Coran was a broken thing, floating low in the water and listing ten degrees to port, 
her hull sprung in half a hundred places, her hold awash in seawater, her mast a splintered ruin no taller than a dwarf. Even her figurehead had not escaped. One of his arms had broken off, the one with all his scrolls. Nine men had been lost, including a mate, two of the fiery fingers, and Makaro himself. Did Benero see this in his fires? Tyrion wondered when he realized that huge red priest was gone. Did Makaro? Prophecy is like a half-trained mule, he complained to Jorah Mormont. It looks as though it might be useful, but the moment you trust in it, it kicks you in the head. That bloody widow knew the ship would never reach her destination. She warned us of that. Said Benero saw it in his fires. And I took that to mean, well, what does it matter? His mouth twisted. What it really meant was that some bloody big storm would turn our mass to kindling so that we could drift aimlessly across the gulf of grief until our food ran out and we started eating one another. Who do you suppose they'll carve up first? The pig, the dog, or me? The noisiest, I'd say. The captain died the following day. The ship's cook three nights later. It was all that the remaining crew could do to keep the wreck afloat. The mate, who had assumed command, reckoned they were somewhere off the southern end of the Isle of Cedars. When he lowered the ship's boats to tow them toward the nearest land, one sank, and the men in the other cut the line and rowed off north, abandoning the cog and all their shipmates. Slaves, said Joram Mormont, contemptuous. The big knight had slept through the storm, to hear him tell it. Tyrion had his doubts, but he kept them to himself. One day he might want to bite someone in the leg, and for that you needed teeth. Mormont seemed content to ignore their disagreement, so Tyrion decided to pretend it had not happened. For nineteen days they drifted, as food and water dwindled. The sun beat down on them, relentless. Penny huddled in her cabin with her dog and her pig, and Tyrion brought her food, limping on his bandaged calf and sniffing at the wound by night. When he had nothing else to do, he pricked his toes and fingers too. Sir Jorah made a point of sharpening his sword each day, honing the point until it gleamed. The three remaining fiery fingers lit the night fire as the sun went down, but they wore their ornate armor as they led the crew in prayer and the spears were close at hand, and not a single sailor tried to rub the head of either dwarf. "'Should we joust for them again?' Penny asked one night. "'Best not,' said Tyrion. "'That would only serve to remind them we have a nice plump pig.' Though pretty it was growing less plump with every passing day, and crunch was fur and bones. That night he dreamed that he was back in King's Landing again, a crossbow in his hand. Wherever oars go, Lord Tywin said. But when Tyrion's finger clenched and the bowstring thrummed, it was Penny with a quarrel buried in her belly. He woke to the sound of shouting. The deck was moving under him, and for half a heartbeat 
he was so confused, he thought he was back on the shy maid. A whiff of pig shit brought him to his senses. The sorrows were behind him, half a world away, and the joys of that time as well. He remembered how sweet Lamore had looked after her morning swims with beads of water glistening on her naked skin, but the only maiden here was his poor Penny, the stunted little dwarf girl. Something was afoot, though. Tyrion slipped from his hammock, yawning, and looked about for his boots. And mad though it was, he looked for the crossbow as well, but of course there was none such to be found. A pity, he mused. It might have been some use when the big folk come to eat me. He pulled his boots on and climbed up on deck to see what the shouting was about. Penny was there before him, her eyes wide with wonder. A sail, she shouted. There, there, do you see? A sail. And they've seen us. They have a sail. This time he kissed her. Once on each cheek, once on the brow, and one last one on the mouth. She was flushed and laughing by the last kiss, suddenly shy again, but it made no matter. The other ship was closing, a big galley he saw. Her oars left a long white wake behind her. What ship is that? he asked Sir Jorah Mormont. Can you read her name? I don't need to read her name. We're downwind. I can smell her. Mormont drew his sword. That's a slaver. The Turncloak The first flakes came drifting down as the sun was setting in the west. By nightfall, snow was coming down so heavily that the moon rose behind a white curtain unseen. The gods of the north have unleashed their wrath on Lord Stannis, Roos Bolton announced come morning, as men gathered in Winterfell's great hall to break their fast. He is a stranger here, and the old gods will not suffer him to live. His men roared their approval, banging their fists on the long plank tables. Winterfell might be ruined, but its granite walls would still keep the worst of the wind and weather at bay. They were well stocked with food and drink, they had fires to warm them when off duty, a place to dry their clothes, snug corners to lie down, and sleep. Lord Bolton had laid by enough wood to keep the fires fed for half a year, so the great hall was always warm and cosy. Stannis had none of that. Theon Greyjoy did not join the uproar. Neither did the men of House Frey, he did not fail to note. They are strangers here as well, he thought, watching Sir Anus Frey and his half-brother Sir Hustine. Born and bred in the Riverlands, the Freys had never seen a snow like this. The North has already claimed three of their blood, Theon thought, recalling the men that Ramsay had searched for fruitlessly, lost between White Harbour and Barreton. On the dais, Lord Wyman Manderley sat between a pair of his White Harbour knights, spooning porridge into his fat face. He did not seem to be enjoying it near as much as he had the pork pies at the wedding. Elsewhere, one-armed Harwood Stout talked quietly with a cadaverous Horsebane Umber. 
Theon queued up with the other men for porridge, ladled into wooden bowls from a row of copper kettles. The lords and knights had milk and honey and even a bit of butter to sweeten their portions, he saw, but none of that would be offered him. His reign as Prince of Winterfell had been a brief one. He had played his part in the mummer's show, giving the feigned Arya to be wed, and he was of no further use to Roose Bolton. First winter, I remember, the snows came over my head, said a Hornwood man in the queue ahead of him. Aye, but you were only three foot tall at the time, a rider from the rills replied. Last night, unable to sleep, Theon had found himself brooding on escape, of slipping away unseen, whilst Ramsay and his lord father had their attention elsewhere. Every gate was closed and barred, and heavily guarded, though. No one was allowed to enter or depart the castle without Lord Bolton's leave. Even if he found some secret way out, Theon would not have trusted it. He had not forgotten Kyra and her keys. And if he did get out, where would he go? His father was dead, and his uncles had no use for him. Pike was lost to him. The nearest thing to a home that remained to him was here, amongst the bones of Winterfell. A ruined man, a ruined castle. This is my place. He was still waiting for his porridge when Ramsay swept into the hall with his bastard's boys, shouting for music. Abel rubbed the sleep from his eyes, took up his lute, and launched into the Dornishman's wife whilst one of his washerwomen beat time in her drum. His singer changed the words, though. Instead of tasting a Dornishman's wife, he sang of tasting a Northman's daughter. He could lose his tongue for that, Theon thought, as his bowl was being filled. He is only a singer. Lord Ramsay could flay the skin off both his hands, and no one would say a word. But Lord Bolton smiled at the lyric, and Ramsay laughed aloud. Then others knew that it was safe to laugh as well. Yellow Dick found the song so funny that wine snorted out of his nose. Lady Arya was not there to share the merriment. She had not been seen outside her chambers since her wedding night. Sour Allen had been saying that Ramsay kept his bride naked and chained to a bedpost, but Theon knew that was only talk. There were no chains, at least none that men could see, just a pair of guards outside the bedchamber to keep the girl from wandering. And she is only naked when she bathes. That she did most every night, though. Lord Ramsay wanted his wife clean. She has no handmaids, poor thing, he had said to Theon. That leaves you, Reek. <laughs> Shall I put you in a dress? He laughed. Perhaps if you beg it of me, just now it will suffice for you to be her bathmaid. I won't have her smelling like you. So whenever Ramsay had an itch to bed his wife, it fell to Theon to borrow some serving women from Lady Walder or Lady Dustin and fetch hot water from the kitchens. Although Arya never spoke to any of them, they could not fail to see her bruises. It's her own fault. She has not pleased him. Just be Arya, he told the girl once, 
as he helped her into the water. Lord Ramsay does not want to hurt you. He only hurts us when we... when we forget. He never cut me without cause. Theon, she whispered, weeping. Reek! He grabbed her arm and shook her. In here, I'm Reek. You have to remember, Arya. But the girl was no true Stark, only a Stuart's whelp. Jane, her name is Jane. She should not look to me for rescue. Theon Greyjoy might have tried to help her once, but Theon had been ironborn and a braver man than Reek. Reek, Reek, it rhymes with weak. Ramsay had a new plaything to amuse him, one with teats and a cunny. But soon Jane's tears would lose their savour, and Ramsay would want his reek again. He will flay me inch by inch. When my fingers are gone, he will take my hands, after my toes, my feet. But only when I beg for it, when the pain grows so bad that I plead for him to give me some relief. There would be no hot baths for Reek. He would roll in shit again, forbidden to wash. The clothes he wore would turn to rags, foul and stinking, and he would be made to wear them until they rotted. The best he could hope for was to be returned to the kennels with Ramsay's girls for company. Kyra, he remembered, the new bitch he calls Kyra. He took his bowl to the back of the hall and found a place on an empty bench yards away from the nearest torch. Day or night, the benches down below the sort were never less than half full, with men drinking, dicing, talking, or sleeping in their clothes in quiet corners. Their sergeants would kick them awake when it came their turn to shrug back into their cloaks and walk the walls. But no man of them would welcome the company of Theon Turncloak, nor did he have much taste for theirs. The gruel was grey and watery, and he pushed it away after his third spoonful and let it congeal in the bowl. At the next table, men were arguing about the storm and wondering aloud how long the snow would fall. All day and all night might be even longer, insisted one big, black-bearded archer with a servant axe sewn on his breast. A few of the older men spoke of other snowstorms and insisted this was no more than a light dusting compared to what they'd seen in the winters of their youth. The Riverlanders were aghast. They have no love of snow and cold, these southron swords. Men entering the hall huddled by the fires or clapped their hands together over glowing braziers as their cloaks hung dripping from pegs inside the door. The air was thick and smoky, and a crust had formed atop his porridge, when a woman's voice behind him said, Theon Greyjoy, my name is Reek, he almost said. What do you want? She sat down next to him, straddling the bench, and pushed a wild mop of red-brown hair out of her eyes. Why do ye eat alone, my lord? Come, rise, join the dance. He went back to his porridge. I don't dance. The Prince of Winterfell had been a graceful dancer, but Reek, with his missing toes, would be grotesque. Leave me be. I have no coin. The woman smiled crookedly. 
did take me for a whore. She was one of the singer's washerwomen, the tall, skinny one, too lean and leathery to be called pretty, though there was a time when Theon would have tumbled her all the same, to see how it felt to have those long legs wrapped around him. What good would coin do me here? What would I buy with it, some snow? She laughed. You could pay me with a smile. I've never seen you smile, not even during your sister's wedding feast. Lady Arya is not my sister. I do not smile either, he might have told her. Ramsay hated my smile, so he took a hammer to my teeth. I can hardly eat. She never was my sister. A pretty maid, though. I was never beautiful like Sansa, but they all said I was pretty. Jane's words seemed to echo in his head. To the beat of the drums, two of Abel's other girls were pounding. Another one had pulled little Walder Frey up onto the table to teach him how to dance. All the men were laughing. Leave me be, said Theon. Am I not to my lord's taste? I could send Myrtle to you, if you want, or Holly. Might be you like her better. All the men like Holly. They're not my sisters, neither, but they're sweet. The woman leaned close. Her breath smelled of wine. If you have no smile for me, tell me how you captured Winterfell. Abel will put it in a song, and you will live forever. As a betrayer, as Theon Turncloak, why not Theon the Clever? It was a daring feat, the way we heard it. How many men did you have? A hundred? Fifty? Fewer. It was madness. Glorious madness. Stannis has five thousand, they say, but Abel claims ten times as many still could not breach these walls. So how did you get in, my lord? Did you have some secret way? I had ropes, Theon thought. I had grapnels, I had darkness on my side, and surprise. The castle was but lightly held, and I took them unawares. But he said none of that. If Abel made a song about him, like as not, Ramsay would prick his eardrums to make certain that he never heard it. You can trust me, my lord. Abel does. The washerwoman put her hand upon his own. His hands were gloved in wool and leather. Hers were bare, long-fingered, rough, with nails chewed to the quick. You never asked my name. It's Rowan. Theon wrenched away. This was a ploy, he knew it. Ramsay sent her. She's another of his japes, like Kyra with the keys. A jolly jape, that's all. He wants me to run so he can punish me. He wanted to hit her to smash that mocking smile off her face. He wanted to kiss her, to fuck her right there on the table and make her cry his name. But he knew he dare not touch her, in anger or in lust. Reek, Reek, my name is Reek, or I must not forget my name. He jerked to his feet and made his way wordlessly to the doors, limping on his maimed feet. Outside, the snow was falling still. Wet, heavy, silent, it had already begun to cover the footsteps left by the men coming and going from the hall. The drifts came almost to the top of his boots. 
it will be deeper in the wolf's wood, and out on the king's road, where the wind is blowing, there will be no escape from it. A battle was being fought in the yard. Risewell's pelting Barrington boys with snowballs. Above, he could see some squires building snowmen along the battlements. They were arming them with spears and shields, putting iron half-helms on their heads, and arraying them along the inner wall, a rank of snowy sentinels. Lord Winter has joined us with his levies, one of the sentries outside the great hall draped, until he saw Theon's face and realized who he was talking to. Then he turned his head and spat. Beyond the tents, the big destriers of the knights from White Harbour and the twins were shivering in their horse lines. Ramsay had burned the stables when he sacked Winterfell, so his father had thrown up new ones, twice as large as the old, to accommodate the war horses and palfreys of his lord's bannermen and knights. The rest of the horses were tethered in the wards. Hooded grooms moved amongst them, covering them with blankets to keep them warm. Theon made his way deeper into the ruined parts of the castle. As he picked through the shattered stone that had once been Maester Lewin's turret, ravens looked down from the gash in the wall above, muttering to one another. From time to time one would let out a raucous scream. He stood in the doorway of a bedchamber that had once been his own, ankle-deep in snow that had blown in through a shattered window, visited the ruins of Micken's Forge and Lady Caitlin's Sept. Beneath a burned tower he passed Rickard Risewell nuzzling at the neck of another one of Abel's washerwomen, the plump one with the apple cheeks and pug nose. The girl was barefoot in the snow, bundled up in a fur cloak. He thought she might be naked underneath. When she saw him, she said something to Risewell that made him laugh aloud. Theon trudged away from them. There was a stair beyond the mews, seldom used. It was there his feet took him. The steps were steep and treacherous. He climbed carefully and found himself alone, on the battlements of the inner wall, well away from the squires and their snowmen. No one had given him freedom of the castle, but no one had denied it to him either. He could go where he would within the walls. Winterfell's inner wall was the older and taller of the two, its ancient grey crenellations rising one hundred feet high, with square towers at every corner. The outer wall, raised many centuries later, was twenty feet lower, but thicker and in better repair, boasting octagonal towers in place of square ones. Between the two walls was the moat, deep and wide and frozen. Drifts of snow had begun to creep across its icy surface. Snow was building up along the battlements too, filling the gaps between the merlons and putting pale soft caps on every tower top. Beyond the walls, as far as he could see, the world was turning white. The woods, the fields, the king's road, the snows were covering all of them beneath a pale soft mantle burying the remnants of the winter town, hiding the blackened walls Ramsay's men had left behind when they put the houses to the torch. 
The wounds snow made, snow conceals. But that was wrong. Ramsay was a Bolton now, not a snow, never a snow. Farther off, the rutted King's Road had vanished, lost amidst the fields and rolling hills, all one vast expanse of white. And still the snow was falling, drifting down in silence from a windless sky. Stannis Baratheon is out there somewhere, freezing. Would Lord Stannis try and take Winterfell by storm? If he does, his cause is doomed. The castle was too strong. Even with the moat frozen over, Winterfell's defences remained formidable. Theon had captured the castle by stealth, sending his best men to scale the walls and swim the moat under the cover of darkness. The defenders had not even known they were under attack until it was too late. No such subterfuge was possible for Stannis. He might prefer to cut the castle off from the outside world and starve out its defenders. Winterfell's storerooms and cellar vaults were empty. A long supply train had come with Bolton and his friends of Frey up through the neck. Lady Dustin had brought food and fodder from Barrowton, and Lord Manderley had arrived well provisioned from White Harbour. But the host was large. With so many mouths to feed, their stores could not last for long. Lord Stannis and his men will be just as hungry, though, and cold and footsore as well, in no condition for a fight. But the storm will make them desperate to get inside the castle. Snow was falling on the god's wood, too, melting when it touched the ground. Beneath the white-cloaked trees, the earth had turned to mud. Tendrils of mist hung in the air like ghostly ribbons. Why did I come here? These are not my gods. This is not my place. The heart tree stood before him, a pale giant with a carved face and leaves like bloody hands. A thin film of ice covered the surface of the pool beneath the weirwood. Theon sank to his knees beside it. Please, he murmured through his broken teeth. I never meant... The words caught in his throat. Save me, he finally managed. Give me... What? Strength? Courage? Mercy? Snow fell around him, pale and silent, keeping its own counsel. The only sound was a faint, soft sobbing. Jane, he thought, it is her, sobbing in her bridal bed. Who else could it be? Gods do not weep, or do they? The sound was too painful to endure. Theon grabbed hold of a branch and pulled himself back to his feet, knocked the snow off his legs, and limped back toward the lights. There are ghosts in Winterfell, he thought, and I am one of them. More snowmen had risen in the yard by the time Theon Greyjoy made his way back. To command the snowy sentinels on the walls, the squires had erected a dozen snowy lords. One was plainly meant to be Lord Mandley. It was the fattest snowman that Theon had ever seen. The one-armed lord could only be Harwood Stout, the snow lady, Barbary Dusted, and the one closest the door with a beard made of icicles 
had to be old Horsbane Umber. Inside, the cooks were ladling out beef and barley stew, thick with carrots and onions, served in trenches hollowed from loaves of yesterday's bread. Scraps were thrown onto the floor to be gobbled up by Ramsay's girls and the other dogs. The girls were glad to see him. They knew him by his smell. Red Jane loped over to lick at his hand, and Hellicent slipped under the table and curled up by his feet, gnawing at a bone. They were good dogs. It was easy to forget that every one was named for a girl that Ramsay had hunted and killed. Weary as he was, Theon had appetite enough to eat a little stew, washed down with ale. By then the hall had grown raucous. Two of Bruce Bolton's scouts had come straggling back through the hunter's gate to report that Lord Stannis's advance had slowed to a crawl. His knights rode destrious, and the big war-horses were foundering in the snow. The small, sure-footed garrons of the hill clans were faring better, the scout said, but the clansmen dared not press too far ahead, or the whole host would come apart. Lord Ramsay commanded Abel to give them a marching song in honour of Stannis, trudging through the snows. So the bard took up his lute again, whilst one of his washerwomen coaxed the sword from Sir Allen, and mimed Stannis slashing at the snowflakes. Theon was staring down into the last dregs of his third tankard when Lady Barbary Dustin swept into the hall and sent two of her sworn swords to bring him to her. When he stood below the dais, she looked him up and down and sniffed, "'Those are the same clothes you wore for the wedding.' "'Yes, my lady. They are the clothes I was given.' That was one of the lessons he had learned at the Dreadfort, to take what he was given and never ask for more. Lady Dustin wore black as ever, though her sleeves were lined with bare. Her gown had a high stiff colour that framed her face. "'You know this castle?' "'Once.' Somewhere beneath us are the crypts where the old Stark kings sit in darkness. My men have not been able to find the way down into them. They have been through all the undercrofts and cellars, even the dungeons, but the crypts cannot be accessed from the dungeons, my lady. Can you show me the way down? There's nothing down there but dead Starks, I. "'and all my favourite Starks are dead, as it happens. "'Do you know the way or not?' "'I do. "'He did not like the Crips, had never liked the Crips, "'but he was no stranger to them. "'Show me. "'Sergeant, fetch a lantern.' "'My lady will want a warm cloak,' cautioned Theon. "'We will need to go outside.' "'The snow was coming down heavier than ever when they left the hall.' with Lady Dustin wrapped in sable. Huddled in their hooded cloaks, the guards outside were almost indistinguishable from the snowmen. Only their breath fogging the air gave proof that they still lived. Fires burned along the battlements, a vain attempt to drive the gloom away. Their small party found themselves slugging through a smooth, unbroken expanse of white that came halfway up their calves. The tents in the yard were half buried, sagging 
under the weight of the accumulation. The entrance to the crypts was in the older section of the castle, near the foot of the first keep, which had sat unused for hundreds of years. Ramsay had put it to the torch when he sacked Winterfell, and much of what had not burned had collapsed. Only a shell remained, one side open to the elements and filling up with snow. Rubble was strewn all about it, great chunks of shattered masonry, burned beams, broken gargoyles. The falling snow had covered almost all of it. But part of one gargoyle still poked above the drift, its grotesque face snarling sightless at the sky. This is where they found Bran when he fell. Theon had been out hunting that day, riding with Lord Eddard and King Robert, with no hint of the dire news that awaited them back at the castle. He remembered Rob's face when they told him. No one had expected the broken boy to live. The guards could not kill Bran, no more than I could. It was a strange thought, and stranger still to remember that Bran might still be alive. There, Theon pointed to where a snowbank had crept up the wall of the keep. Under there, watch for broken stones. It took Lady Dustin's men the better part of half an hour to uncover the entrance, shoveling through the snow and shifting rubble. When they did, the door was frozen shut. Her sergeant had to go find an axe before he could pull it open, hinges screaming, to reveal stone steps spiralling down into darkness. "'It's a long way down, my lady,' Theon cautioned. Lady Dustin was undeterred. "'Beron, the light!' The way was narrow and steep, the steps worn in the centre by centuries of feet. They went single file, the sergeant with the lantern, then Theon and Lady Dustin, her other man behind them. He had always thought of the crypts as cold, and so they seemed in summer, but now, as they descended, the air grew warmer. Not warm, never warm, but warmer than above. Down here below the earth, it would seem the chill was constant, unchanging. The bride weeps, Lady Dustin said, as they made their way down, step by careful step. Our little Lady Aria. Take care now, take care, take care. He put one hand on the wall. The shifting torchlight made the step seem to move beneath his feet. As, uh, as you say, my lady, Roos is not pleased. Tell your bastard that. He is not my bastard, he wanted to say, but another voice inside him said, He is, he is. Reek belongs to Ramsay, and Ramsay belongs to Reek. You must not forget your name. Dressing her in grey and white serves no good if the girl is left to sob. The Freys may not care, but the Northmen, they fear the dread fort, but they love the Sarks. Not you, said Theon. And not me, the Lady of Barreton confessed. But the rest, yes. Old Horsebane is only here because the Freys hold the great John captive. And do you imagine the Hornwood men have forgotten the bastard's last marriage, and how his lady wife was left to starve, 
chewing her own fingers? What do you think passes through their heads when they hear the new bride weeping? Valiant Ned's precious little girl. No, he thought, she is not of Lord Eddard's blood. Her name is Jane. She is only a steward's daughter. He did not doubt that Lady Dustin suspected, but even so. Lady Aria's subs do us more harm than all of Lord Stannis's swords and spears. If the bastard means to remain Lord of Winterfell, he had best teach his wife to laugh. My lady, Theon broke in, here we are. The steps go further down, observed Lady Dustin. There are lower levels, older. The lowest level is partly collapsed, I hear. I've never been down there. He pushed the door open and led them out into a long vaulted tunnel where mighty granite pillars marched two by two into blackness. Lady Dustin's sergeant raised the lantern. Shadows slid and shifted. A small light in a great darkness. Theon had never felt comfortable in the crypts. He could feel the stone kings staring down at him with their stone eyes, stone fingers curled around the hilts of rusted longswords. None had any love for Ironborn. A familiar sense of dread filled him. So many, Lady Dostin said. Do you know their names? Once, but it was a long time ago, Theon pointed. The ones on this side were kings in the north. Turin was the last. The king who knelt. I, my lady. After him, they were only lords. Until the young wolf. Where is Ned Stark's tomb? At the end. This way, my lady. Their footsteps echoed through the vaults as they made their way between the rows of pillars. The stone eyes of the dead men seemed to follow them, and the eyes of their stone direwolves as well. The faces stirred faint memories. A few names came back to him, unbidden, whispered in the ghostly voice of Maester Lewin. King Edric Snowbeard, who had ruled the North for a hundred years, Brandon the shipwright, who had sailed beyond the sunset, Theon Stark, the hungry wolf, my namesake, Lord Baron Stark, who made common cause with Castle Rock to war against Dagon Greyjoy, Lord of Pike, in the days when the Seven Kingdoms were ruled in all but name by the bastard sorcerer men called Bloodraven. That king is missing his sword, Lady Dustin observed. It was true. Theon did not recall which king it was, but the long sword he should have held was gone. Streaks of rust remained to show where it had been. The sight disquieted him. He had always heard that the iron in the sword kept the spirits of the dead locked within their tombs. If a sword was missing, there are ghosts in Winterfell, and I am one of them. They walked on. Barbary Dustin's face seemed to harden with every step. She likes his place no more than I do. Theon heard himself say, My lady, why do you hate the Starks? She studied him. For the same reason you love them. Theon stumbled. Love them? I never, 
I took this castle from them, my lady. I had had Bran and Rickon put to death, mounted their heads on spikes. I rode south with Rob Stark, fought beside him at the Whispering Wood and River Run, returned to the Iron Islands as his envoy to treat with your own father. Barriton sent men with the young wolves as well. I gave them as few men as I dared, but I knew that I must needs give him some or risk the wrath of Winterfell. So I had my own eyes and ears in that host. They kept me well informed. I know who you are. I know what you are. Now answer my question. Why do you love the Starks? I, um, see, I'm put a gloved hand against the pillar. I wanted to be one of them and never could. We have more in common than you know, my lord, but come. Only a little farther on, three tombs were closely grouped together. That was where they halted. Lord Rickard, Lady Dustin observed, studying the central figure. The statue loomed above them, long-faced, bearded, solemn. He had the same stone eyes as the rest, but his looked sad. He lacks a sword as well. It was true. Someone has been down here stealing swords. Brandon's is gone as well. He would hate that. She pulled off her glove and touched his knee, pale flesh against dark stone. Brandon loved his sword. He loved to hone it. I want it sharp enough to shave the hair from a woman's cunt, he used to say and how he loved to use it. A bloody sword is a beautiful thing, he told me once. You knew him, Theon said. The lantern light in her eyes made them seem as if they were afire. Brandon was fostered at Barreton with old Lord Dustin, the father of the one I'd later wed, but he spent most of his time riding the rills. He loved to ride. His little sister took after him in that. A pair of centaurs, those two. And my lord father was always pleased to play host to the heir to Winterfell. My father had great ambitions for House Risewell. He would have served up my maidenhead to any Stark who happened by. But there was no need. Brandon was never shy about taking what he wanted. I'm old now, a dried-up thing. Too long a widow, but I still remember the look of my maiden's blood on his cock the night he claimed me. I think Brandon liked the sight as well. A bloody sword is a beautiful thing, yes. It hurt, but it was a sweet pain. The day I learned that Brandon was to marry Caitlin Tully, though, there was nothing sweet about that pain. He never wanted her. I promise you that. He told me so on our last night together, but Rickard Stark had great ambitions too, Southron ambitions that would not be served by having his heir marry the daughter of one of his own vassals. Afterward, my father nursed some hope of wedding me to Brandon's brother, Eddard, but Caitlin Tully got that one as well. I was left with young Lord Dustin, until Ned Stark took him from me. Robert's rebellion 
Lord Dustin and I had not been married half a year when Robert Rose and Ned Stark called his banners. I begged my husband not to go. He had kin he might have sent in his stead. An uncle famed for his prowess with an axe, a great uncle who had fought in the war of the ninepenny kings. But he was a man and full of pride. Nothing would serve but that he lead the Barrington levies himself. I gave him a horse the day he set out, a red stallion with a fiery mane, the pride of my lord father's herds. My lord swore that he would ride him home when the war was done. Ned Stark returned the horse to me on his way back home to Winterfell. He told me that my lord had died an honourable death, that his body had been laid to rest beneath the red mountains of dawn. He brought his sister's bones back north, though, and there she rests. But I promise you, Lord Eddard's bones will never rest beside hers. I mean to feed them to my dogs. Theon did not understand. His, his bones? Her lips twisted. It was an ugly smile, a smile that reminded him of Ramsay's. Caitlin Tolly dispatched Lord Eddard's bones north before the Red Wedding. But your iron uncle seized Moat Caelan and closed the way. I have been watching ever since. Should those bones ever emerge from the swamps, they will get no farther than Barriton. She threw one last lingering look at the likeness of Eddard Stark. We are done here. The snowstorm was still raging when they emerged from the crypts. Lady Dustin was silent during their ascent. But when they stood beneath the ruins of the first keep again, she shivered and said, You would do well not to repeat anything I might have said down there. Is that understood? It was. Oh, my tongue, or lose it. Ruth has trained you well. She left him there. The King's Prize The King's host departed Deepwood Mott by the light of a golden dawn, uncoiling from behind the log palisades like a long steel serpent emerging from its nest. The southern knights rode out in plate and mail, dinted and scarred by the battles they had fought, but still bright enough to glitter when they caught the rising sun. Faded and stained, Torn and mended, their banners and surcoats still made a riot of colours amidst the winter wood. Asia and orange, red and green, purple and blue and gold, glimmering amongst bare brown trunks, grey-green pines and sentinels, drifts of dirty snow. Each knight had his squires, servants, and men-at-arms. Behind them came armourers, cooks, grooms. Ranks of spearmen, axemen, archers, grizzled veterans of a hundred battles, and green boys off to fight their first. Before them marched the clansmen from the hills, chiefs and champions astride shaggy garrons, their hirsute fighters trotting beside them, clad in furs and boiled leather and old mail. Some painted their faces 
brown and green, and tied bundles of brush about them to hide amongst the trees. Back of the main column, the baggage train followed. Mules, horses, oxen, a mile of wains and carts laden with food, fodder, tents, and other provisions. Last the rear guard, more knights in plate and mail, with a screening of outriders following half-hidden, to make certain no foe could steal up on them unawares. Asher Greyjoy rode in the baggage train, in a covered wain, with two huge iron-rim wheels, fettered at wrist and ankle, and watched over day and night by a she-bear who snored worse than any man. His grace King Stannis was taking no chances on his prize escaping captivity. He meant to carry her to Winterfell to display her there in chains for the lords of the north to see. The Kraken's daughter, bound and broken, proof of his power. Trumpet saw the column on its way. Spare points shone in the light of the rising sun, and all along the verges the grass glistened with a morning frost. Between Deepwood Mott and Winterfell lay one hundred leagues of forest, three hundred miles as the raven flies. Fifteen days, the knights told each other. Robert would have done it in ten, Asher heard Lord Fell boasting. His grandsire had been slain by Robert at Summerhall. Somehow this had elevated his slayer to godlike prowess in the grandson's eyes. Robert would have been inside Winterfell a fortnight ago, thumbing his nose at Bolton from the battlements. Best not mention that to Stannis, suggested Justin Massey, or he'll have us marching nights as well as days. This king lives in his brother's shadow, Asher thought. Her ankle still gave a stab of pain whenever she tried to put her weight on it. Something was broken down inside. Asher did not doubt. The swelling had gone down at Deepwood, but the pain remained. A sprain would surely have healed by now. Her arms clacked every time she moved. The fetters chafed at her wrist and at her pride. But that was the cost of submission. No man has ever died from bending his knee, her father had once told her. He who kneels may rise again. Blade in hand. He who will not kneel stays dead, stiff legs and all. Balin Greyjoy had proved the truth of his own words when his first rebellion failed. The Kraken bent the knee to Stag and Direwolf, only to rise again when Robert Baratheon and Eddard Stark were dead. And so at Deepwood the Kraken's daughter had done the same when she was dumped before the king bound and limping, though blessedly unraped, her ankle a blaze of pain. I yield, your grace. Do as you wish with me. I ask only that you spare my men. Carl and Triss and the rest who had survived the wolf's wood were all she had to care about. Only nine remained. We ragged nine, Crumb named them. He was the worst wounded. Stannis had given her their lives, yet she sensed no true mercy in the man. He was determined beyond a doubt, nor did he lack for courage. Men said he was just, and if his was a harsh, 
hard-handed sort of justice, well, life on the Iron Islands had accustomed Asher Greyjoy to that. All the same, she could not like this king. Those deep-set blue eyes of his seemed always slitted in suspicion, cold fury boiling just below their surface. Her life meant little and less to him. She was only his hostage, a prize to show the North that he could vanquish the Ironborn. More fool him. Bringing down a woman was not like to awe any Northman, if she knew the breed, and her worth as a hostage was less than naught. Her uncle ruled the Iron Islands now, and the crow's eye would not care if she lived or died. It might matter some to the wretched ruin of a husband that Urin had inflicted upon her, but Eric Ironmaker did not have coin enough to ransom her. But there was no explaining such things to Stannis Baratheon. Her very womanhood seemed to offend him. Men from the Greenlands liked their women soft and sweet in silk, she knew, not clad in mail and leather, with a throwing axe in each hand. But her short acquaintance with the king at Deepwood Mott convinced her that he would have been no more fond of her in a gown. Even with Gorbert Glover's wife, the pious Lady Sabelle, he had been correct and courteous, but plainly uncomfortable. This southern king seemed to be one of those men to whom women are another race, as strange and unfathomable as giants and grumpkins and the children of the forest. The she-bear made him grind his teeth as well. There was only one woman that Stannis listened to, and he had left her on the wall. Though I would sooner she was with us, confessed Sir Justin Massey, the fair-haired knight who commanded the baggage train. The last time we went into battle without Lady Melisandre was the Blackwater, when Lord Renly's shade came down upon us and drove half our host into the bay. The last time, Asher said, was this sorceress at Deepwood Mott. I, I did not see her. Hardly a battle, Sir Justin said, smiling. Your iron men fought bravely, my lady, but we had many times your numbers, and we took you unawares. Winterfell will know that we are coming, and Roose Bolton has as many men as we do. Or more, thought Asher. Even prisoners have ears, and she had heard all the talk at Deepwood Mott when King Stannis and his captains were debating this march. Sir Justin had opposed it from the start, along with many of the knights and lords who had come with Stannis from the south. But the wolves insisted. Roose Bolton could not be suffered to hold Winterfell, and the Ned's girl must be rescued from the clutches of his bastard. So said Morgan Little, Brandon Norrie, Big Bucket Wall, the Flints, even the She-Bear. One hundred leagues from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell, said Artus Flint, the night the argument boiled to a head in Gorbert Glover's longhorn. Three hundred miles as raven flies. A long march, a knight named Corliss Penny said. Not so long as that, insisted Sir Godry, the big knight, the others called the giant slayer. We have come as far already. 
the Lord of Light will blaze a path for us. And when we arrive before Winterfell, said Justin Massey, two walls with a moat between them, and the inner wall a hundred feet high. Bolton will never march out to face us in the field, and we do not have the provisions to mount a siege. Iron of Carstock will join his strength to ours, never forget, said Harwood Fell. Moore's umber as well. We will have as many Northmen as Lord Bolton, and the woods are thick north of the castle. We will raise siege towers, build rams. And die by the thousands, Asher thought. We might do best to winter here, suggested Lord Peasbury. Winter here, Big Bucket roared. How much food and fodder do you think Gorbert Glover has laid by? Then Sir Richard Hawke, the knight with a ravaged face, and the death's head muffs on his surcoat, turned to Stannis and said, Your Grace, your brother. The king cut him off. We all know what my brother would do. Robert would gallop up to the gates of Winterfell alone, break them with his war hammer, and ride through the rubble to slay Roos Bolton with his left hand and the bastard with his right. Stannis rose to his feet. I am not Robert. But we will march, and we will free Winterfell, or die in the attempt. Whatever doubts his lords might nurse, the common men seemed to have faith in their king. Stannis had smashed Mance Raider's wildings at the wall, and cleaned Asher and her ironborn out of Deepwood Mott. He was Robert's brother, victor in a famous sea battle or Fair Isle, the man who had held Storm's End all through Robert's rebellion. And he bore a hero's sword, the enchanted blade Lightbringer, whose glow lit up the night. Our foes are not as formidable as they appear, Sir Justin assured Asher on the first day of the march. Roose Bolton is feared but little loved, and his friends, the Fays, the North has not forgotten the Red Wedding. Every lord at Winterfell lost kinsmen there. Stannis need only bloody Bolton, and the Northmen will abandon him. So you hope, thought Asher. But first the king must bloody him. Only a fool deserts the winning side. Sir Justin called upon her cart half a dozen times that first day to bring her food and drink and tidings of the march. A man of easy smiles and endless japes, large and well-fleshed, with pink cheeks, blue eyes, and a wind-tossed tangle of white blonde hair as pale as flax. He was a considerate jailer, ever solicitous of his captive's comfort. "'He wants you,' said the she-bear, after his third visit. Her proper name was Alassane of House Mormont, but she wore the other name as easily as she wore her male, short, chunky, muscular, the heir to Bear Island had big thighs, big breasts, and big hands ridged with callus. Even in sleep, she wore ringmail under her furs, boiled leather under that, and an old sheepskin under the leather, turned inside out for warmth. All those layers made her look almost as wide as she was tall. And ferocious! Sometimes it was hard for Asher Greyjoy to remember that she and the she-bear were almost of an age.
He wants my lands, Asher replied. He wants the Iron Islands. She knew the signs. She had seen the same before in other suitors. Massey's own ancestral holdings, far to the south, were lost to him. So he must needs make an advantageous marriage or resign himself to being no more than a knight of the king's household. Stannis had frustrated Sir Justin's hopes of marrying the wilding princess that Asher had heard so much of, so now he had set his sights on her. No doubt he dreamed of putting her in the sea stone chair on Pike and ruling through her as her lord and master. That would require ridding her of her present lord and master, to be sure, not to mention the uncle who had married her to him. Not likely, Asher judged. The crow's eye could eat Sir Justin to break his fast and never even belch. It made no matter. Her father's lands would never be hers, no matter whom she married. The ironborn were not a forgiving people, and Asher had been defeated twice. Once at the king's moot by her uncle Euron, and again at Deepwood Mott by Stannis. More than enough to stamp her as unfit to rule. Wedding Justin Massey, or any of Stannis Baratheon's lordlings, would hurt more than it helped. The Kraken's daughter turned out to be just a woman after all, the captains and the kings would say. See how she spreads her legs for this soft-green landlord. Still, if Sir Justin wished to court her favour with food and wine and words, Asher was not like to discourage him. He made for better company than the taciturn she-bear, and she was elsewise alone amongst five thousand foes. Tris Botley, Carl the Maid, Crum, Rogan, and the rest of her blooded band had been left behind at Deepwood Mott in Gorbert Glover's dungeons. The army covered twenty-two miles the first day, by the reckoning of the guides Lady Isabel had given them. Trackers and hunters sworn to Deepwood with clan names like Forester and Woods, Branch and Bowl. The second day the host made twenty-four, as their vanguard passed beyond the Glover lands into the thick of the Wolfswood. Relor, send your light to lead us through this gloom, the faithful prayed that night as they gathered about a roaring blaze outside the king's pavilion. Southern knights and men-at-arms, the lot of them. Asher would have called them king's men, but the other stormlanders and crownlands men named them queen's men, though the queen they followed was the red one at Castle Black, not the wife that Stannis Baratheon had left behind at East Watch by the Sea. O Lord of Light, we beseech you, cast your fiery eye upon us and keep us safe and warm, they sang to the flames, for the night is dark and full of terrors. A big knight named Sir Godry Faring led them. Godry the Giant Slayer, a big name for a small man. Faring was broad-chested and well-muscled, under his plate and mail. He was also arrogant and vain, it seemed to Asher, hungry for glory, deaf to caution, 
a glutton for praise, and contemptuous of small folk, wolves, and women. In the last, he was not unlike his king. Let me have a horse, Asher asked Sir Justin, when he rode up to the wain with half a ham. I am going mad in these chains. I will not attempt escape. You have my word on that. Would that I could, my lady. You are the king's captive, not mine own. Your king will not take a woman's word. The she-bear growled. Why should we trust the word of any iron man after what your brother did at Winterfell? I am not Theon, Asher insisted, but the chains remained. As Sir Justin galloped down the column, she found herself remembering the last time she had seen her mother. It had been on Harlow, at Ten Towers. A candle had been flickering in her mother's chamber, but her great carved bed was empty beneath its dusty canopy. Lady Alanis sat beside a window, staring out across the sea. Did you bring my baby boy? She'd asked, mouth trembling. Theon could not come, Asher had told her, looking down upon the ruin of the woman who had given her birth, a mother who had lost two of her sons, and a third. I send you each a piece of prince. Whatever befell when battle was joined at Winterfell, Asher Greyjoy did not think her brother likely to survive it. Theon Turncloak, even the she-bear, wants his head on a spike. Do you have brothers? Asher asked her keeper. Sisters, Alisane Mormont replied, gruff as ever. Five we were, all girls. Lyanna is back on Bear Island. Lyra and Jory are with our mother. Daisy was murdered. The Red Wedding? Aye, Alisane stared at Asher for a moment. I have a son. He's only two. My daughter's nine. You started young. Too young, but better that than wait too late. A stab at me, Asher thought. But let it be. You are wed. No, my children were fathered by a bear. Alison smiled. Her teeth were crooked, but there was something ingratiating about that smile. Mormon women are skin changers. We turn into bears and find mates in the woods. Everyone knows. Asher smiled back. Mormon women are all fighters too. The other woman's smile faded. What we are is what you made us. On Bear Island, every child learns to fear krakens rising from the sea. The old way. Asher turned away, chains clinking faintly. On the third day, the forest pressed close around them, and the rutted roads dwindled down to game trails that soon proved to be too narrow for their larger wagons. Here and there they wound their way past familiar landmarks, a stony hill that looked a bit like a wolf's head when seen from a certain angle, a half-frozen waterfall, a natural stone arch bearded with grey-green moss. Asher knew them all. She had come this way before, riding to Winterfell to persuade her brother Theon to abandon his conquest and return with her to the safety of Deepwood Mott. I failed in that as well. 
That day they made fourteen miles, and were glad of it. When dusk fell, the driver pulled the wain off under the tree. As he was loosing the horses from the traces, Sir Justin trotted up and undid the fetters around Asher's ankles. He and the she-bear escorted her through the camp to the king's tent. A captive she might be, but she was still a greyjoy of pike, and it pierced Sanus Baratheon to feed her scraps from his own table, where he supped with his captains and commanders. The king's pavilion was near as large as the long hall back at Deepwood Mott, but there was little grand about it beyond its size. Its stiff walls of heavy yellow canvas were badly faded, stained by mud and water, with spots of mildew showing. Atop its centre pole flew the royal standard, golden, with a stag's head within a burning heart. On three sides the pavilions of the southern lordlings, who had come north with Stannis, surrounded it. On the fourth side the night fire roared, lashing at the darkening sky with swirls of flame. A dozen men were splitting lugs to feed the blaze when Asher came limping up with her keepers. Queen's men, their god was Red Relore, and a jealous god he was. Her own god, the drowned god of the Iron Isles, was a demon to their eyes, and if she did not embrace this lord of light, she would be damned and doomed. They would as gladly burn me as those logs and broken branches. Some had urged that very thing within her hearing after the battle in the woods. Stannis had refused. The king stood outside his tent, staring into the night fire. What does he see there? Victory? Doom? The face of his red and hungry god? His eyes were sunk in deep pits, his close-cropped beard no more than a shadow across his hollow cheeks and bony jawbone. Yet there was power in his stare, an iron ferocity that told Asher this man would never, ever turn back from his course. She went to one knee before him. Sire, am I humbled enough for you, your grace? Am I beaten, bowed, and broken sufficiently for your liking? Strike these chains for my wrists, I beg you. Let me ride. I will attempt no escape. Stannis looked at her as he might look at a dog who presumed to hump against his leg. You earned those irons. I did. Now I offer you my men, my ships, my wits. Your ships are mine, or burnt. Your men. How many are left? Ten? Twelve? Nine? Six, if you count only those strong enough to fight. Dagmar Clefjaw holds Torren Square, a fierce fighter and a leal servant of House Greyjoy. I can deliver that castle to you and its garrison as well. Perhaps, she might have added, but it would not serve her cause to show dot before this king. Torian Square is not worth a mud beneath my heels. It is Winterfell that matters. 
Strike off these irons and let me help you take it, sire. Your grace's royal brother was renowned for turning fallen foes into friends. Make me your man. The guards did not make your man. How can I? Stannis turned back to the nightfire, and whatever he saw dancing there amongst the orange flames. Sir Justin Massey grasped Asher by the arm and pulled her inside the royal tent. That was ill judged, my lady, he told her. Never speak to him of Robert. I should have known better. Asher knew how it went with little brothers. She remembered Theon as a boy, a shy child who lived in awe and fear of Rudrick and Maron. They never grow out of it, she decided. A little brother may live to be a hundred, but he will always be a little brother. She rattled her iron jewellery, and imagined how pleasant it would be to step up behind Stannis and throttle him with the chain that bound her wrists. They supped that night on a venison stew, made from a scrawny heart that a scout called Benjicott Branch had brought down. But only in the royal tent, beyond those canvas walls, each man got a heel of bread and a chunk of black sausage no longer than a finger, washed down with the last of Gorbett Glover's ale. One hundred leagues from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell, three hundred miles as the raven flies, and would that we were ravens, Justin Massey said, on the fourth day of the march, the day the snow began to fall. Only a few small flurries at first, cold and wet, but nothing they could not push through easily. But it snowed again, the next day, and the day after, and the day after that. The thick beards of the wolves were soon caked with ice, where their breath had frozen, and every clean-shaven southern boy was letting his whiskers grow out to keep his face warm. Before long, the ground ahead of the column was blanketed in white, concealing stones and twisted roots and deadfalls, turning every step into an adventure. The wind picked up as well, driving the snow before it. The king's host became a column of snowmen, staggering through knee-high drifts. On the third day of snow, the king's host began to come apart. Whilst the southern knights and lordlings struggled, the men of the northern hills fared better. Their garrons were sure-footed beasts that ate less than the palfreys, and much less than the big destriers, and the men who rode them were at home in the snow. Many of the wolves donned curious footwear, bear paws, they call them, queer elongated things made with bent wood and leather strips, lashed onto the bottoms of their boots, the things somehow allowed them to walk on top of the snow without breaking through the crust and sinking down to their thighs. Some had bare paws for their horses, too, and the shaggy little garrons wore them as easily as other mounts wore iron horseshoes. But the palfreys and destriers wanted no part of them. When a few of the king's knights strapped them onto their feet, nonetheless, the big southern horses balked and refused to move or tried to shake the things off their feet. One destra broke an ankle, trying to walk in them. The Northmen, on their bare paws, 
soon began to outdistance the rest of the host. They overtook the knights in the main column, then Sir Godfrey Faring and his vanguard, and meanwhile the wains and wagons of the baggage train were falling farther and farther behind, so much so that the men of the rear guard were constantly chiving them to keep up a faster pace. On the fifth day of the storm, the baggage train crossed a rippling expanse of waist-high snowdrifts that concealed a frozen pond. When the hidden ice cracked beneath the weight of the wagons, three teamsters and four horses were swallowed up by the freezing water, along with two of the men who tried to rescue them. One was Harwood Fell. His knights pulled him out before he drowned, but not before his lips turned blue and his skin as pale as milk. Nothing they did could seem to warm him afterwards. He shivered violently for hours, even when they cut him out of his sudden clothes, wrapped him in warm furs, and set him by the fire. That same night he slipped into a feverish sleep. He never woke. That was the night that Asher first heard the Queen's men muttering about a sacrifice, an offering to their red god, so he might end the storm. The gods of the north have unleashed this storm on us, Sir Corliss Penny said. False gods, insisted Sir Godry, the giant slayer. Rilor is with us, said Sir Clayton Suggs. Melisandre is not, said Justin Massey. The king said nothing, but he heard. Asher was certain of that. He sat at the high table as a dish of onion soup cooled before him, hardly tasted, staring at the flame of the nearest candle with those hooded eyes ignoring the talk around him. The second-in-command, the lean, tall knight named Richard Horp, spoke for him. "'The storm must break soon,' he declared. But the storm only worsened. The wind became a lash as cruel as any slaver's whip. Asher thought she had known cold on Pike when the wind came howling off the sea, but that was nothing compared to this. "'This as a cold that drives men mad?' Even when the shot came down the line to make camp for the night, it was no easy thing to warm yourself. The tents were damp and heavy, hard to raise, harder to take down, and prone to sudden collapse if too much snow accumulated on top of them. The king's host was creeping through the heart of the largest forest in the Seven Kingdoms. Yet dry wood became difficult to find. Every camp saw fewer fires burning and those that were lit threw off more smoke than heat. Oft as not, food was eaten cold, even raw. Even the night fire shrank and grew feeble, to the dismay of the Queen's men. Lord of light, preserve us from this evil, they prayed, led by the deep voice of Sir Godfrey the giant slayer. Show us your bright sun again. Still these winds and melt these snows, that we may reach your foes and smite them. The night is dark and cold and full of terrors, but yours is the power and glory and the light. Rilor 
Fill us with your fire. Later, when Sir Corliss Penny wondered aloud whether an entire army had ever frozen to death in a winter storm, the wolves laughed. This is no winter, declared Big Bucket Wall. Up in the hills, we say that autumn kisses you, but winter fucks you hard. This is only autumn's kiss. God grant that I never know true winter, then. Asher herself was spared the worst of it. She was the king's prize, after all. Whilst others hungered, she was fed. Whilst others shivered, she was warm. Whilst others struggled through the snows atop weary horses, she rode upon a bed of furs inside a wain, with a stiff canvas roof to keep the snow off, comfortable in her chains. The horses and the common men had it hardest. Two squires from the Stormlands stabbed a man-at-arms to death in a quarrel over who would sit closest to the fire. The next night, some archers, desperate for warmth, somehow managed to set their tent afire, which had at least the virtue of heating the adjacent tents. Destriers began to perish of exhaustion and exposure. What is a knight without a horse? men riddled. A snowman with a sword. Any horse that went down was butchered on the spot for meat. Their provisions had begun to run low as well. Peasbury, Cobb, Foxglove, and other southern lords urged the king to make camp until the storm had passed. Stannis would have none of that. Nor would he heed the queen's men when they came to urge him to make an offering to their hungry red god. That tale she had from Justin Massey, who was less devout than most. A sacrifice will prove our faith still burns true, sire, Clayton Suggs had told the king. And Godfrey, the giant slayer, said, The old gods of the north have sent this storm upon us. Only Rilor can end it. We must give him an unbeliever. Half my army is made up of unbelievers. Stannis had replied, I will have no burnings. Pray harder. No burnings today and none tomorrow. But if the snows continue, how long before the king's resolve begins to weaken? Asher had never shared her uncle Aaron's faith in the drowned god. But that night she prayed as fervently to he who dwells beneath the waves as ever the damp hair had. The storm did not abate. The march continued, slowing to a stagger, then a crawl. Five miles was a good day, then three, then two. By the ninth day of the storm, every camp saw the captains and commanders entering the king's tent, wet and weary, to sink to one knee and report their losses for the day. One man dead, three missing. Six horses lost, one of them mine own. Two dead men, one a night, four horses down. We got one up again. The others are lost, destriers, and one palfrey. The cold count, Asher heard it named. The baggage train suffered the worst. Dead horses, lost men, wains overturned and broken. The horses founder in the snow, Justin Massey told the king. Men wander off, 
or just sit down to die? Let them, King Stannis snapped. We press on. The Northmen fared much better, with their garrons and their bear paws. Black Donald Flint and his half-brother Artus only lost one man between them. The Liddles, the Walls, and the Norris lost none at all. One of Morgan Liddle's mules had gone astray, but he seemed to think the Flints had stolen him. One hundred leagues from Deepwood Mott to Winterfell, three hundred miles as a raven flies, fifteen days. The fifteenth day of the march came and went, and they had crossed less than half the distance. A trail of broken wains and frozen corpses stretched back behind them, buried beneath the blowing snow. The sun and moon and stars had been gone so long that Asher was starting to wonder whether she had dreamed them. It was the twentieth day of the advance when she finally won free of her ankle chains. Late that afternoon, one of the horses drawing her wain died in the traces. No replacement could be found. What draft horses remained were needed to pull the wagons that held their food and fodder. When Sir Justin Massey rode up, he told them to butcher the dead horse for meat and break up the wagon for firewood. Then he removed the fetters from around Asher's ankles, rubbing the stiffness from her calves. "'I have no mount to give you, my lady,' he said. "'And if we tried to ride double, it would be the end of my horse's will.' You must walk. Asher's ankle throbbed beneath her weight with every step. The cold will numb it soon enough, she told herself. In an hour I won't feel my feet at all. She was only part wrong. It took less time than that. By the time darkness halted the column, she was stumbling and yearning for the comforts of her rolling prison. The irons made me weak. Supper found her so exhausted that she fell asleep at the table. On the twenty-sixth day of the fifteen-day march, the last of the vegetables was consumed. On the thirty-second day, the last of the grain and fodder. Asher wondered how long a man could live on raw, half-frozen horse meat. Branchwares were only three days from Winterville. Sir Richard Hawke told the king that night after the cold count. "'If we leave the weakest men behind,' said Corliss Penny. "'The weakest men are beyond saving,' insisted Hope. "'Those still strong enough must reach Winterfell, or die as well.' "'The Lord of Light will deliver us the castle,' said Sir Godfrey Faring. "'If Lady Melisandre were with us.' Finally, after a nightmarish day, when the column advanced a bare mile and lost a dozen horses and four men, Lord Peasbury turned against the Northmen. This march was madness. More dying every day, and for what? Some girl? Ned's girl, said Morgan Little. He was the second of three sons, so the other wolves called him Middle Little, though not often in his hearing. It was Morgan who had almost slain Asher in the fight by Deepwood Mott. He had come to her later, on the march, to beg her pardon for calling her cunt in his battle lost, not for trying to split her head open with an axe. 
Ned's girl, echoed Big Bucket Wool. And we should have had her and the castle both, if you prancing Southland jackanapes didn't piss your satin breeches at Little Snow. A Little Snow? Peasbury's soft, girlish mouth twisted in fury. Your ill counsel forced this march upon us, well. I am starting to suspect that you have been Bolton's creature all along. Is that the way of it? Did he send you to us to whisper poison in the king's ear? Big Bucket laughed in his face. Lord Peabod, if you were a man, I would kill you for that. But my sword is made of too fine a steel to besmirch with craven's blood. He took a drink of ale and wiped his mouth. Aye, men are dying. More will die before we see Winterfell. What of it? This is war. Men die in war. That is as it should be, as it has always been. Sir Corliss Penny gave the clan chief an incredulous look. Do you want to die, Wall? That seemed to amuse the Northman. I want to live forever, in a land where summer lasts a thousand years. I want a castle in the clouds where I can look down over the world. I want to be six and twenty again. <laughs> when I was six and twenty, I could fight all day and fuck all night. What men want does not matter. Winter is almost upon us, boy, and winter is death. I would sooner my men die fighting for the Ned's little girl than alone and hungry in the snow, weeping tears that freeze upon their cheeks. No one sings songs of men who die like that. As for me, I'm old. This will be my last winter. Let me bathe in Bolton blood. Before I die, I want to feel it spatter across my face when my axe bites deep into a Bolton skull. I want to lick it off my lips and die with the taste of it on my tongue. Aye, shouted Morgan Little, blood and battle. Then all the hillmen were shouting, banging their cups and drinking horns on the table, filling the king's tent with the clangor. Asher Greyjoy would have welcomed a fight herself. One battle to put an end to this misery. Steel on steel, pink snow, broken shields, and severed limbs. And it would all be done. The next day the king's scouts chanced upon an abandoned crofter's village between two lakes. A mean and meagre place. No more than a few huts, a long hall, and a watchtower. Richard Hawp commanded a halt, though the army had advanced no more than a half-mile that day, and they were hours shy of dark. It was well past moonrise before the baggage train and rear guard straggled in. Asher was amongst them. "'There are fish in those lakes,' Hawp told the king. "'We'll cut holes in the ice. The Northmen know how it's done.' Even in his bulky fur cloak and heavy armour, Stannis looked like a man with one foot in the grave. What little flesh he'd carried on his tall, spare frame at Deepwood Mott had melted away during the march. The shape of his skull could be seen under his skin, and his jaw was clenched so hard Asher feared his teeth might shatter.
fish, then,' he said, biting off each word with a snap. "'But we march at first light.' Yet when light came, the camp woke to snow and silence. The sky turned from black to white, and seemed no brighter. Asher Greyjoy awoke cramped and cold, beneath the pile of sleeping furs, listening to the she-bear snores. She had never known a woman snore so loudly, but she had grown used to it whilst on the march, and even took some comfort in it now. It was the silence that troubled her. No trumpets blew to rouse the men to mount up, form column, prepare to march. No war horns summoned forth the northmen. Something is wrong. Asher crawled out from under her sleeping furs and pushed her way out of the tent, knocking aside the wall of snow that had sealed them in during the night. Her irons clanked as she climbed to her feet and took a breath of the icy morning air. The snow was still falling, even more heavily than when she had crawled inside the tent. The lakes had vanished, and the woods as well. She could see the shapes of other tents and lean-tos, and the fuzzy orange glow of the beacon fire burning atop the watchtower, but not the tower itself. The storm had swallowed the rest. Somewhere ahead, Ruth Bolton awaited them, behind the walls of Winterfell. But Stannis Baratheon's host sat snowbound and unmoving, walled in by ice and snow, starving. Daenerys The candle was almost gone. Less than an inch remained jutting from a pool of warm melted wax to cast its light over the queen's bed. The flame had begun to gutter. It will go out before much longer, Danny realized, and when it does, another night will be at its end. Dawn always came too soon. She had not slept, could not sleep, would not sleep. She had not even dared to close her eyes, for fear it would be morning when she opened them again. If only she had the power, she would have made their nights go on forever, but the best that she could do was stay awake to try and savour every last sweet moment before daybreak turned them into no more than fading memories. Beside her, Dario Naharis was sleeping as peacefully as a newborn babe. He had a gift for sleeping, he'd boasted, smiling in that cocksure way of his. In the field, he would sleep in the saddle oft as not, he claimed, so as to be well rested should he come upon a battle. Sun or storm, it made no matter. A warrior who cannot sleep soon has no strength to fight, he said. He was never vexed by nightmares either. When Danny told him how servant of the mirror shield was haunted by the ghosts, of all the knights he'd killed. Daria only laughed. If the ones I killed come bother me, I will kill them all again. He has a sail-sword's conscience, she realized then. That is to say, not at all. Daria lay upon his stomach, the light linen coverlets tangled about his long legs, his face half buried in the pillows. 
Denny ran her hand down his back, tracing the line of his spine. His skin was smooth beneath her touch, almost hairless. His skin is silky and satin. She loved the feel of him beneath her fingers. She loved to run her fingers through his hair, to knead the ache from his calves after a long day in the saddle, to cup his cock and feel it harden against her palm. If she had been some ordinary woman, she would gladly have spent her whole life touching Dario, tracing his scars and making him tell her how he'd come by every one. I would give up my crown if he asked it of me, Danny thought, but he had not asked it and never would. Dario might whisper words of love when the two of them were as one, but she knew it was the dragon queen he loved. If I gave up my crown, he would not want me. Besides, kings who lost their crowns oft lost their heads as well, and she could see no reason why it would be any different for a queen. The candle flickered one last time and died, drowned in its own wax. Darkness swallowed the feather bed and its two occupants and filled every corner of the chamber. Danny wrapped her arms around her captain and pressed herself against his back. She drank in the scent of him, savoring the warmth of his flesh, the feel of his skin against her own. Remember, she told herself, remember how he felt. She kissed him on his shoulder. Dario rolled toward her, his eyes open. Daenerys, he smiled a lazy smile. That was another of his talents. He woke all at once, like a cat. Is it done? Not yet. We have a while still. Liar, I can see your eyes. Could I do that if it were the black of night? Dario kicked loose of the coverlets and sat up. The half-light. Day will be here soon. I do not want this night to end. No. And why is that, my queen? You know. The wedding. <laughs> he laughed. Marry me instead. You know, I cannot do that. You are a queen. You can do what you like. He slid a hand along her leg. How many nights remain to us? Two. Only two. You know as well as I, this night and the next, and we must end this. Marry me, and we can have all the nights forever. If I could, I would. Caldrogo had been her sun and stars, but he had been dead so long that Daenerys had almost forgotten how it felt to love and be loved. Dario had helped her to remember. I was dead, and he brought me back to life. I was asleep, and he woke me, my brave captain. Even so, of late he grew too bold. On the day that he had returned from his latest sortie, he had tossed the head of a youngish lord at her feet and kissed her in the hall for all the world to see until Barristan Selmy pulled the two of them apart. Sir Grandfather had been so wroth that Danny feared blood might be shed. We cannot wed, my love. You know why. He climbed from her bed. Marry his daughter, then, 
I will give him a nice set of horns for his wedding gift. Giscari men like to prance about in horns. They make them from their own hair, with combs and wax and irons. Dario found his breeches and pulled them on. He did not trouble himself with small clothes. Once I am wed, it will be high treason to desire me. Danny pulled the coverlet up over her breasts. Then I must be a traitor. He slipped a blue silk tunic over his head and straightened the prongs of his beard with his fingers. He had dyed it afresh for her, taking it from purple back to blue, as it had been when first she met him. A smell of you, he said, sniffing at his fingers and grinning. Danny loved the way his gold tooth gleamed when he grinned. She loved the fine hairs on his chest. She loved the strength in his arms, the sound of his laughter, the way he would always look into her eyes and say her name as he slid his cock inside her. You are beautiful, she blurted, as she watched him don his riding boots and lace them up. Some days he let her do that for him, but not today, it seemed. That's done with, too. Not beautiful enough to marry. Dario took his sword belt off the peg where he had hung it. Where are you going? Out into your city, he said, to drink a keg or two and pick a quarrel. It's been too long since I've killed a man. Might be I should seek out your betrothed. Danny threw a pillow at him. You will leave his star be. As my queen commands, will you hold court today? No, on the morrow I will be a woman wed, and his star will be king. Let him hold court. These are his people. Some are his, some are yours. The ones you freed. Are you chiding me? The ones you call your children. They want their mother. You are, you are chiding me. Only a little, Brightheart. Will you come hold court? After my wedding, perhaps. After the peace. This after that you speak of never comes. You should hold court. My new men do not believe that you are real. The ones who came over from the windblown, bred and born in Westeros, most of them, full of tales about Targaryens. They want to see one with their own eyes. The frog has a gift for you. The frog, she said, giggling. And who is he? He shrugged. Some Dornish boy. He squires for the big knight they call Green Guts. I told him he could give his gift to me and I'd deliver it. But he wouldn't have it. Oh, a clever frog. Give the gift to me. She threw the other pillow at him. Would I have ever seen it? Dario stroked his gilded mustachio. Would I steal from a sweet queen? If it were a gift worthy of you, I would have put it into your soft hands myself. As a token of your love. As to that, I will not say. But I told him that he could give it to you. You would not make a liar of Dario Naharis? Danny was helpless to refuse. As you wish, bring your frog to court tomorrow. The others, too, the Westerussi. It would be nice to hear the common tongue 
from someone besides the barrister. As may Queen commands, Dario bowed deeply, grinned, and took his leave, his cloak swirling behind him. Danny sat amongst the rumpled bedclothes with her arms about her knees. So forlorn, she did not hear when Missandei came creeping in with bread and milk and figs. Your grace, are you unwell? In the black of night this one heard you scream. Danny took a fig. It was black and plump, still moist with dew. Will Hestar ever make me scream? It was the wind that you heard screaming. She took a bite, but the fruit had lost its savour now that Dario was gone. Sighing, she rose and called to Iri for a robe, then wandered out onto her terrace. Her foes were all about her. There were never less than a dozen ships drawn up on the shore. Some days there were as many as a hundred when the soldiers were disembarking. The Yunkai were even bringing in wood by sea. Behind their ditches they were building catapults, scorpions, tall trebuchets. On still nights she could hear the hammers ringing through the warm, dry air. No siege towers, though, no battering rams. They would not try to take Marion by storm. They would wait behind their siege lines, flinging stones at her until famine and disease had brought her people to their knees. Hestar will bring me peace. He must. That night her cooks roasted her a kid with dates and carrots, but Danny could only eat a bite of it. The prospect of wrestling with Murrin once more left her feeling weary. Sleep came hard, even when Dario came back so drunk that he could hardly stand. Beneath her coverlets she tossed and turned, dreaming that his star was kissing her, but his lips were blue and bruised, and when he thrust himself inside her, his manhood was cold as ice. She sat up with her hair dishevelled and the bedclothes tangled. Her captain slept beside her, yet she was alone. She wanted to shake him, wake him, make him hold her, fuck her, help her forget. But she knew that if she did, he would only smile and yawn and say, It was just a dream, my queen. Go back to sleep. Instead, she slipped into a hooded robe and stepped out onto her terrace. She went to the parapet and stood there gazing down upon the city as she had done a hundred times before. It will never be my city. It will never be my home. The pale pink light of dawn found her still out on her terrace, asleep upon the grass beneath a blanket of fine dew. I promised Dario that I would hold court today, Daenerys told her handmaids when they woke her. Help me find my crown. Oh, and some clothes to wear, something late and cool. She made her descent an hour later. All kneel for Daenerys Stormborn, the unburnt, Queen of Meryn, a queen of the Andals, and the Roina, and the First Men, Khaleesi of Great Grassi, Breaker of Shackles, and Mother of Dragons, Missandei called. Resnick, Mo Resnick, bowed and beamed. Magnificence! Every day you grow more beautiful. 
I think the prospect of your wedding has given you a glow. <laughs> oh, my shining queen. Danny sighed. Summon the first petitioner. It had been so long that she had lost Hell Court that the crush of cases was almost overwhelming. The back of the hall was a solid press of people, and scuffles broke out over precedence. Inevitably, it was Galaza Galari who stepped forward. Her head held high, her face hidden behind a shimmering green veil. Your radiance, it might be best were we to speak in private. Would that I had the time, said Danny sweetly. I am to be wed upon the morrow. Her last meeting with the Green Grace had not gone well. What would you have of me? I would speak to you about the presumption of a certain self-thought captain. She dares say that in open court. Danny felt a blaze of anger. She has courage, I grant that. But if she thinks I'm about to suffer another scolding, she could not be more wrong. The treachery of brown brand plum has shocked us all, she said. But your warning comes too late. And now I know you will want to return to your temple to pray for peace. The green grace bowed. I shall pray for you as well. Another slap, thought Danny, color rising to her face. The rest was a tedium the queen knew well. She sat upon her cushions, listening, one foot jiggling with impatience. Jaquie brought a platter of figs and ham at midday. There seemed to be no end to the petitioners, for every two she sent off, smiling, one left red-eyed or muttering. It was close to sunset before Dario Naharis appeared with his new storm crows. The Westerossi who had come over to him from the windblown. Danny found herself glancing at them as yet another petitioner droned on and on. These are my people. I am their rightful queen. They seemed a scruffy bunch, but that was only to be expected of Selthords. The youngest could not have been more than a year older than she. The oldest must have seen sixty named days. A few sported signs of wealth. Gold armrings, silken tunics, silver-studded sword belts. Ah, plunder! For the most part their clothes were plainly made and showed signs of hard wear. When Dario brought them forward, she saw that one of them was a woman, big and blonde and all in mail. Pretty Maris, her captain named her. Though pretty was the last thing Danny would have called her. She was six feet tall and earless, with a slit nose, deep scars in both cheeks, and the coldest eyes the Queen had ever seen. As for the rest, Hugh Hungerford was slim and saturnine, long-legged, long-faced, clad in faded finery. Weber was short and muscular, with spiders tattooed across his head and chest and arms. Red-faced Orson Stone claimed to be a knight, as did lanky Lucifer Long. Will of the Woods leered at her, even as he took a knee. Dick Straw had cornflower blue eyes, hair as white as flax, and an unsettling smile. Ginger Jack's face 
was hidden behind a bristly orange beard, and his speech was unintelligible. He bit off half his tongue in his first battle, Hungerford explained to her. The Dornishman seemed different. If it please your grace, said Dario, these three are Gringotts, Gerald, and Frog. Gringotts was huge and bald as a stone, with arms thick enough to rival even strong Belwas. Gerald was a lean, tall youth with sun streaks in his hair and laughing blue-green eyes. That smile has won many a maiden's heart, I'll wager. His cloak was made of soft brown wool lined with sand silk, a goodly garment. Frog, the squire, was the youngest of the three, and the least impressive, a solemn, stocky lad, brown of hair and eye. His face was squarish, with a high forehead, heavy jaw, and broad nose. The stubble on his cheeks and chin made him look like a boy trying to grow his first beard. Danny had no inkling why anyone would call him Frog. Perhaps he can jump farther than the others. You may raise, she said. Dario tells me you come to us from Dorn. Dornishmen will always have a welcome at my court. Sunspear stayed loyal to my father when the usurper stole his throne. You must have faced many perils to reach me. Too many, said Gerald, the handsome one with the sun-streaked hair. We were six when we left dawn, your grace. I am sorry for your losses, the queen turned to his large companions. Greenguts is a queer sort of name. A jape, your grace, from the ships. I was greensick the whole way from Belantis, heaving and, uh, well, I shouldn't say... Danny giggled. I think I can guess, sir. It is, sir, is it not? Dario tells me that you are a knight. If it please your grace, we're all three knights. Danny glanced at Dario and saw anger flash across his face. He did not know. I have need of knights, she said. Sir Barristan's suspicions had awakened. Knighthood is easily claimed this far from Westeros. Are you prepared to defend that boast with sword or lance? If need be, said Geralt, though I will not claim that any of us is the equal of Barristan the Bold. Your Grace, I beg your pardon but we have come before you under false names. I knew someone else who did that once, said Danny, a man called Arston Whitebeard. Tell me your true names, then. Gladly. But if we may beg the Queen's indulgence, is there some place with fewer eyes and ears? Games within games. As you wish. Skahas, clear my court. The shave-pate roared out orders. His brazen beast did the rest, herding the other Westerossi and the rest of the day's petitioners from the hall. Her counsellors remained. Now, Danny said, your names. Handsome young Gerald bowed. Sir Geras, drink water, your grace. My sword is yours. Greenguts crossed his arms against his chest. And my war hammer, 
I am Sir Archibald Ironwood. And you, sir? The Queen asked the boy called Frog. If it please your grace, may I first present my gift? If you wish, Daenerys said, curious. But as Frog started forward, Dario Naharis stepped in front of him and held out a gloved hand. Give this gift to me. Stone-faced, the stocky lad bent, unlaced his boot, and drew a yellowed parchment from a hidden flap within. This is your gift, a scrap of writing? Dario snatched the parchment out of the Dornishman's hands and unrolled it, squinting at the seals and signatures. Very pretty, all the golden ribbons, but I do not read your Westerosi scratchings. Bring it to the Queen, Sir Barristan commanded. Now! Danny could feel the anger in the hall. I'm only a young girl, and young girls must have their gifts, she said lightly. Dario, please, you must not tease me. Give it here. The parchment was written in the common tongue. The Queen unrolled it slowly, studying the seals and signatures. When she saw the name Sir Willem Darry, her heart beat a little faster. She read it over once, and then again. "'May we know what it says, Your Grace?' asked Sir Barristan. "'It is a secret pact,' Danny said, "'made in Bravos when I was just a little girl. "'Sir William Darry, the man who spirited my brother and me away from Dragonstone "'before the usurper's men could take us, signed for us. "'Prince Oberyn Martel signed for Dawn, and the Sea Lord of Bravos was witness.' She handed the parchment to Sir Barristan, so he might read it for himself. The alliance is to be sealed by a marriage, it says, in return for Dorne's help overthrowing the usurper. My brother Viserys is to take Prince Doran's daughter Ariane for his queen. The old knight read the pack slowly. If Robert had known of this, he would have smashed Sunspear as he once smashed Pike and claimed the heads of Prince Doran and the Red Viper, and like as not, the head of this Dornish princess too. No doubt that was why Prince Doran chose to keep the pact a secret, suggested Daenerys. If my brother Viserys had known that he had a Dornish princess waiting for him, he would have crossed the Sunspear as soon as he was old enough to wed, and thereby brought Robert's warhammer down upon himself and Dorne as well, said Frog. My father was content to wait for the day that Prince Viserys found his army. Your father, Prince Dorne, he sank back onto one knee. Your grace, I have the honour to be Quentin Martell, a prince of Dorne, and your most leal subject. Danny laughed. The Dornish prince flushed red whilst her own court and councillors gave her puzzled looks. Radiance, said Skarhar's shavepate, in the Gascari tongue. Why'd you laugh? They call him Frog, she said, and we've just learned why. In the Seven Kingdoms there are children's tales of frogs who turn into enchanted princes when kissed by their true love. Smiling at the Dornish knights, she switched back to the common tongue. 
Uh, tell me, Prince Quentin, are you enchanted? Uh, no, Your Grace. I feared as much. Neither enchanted nor enchanting, alas. A pity he's the prince, and not the one with the wide shoulders and the sandy hair. You have come for a kiss, however. You mean to marry me, is that the way of it? The gift you bring me is your own sweet self. Instead of a series and your sister, you and I must seal this pact, if I want dawn. My father hoped that you might find me acceptable. Dario Naharis gave a scornful laugh. I say you are a pop. The queen needs a man beside her, not a mewling boy. You are no fit husband for a woman such as her. When you lick your lips, do you still taste your mother's milk? Sagaris Drinkwater darkened at his words. Mind your tongue, Selsword. You're speaking to a prince of dawn. And to his wet nurse, I am thinking. Dario brushed his thumbs across his sword hilts and smiled dangerously. Skaha scowled, as only he could scowl. This boy might serve for dawn, but Murine needs a king of Gascari blood. I know of this dawn, said Resnick Mo Resnick. Dawn is sand and scorpions and bleak red mountains baking in the sun. Prince Quentin answered him, Dawn is fifty thousand spears and swords, pledged to our queen's service. Fifty thousand, mocked Daria. I count three. Enough, Daenerys said. Prince Quentin has crossed half the world to offer me his gift. I will not have him treated with discourtesy. She turned to the Dornishman. Would that you had come a year ago. I am pledged to wed the noble Histar Zolorek. Sigera said, It is not too late. I will be the judge of that, Daenerys said. Resnak, see that the prince and his companions are given quarters suitable to their high birth, and that their wants are attended to. As you wish, your radiance. The queen rose. Then we are done for now. Dario and Sir Barristan followed her up the steps to her apartments. This changes everything, the old knight said. This changes nothing, Danny said, as he removed her crown. What good are three men? Three knights, said Selmy. Three layers, Dario said darkly. They deceive me. And bought you too, I do not doubt. He did not trouble to deny it. Danny unrolled the parchment and examined it again. Bravas! This was done in Bravas, while we were living in the house with the red door. Why did that make her feel so strange? She found herself remembering her nightmare. Sometimes there is truth in dreams. Could his Zoloric be working for the warlocks? Was that what the dream had meant? Could the dream have been ascending? Were the gods telling her to put Hisdar aside and wed this Dornish prince instead? Something tickled at her memory. The, Sir Beriston, what are the arms of House Martel? A sun in splendor, transfixed by a spear. 
the sun's son. A shiver went through her. Shadows and whispers. What else had Quaith said? The pale mare and the sun's son. There was a line in it, too, and a, and a dragon. Or am I the dragon? Beware the perfume, Seneschal. That she remembered. Dreams and prophecies. Why must they always be in riddles? I hate this. Oh, leave me, sir. Tomorrow is my wedding day. That night Dario had her every way a man could have a woman, and she gave herself to him willingly. The last time, as the sun was coming up, she used her mouth to make him hard again, as Dario had taught her long ago, then rode him so wildly that his wound began to bleed again, and for one sweet heartbeat she could not tell whether he was inside her or she inside him. But when the sun rose upon her wedding day, so did Dario Naharis, donning his clothes and buckling on his sword-belt with its gleaming golden wantons. "'Where are you going?' Danny asked him. "'I forbid you to make a sortie today.' "'My queen is cruel,' her captain said. "'If I cannot slay your foes, how shall I amuse myself whilst you are being wed?' "'By nightfall I shall have no foes.' "'It is only dawn, sweet queen. "'The day is long.' Time enough for one last sortie. I will bring you back the head of Brown Ben Plum for a wedding gift. No heads, Danny insisted. Once you brought me flowers. Let his star bring you flowers. He's not one to stoop and pluck a dandelion through, but he has servants who will be pleased to do it for him. Do I have your leave to go? No. She wanted him to stay and hold her. One day he will go and not return, she thought. One day some archer will put an arrow through his chest, or ten men will fall on him with spears and swords and axes. Ten would be heroes. Five of them would die, but that would not make her grief easier to bear. One day I will lose him, as I lost my son and stars. But please, God's not today. Come back to bed and kiss me. No one had ever kissed her like Dario Naharis. I am your queen, and I command you to fuck me. She had meant it playfully, but Dario's eyes hardened at her words. Fucking queens is king's work. Your noble Hizda can attend to that once you're wed. And if he proves to be too high-born for such sweaty work, he has servants who will be pleased to do that for him as well. Or perhaps you can call the Dornish boy into your bed, and his pretty friend as well. Why not? He strode from the bedchamber. He's going to make a sortie, Danny realized, and if he takes Ben Plum's head, he'll walk into the wedding feast and throw it at my feet. Seven saved me. Why couldn't he be better born? When he was gone, Masandi brought the queen a simple meal of goat cheese and olives, with raisins for a sweet. Your grace needs more than wine to break her fast. You are such a tiny thing, 
and you will surely need your strength today. That made Daenerys laugh, coming from a girl so small. She relied so much on the little scribe that she oft forgot that Missandei had only turned eleven. They shared the food together on her terrace. As Danny nibbled on an olive, the Narthi girl gazed at her with eyes like molten gold and said, It is not too late to tell him that you have decided not to wait. It is, though, the queen thought sadly. Hisdar's blood is ancient and noble. Our joining will join my freedmen to his people. When we become as one, so will our city. Your grace does not love the noble Hisdar. This one thinks you would sooner have another for your husband. I must not think of Dario today. A queen loves where she must, not where she will. Her appetite had left her. Take this food away, she told Miss Andy. It's time I bathed. Afterward, as Jeque was patting Daenerys dry, Eri approached with her toka. Danny envied the Dothraki maids, their loose, sand-silk trousers and painted vests. They would be much cooler than her in her toka, with its heavy fringe of baby pearls. Help me wind this round myself, please. I cannot manage all these pearls by myself. She should be eager with anticipation for her wedding and the night that would follow, she knew. She remembered the night of her first wedding, when Carl Drogo had claimed her maidenhead beneath the stranger stars. She remembered how frightened she had been and how excited. Would it be the same with his star? No. I am not the girl I was, and he is not my son and stars. Missandei re-emerged from inside the pyramid. Resnak and Skahazbeg, the honor of escorting your grace to the Temple of the Graces. Resnak has ordered your palanquin made ready. Miranese seldom rode within their city walls. They preferred palanquins, litters, and sedan chairs. "'born upon the shoulders of their slaves. "'Horses befoul the streets,' one man of Zack had told her. "'Slaves do not.' "'Denny had freed the slaves, "'yet palanquins, litters, and sedan chairs "'still choked the streets as before, "'and none of them floated magically through the air. "'The day is too hot to be shut up in a palanquin,' said Danny. "'Have my silver saddled.' I would not go to my lord husband upon the backs of bearers. Your grace, said Miss Andy, this one is so sorry, but you cannot ride in a tokar. The little scribe was right, as she so often was. The tokar was not a garment meant for horseback. Danny made a face. I shall say, not the palanquin, though. I would suffocate behind those drapes. Have them ready a sedan chair. If she must wear her floppy ears, let all the rabbits see her. When Danny made her descent, Resnek and Skahaz dropped to their knees. Your worship shines so brightly, you will blind every man who dares to look upon you, said Resnek. 
the seneschal wore a toka of maroon samite with golden fringes. His da, Zolorik, is most fortunate in you, and you and him, if I may be so bold as to say, this match will save our city. You will see. So we pray. I want to plant my olive trees and see them fruit. Does it matter that his dar's kisses do not please me? Peace will please me. Am I a queen or just a woman? The crowds will be thick as flies today. The shave-pate was clad in a pleated black skirt and a muscled breastplate, with a brazen helm shaped like a serpent's head beneath one arm. Should I be afraid of flies? Your brazen beast will keep me safe from any harm. It was always dusk inside the base of the Great Pyramid, walls thirty feet thick, muffled the tumult of the streets and kept the heat outside, so it was cool and dim within. Her escort was forming up inside the gates. Horses, mules, and donkeys were stabled in the western walls, elephants in the eastern. Danny had acquired three of those huge, queer beasts with her pyramid. They reminded her of hairless grey mammoths, though their tusks had been bobbed and gilded, and their eyes were sad. She found strong Belwas eating grapes, as Barristan Selmy watched the stable boy cinch the girth on his dapple grey. The three Dornishmen were with him, talking, but they broke off when the Queen appeared. Their prince went to one knee. Your Grace, I, I must entreat you. My father's strength is failing, but his devotion to your cause is as strong as ever. If my manner or my person have displeased you, that is my sorrow, but... If you would please me, sir, be happy for me, Daenerys said. This is my wedding day. They will be dancing in the Yellow City, I do not doubt, she sighed. Rise, my prince, and smile. One day I shall return to Westeros to claim my father's throne and look to Dawn for help. But on this day the Yunkai have my city ringed in steel. I may die before I see my seven kingdoms. His dar may die. Westeros may be swallowed by the waves. Danny kissed his cheek. Come, it's time I wed. Sir Barristan helped her up unto her sedan chair. Quentin rejoined his fellow Dornishman. Strong Belwas bellowed for the gates to be opened, and Daenerys Targaryen was carried forth into the sun. Selmy fell in beside her on his dapple grey. Tell me, Danny said, as the procession turned toward the Temple of the Graces, if my father and my mother had been free to follow their own hearts, whom would they have wed? It was long ago your grace would not know them. You know, though. Tell me. The old knight inclined his head. The queen, your mother, was always mindful of her duty. He was handsome in his gold and silver armor, his white cloak streaming from his shoulders, he sounded like a man in pain, as if every word were a stone he had to pass. As a girl, though, she was once smitten, 
with a young knight from the Stormlands who wore her favor at a tourney and named her Queen of Love and Beauty. A brief thing. What happened to this knight? He put away his lance the day your lady mother wed your father. Afterward, he became most pious and was heard to say that only the maiden could replace Queen Rhaella in his heart. His passion was impossible, of course. A landed knight is no fit consort for a princess of royal blood. And Dario Naharis is only a sellsword, not fit to buckle on the golden spurs of even a landed knight. And my father, was there some woman that he loved better than his queen? Sir Barristan shifted in the saddle. Uh, not, not loved. Mayhaps wanted as a better word, but uh, it was only kitchen gossip, the whispers of washerwomen and stable boys. I want to know. I never knew my father. I want to know everything about him, the good and the rest. As you command. The white knight chose his words with care. Uh, Prince Ares, as a youth, he was taken with a certain lady of Castle Rock, a cousin of Tywin Lannister. When she and Tywin wed, your father drank too much wine at the wedding feast, and was heard to say that it was a great pity that the Lord's right to the first night had been abolished. A drunken jape no more. But Tywin Lannister was not a man to forget such words, or the the liberties your father took during the bedding. His face reddened. I have said too much, your grace, I... Gracious queen, well met. Another procession had come up beside her own, and Hister Zolorek was smiling at her from his own sedan chair. My king... Danny wondered where Darrow Naharis was, what he was doing. If this was a story, he would gallop up just as we reached the temple to challenge Hizda for my hand. Side by side, the Queen's procession and Hizda's Olorex made their slow way across Merin, until finally the Temple of the Graces loomed up before them, its golden domes flashing in the sun. How beautiful, the Queen tried to tell herself but inside her was some foolish little girl who could not help but look about for Daria. If he loved you, he would come and carry you off at sword point, as Rhaegar carried off his northern girl. The girl in her insisted. But the queen knew that was folly. Even if her captain was mad enough to attempt it, the brazen beasts would cut him down before he got within a hundred yards of her. Galazi Galari awaited them outside the temple doors. Surrounded by her sisters in white and pink and red, blue and gold and purple. There are fewer than there were. Danny looked for Azara and did not see her. Has the bloody flux taken even her? Though the queen had let the Astapori starve outside her walls, 
to keep the bloody flocks from spreading. It was spreading nonetheless. Many had been stricken. Freedmen, sellswords, brazen beasts, even Dothraki, though as yet none of the unsullied had been touched. She prayed the worst was past. The graces brought forth an ivory chair and a golden bowl. Holding her toe-card daintily, so as not to tread upon its fringes, Daenerys Targaryen eased herself onto the chair's plush velvet seat, and his Zoloric went to his knees, unlaced her sandals, and washed her feet, whilst fifty eunuchs sang, and ten thousand eyes looked on. He has gentle hands, she mused, as warm, fragrant oils ran between her toes. If he has a gentle heart as well, I may grow fond of him, in time. When her feet were clean, Hizdar dried them with a soft towel, laced her sandals on again, and helped her stand. Hand in hand, they followed the green grace inside the temple, where the air was thick with incense, and the guards of Gis stood cloaked in shadows in their alcoves. Four hours later, they emerged again as man and wife, bound together wrist and ankle with chains of yellow gold. John Queen Salise descended upon Castle Black with her daughter and her daughter's fool, her serving girls and lady companions, and a retinue of knights, sworn swords, and men-at-arms fifty strong. Queen's men all, Jon Snow knew. They may attend Salise, but it is Melisandre they serve. The Red Priestess had warned him of their coming, almost a day before the Raven arrived from Eastwatch with the same message. He met the Queen's party by the stables, accompanied by Satin, Bowen Marsh, and half a dozen guards in long black cloaks. It would never do to come before this Queen without a retinue of his own, if half of what they said of her was true. She might mistake him for a stable boy and hand him the reins of her horse. The snows had finally moved off to the south and given them a respite. There was even a hint of warmth in the air as Jon Snow took a knee before the southern queen. Your grace, Castle Black, welcomes you and yours. Queen Solis looked down at him. My thanks. Please escort me to your lord commander. My brothers chose me for that honor. I am Jon Snow. You! They said you were young, but... Queen Solis's face was pinched and pale. She wore a crown of red gold with points in the shape of flames, a twin to that worn by Stannis. You may rise, Lord Snow. This is my daughter, Shireen. Princess, John inclined his head. Shireen was a homely child, made even uglier by the grey scale that had left her neck and part of her cheek stiff and grey and cracked. My brothers and I are at your service, he told the girl. Shireen reddened. Thank you, my lord. I believe you are acquainted with my kinsman, Sir Axel Florent, the queen went on. Only by raven and report. 
the letters he'd received from East Watch by the Sea had a deal to say about Axel Florent. Very little of it good. Sir Axel? Lord Snow. A stout man. Florent had short legs and a thick chest. Coarse hair covered his cheeks and jowls and poked from his ears and nostrils. My loyal knights, Queen Solis went on. Sir Narbert, Sir Benethan, Sir Bruss, Sir Patrick, Sir Dorden, Sir Malagorn, Sir Lambert, Sir Perkin. Each worthy bowed in turn. She did not trouble to name her fool, but the cowbells on his antlered hat and the motley tattooed across his puffy cheeks made him hard to overlook. Patchface. Cotterpike's letters had made mention of him as well. Pike claimed he was a simpleton. Then the Queen beckoned to another curious member of her entourage, a tall, gaunt stick of a man, his height accentuated by an outlandish three-tiered hat of purple felt. And here we have the Honourable Tycho Nestoris, an emissary of the Iron Bank of Bravos, come to treat with his grace King Stannis. The banker doffed his hat and made a sweeping bow. Lord the Commander, I thank you and your brothers for your hospitality. He spoke the common tongue flawlessly, with only the slightest hint of accent. Half a foot taller than John, the bravassi sported a beard, as thin as a rope sprouting from his chin and reaching almost to his waist. His robes were a somber purple, trimmed with ermine. A high stiff collar framed his narrow face. I hope we shall not inconvenience you too greatly. Not at all, my lord. You are most welcome. More welcome than this queen, if truth be told. Cotterpike had sent a raven ahead to advise them of the banker's coming. John Snow had thought of little since. John turned back to the queen. The royal chambers in the King's Star have been prepared for your grace, for so long as you wish to remain with us. This is our Lord Stuart, Bowen Marsh. He will find quarters for your men. How kind of you to make room for us. The Queen's words were courteous enough, though her tone said, It is no more than your duty, and you best hope these quarters please me. We will not be with you long. A few days at the best. It is our intent to press on to our new seat at the night fort as soon as we are rested. The journey from Eastwatch was wearisome. As you say, Your Grace, said John. You will be cold and hungry, I'm sure. A hot meal awaits you in our common room. Very good, the Queen glanced about the yard. First, though, we wish to consult with a lady, Melisandre. Of course, Your Grace. Her apartments are in the King's Tower as well. This way, if you will. Queen Solis nodded, took her daughter by the hand, and permitted him to lead them from the stables. Sir Axel, the Bravasi banker, and the rest of her party followed, like so many ducklings done up in wool and fur. Your Grace, said Jon Snow, my builders have done all they can to make the night fort ready to receive you, yet much of it remains in ruins. It is a large castle, the largest on the wall, 
and we have only been able to restore a part of it. You might be more comfortable back at Eastwatch by the sea. Queen Salish sniffed. We are done with Eastwatch. We did not like it there. A queen should be mistress beneath her own roof. We found your cotter pike to be an uncouth and unpleasant man, quarrelsome and niggardly. You should hear what Cotter says of you. Oh, I'm sorry for that, but I fear your grace will find conditions at the night fort even less to your liking. We speak of a fortress, not a palace, a grim place and cold, whereas Eastwatch, Eastwatch is not safe. The queen put a hand on her daughter's shoulder. This is the king's true heir. Shirin will one day sit the Arn throne and rule the Seven Kingdoms. She must be kept from harm, and Eastwatch is where the attack will come. This night fort is the place my husband has chosen for our seat, and there we shall abide. We... Oh. An enormous shadow emerged from behind the shell of the Lord Commander's tower. Princess Shireen gave a shriek, and three of the Queen's knights gasped in harmony. Another swore, Seven Savus, he said, quite forgetting his new red god in his shock. Don't be afraid, John told them. There's no harm in him, Your Grace. This is one-one. One-wag-one-da-one, the joint's voice rumbled like a boulder crashing down the mountainside. He sank to his knees before them. Even kneeling, he loomed over them. Kneel, queen, little queen. Words that Leathers had taught him, no doubt. Princess Shireen's eyes went wide as dinner plates. He's a giant, a real true giant like from the stories, but why does he talk so funny? He only knows a few words of the common tongue as yet, said John. In their own land, giants speak the old tongue. Cannot touch him. Best not, her mother warned. Look at him, a filthy creature. The queen turned her frown on John. Lord Snow, what is this bestial creature doing on our side of the wall? One one is a guest of the night's watch, as you are. The queen did not like that answer, nor did her knights. Sir Axel grimaced in disgust. Sir Brass gave him a nervous titter. Sir Narbert said, I had been told all the giants were dead. Almost all. Egret wept for them. In the dark, the dead are dancing. Patchface shuffled his feet in a grotesque dance step. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. At Eastwatch, someone had sewn him a motley cloak of beaver pelts, sheepskins, and rabbit fur. His hat sported antlers hung with bells and long brown flaps of squirrel fur that hung down over his ears. Every step he took set him to ringing. One one gaped at him with fascination, but when the giant reached for him, the fool hopped back away, jingling. Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! That brought one one lurching to his feet. The queen grabbed hold of Princess Shireen and pulled her back. Her knights reached for their swords, and Patchface reeled away in alarm, lost his footing, and plopped down on his ass in a snowdrift. One-one began to laugh. 
a giant's laughter could put to shame a dragon's roar. Patchface covered his ears. Princess Shireen pressed her face into her mother's furs, and the boldest of the Queen's knights moved forward, steel in hand. John raised an arm to block his path. You do not want to anger him. She's your steel, sir. Leathers, take one-one back to Hardin's. Eat now, one-one, asked the giant. Eat now, John agreed. To Leathers he said, I'll send out a bushel of vegetables for him and meat for you. Start a fire. Leathers grinned. I will, my lord, but Hardin's is bone cold. Perhaps, my lord, could send out some wine to warm us? For you, not him. One one had never tasted wine until he came to Castle Black, but once he had, he'd taken a gigantic liking to it. Too much of a liking. John had enough to contend with just now, without adding a drunken giant to the mix. He turned back to the Queen's knights. My lord father used to say... A man should never draw his sword unless he means to use it. Using it was my intent. The knight was clean-shaven and wind-burnt. Beneath a cloak of white fur, he wore a cloth of silver surcoat, emblazoned with a five-pointed blue star. I had been given to understand that the knight's watch defended the realm against such monsters. No one mentioned keeping them as pets. Another bloody Southron fool. You are uh, Sir Patrick of King's Mountain, if it please, my lord. I do not know how you observe guest right on your mountain, sir. In the north we hold it sacred. One one is a guest here. Sir Patrick smiled. Uh, tell me, Lord Commander, uh, should the others turn up, do you plan to offer hospitality to them as well? The knight turned to his queen. Your grace, that is the king's tower there, if I'm not mistaken, if I may have the honor. As you wish. The queen took his arm and swept past the men of the knight's watch with never a second glance. Those flames on her crown are the warmest thing about her. Lord Tycho, John called. A moment, please. The bravassi halted. No, Lord, I, <laughs> only a simple servant of the Anna Bank of Bravos. Cotterpike informs me that you came to Eastwatch with three ships, a galleus, a galley, and a cog. Just so, my Lord, the crossing can be perilous in this season. One ship alone may founder, where three together may aid one another. The Arna Bank is always uh, prudent in such matters. Perhaps before you leave, we might have a quiet word. I am uh, at uh, your service, Lord Commander. And in uh, Bravos, we say there is uh, no time like the present. Will that suit? As good as any. Shall we repair to my solar, or would you like to see the top of the wall? The banker glanced up to where the ice loomed vast and pale against the sky. I fear it uh, will uh, be a bitter cold up top. That and windy, you learn to walk well away from the edge. Men have been blown off, still. The wall is like nothing else on earth. You may never have another chance to see it. No doubt I shall rue 
my caution upon my deathbed. But after a long day in the saddle, a warm room sounds preferable to me. My solo, then. Satin, some mulled wine, if you would. John's rooms behind the armory were quiet enough, if not especially warm. His fire had gone out some time ago. Satin was not as diligent in feeding it as Dolorous Ed had been. Mormont's raven greeted them with a shriek of, Corn! John hung up his cloak. You come seeking Stannis. Is that correct? It is, my lord. Queen Celise has suggested that we might send word to Deeperwood Mutt by raven to inform his grace that I await his pleasure at the nightfall. The matter that I mean to put to him is too uh, delicate to entrust uh, to letters. A debt? What else could it be? His own debt or his brother's? The banker pressed his fingers together. It would uh, not be proper for me to discuss Lord Stannis's indebtedness or lack of same. Eh? As to King uh, Robert, it was indeed our pleasure to assist his grace in his need. For so long as Robert lived, all was a well. Now, however, the Iron Throne has ceased all repayment. Could the Lannisters truly be so foolish? You cannot mean to hold Stannis responsible for his brother's debts. The debts belong to the Iron Throne, Tycho declared, and whosoever sits that chair must pay them. Since a young King Tommen and his counsellors have become so obdurate, we mean to broach the subject with King Stannis. Should he prove himself more worthy of our trust, it would, of course, be a great pleasure to lend him whatever help he needs. Help! the raven screamed. Help! 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 Much of this John had surmised the moment he learned that the Iron Bank had sent an envoy to the wall. When last we heard, his grace was marching on Winterfell to confront Lord Bolton and his allies. You may seek him there if you wish, though that carries a risk. You could find yourself caught up in his war. Tycho bowed his head. We who serve the Iron Bank face death full as often as you who serve the Iron Throne. Is that whom I serve? Jon Snow was no longer certain. I can provide you with horses, provisions, guides, whatever is required to get you as far as Deepwood Mott. From there you will need to make your own way to Stannis, and you may well find his head upon a spike. There will be a price. Price! screamed Mormon's raven. Price! Price! There is always a price, is there not? The bravassi smiled. What does this uh, watch require? Your ships, for a start, with their crews. All the three? How will I return to Bravos? I only need them for a single voyage. A hazardous voyage, I assume. For a start, you said? We need a loan as well, gold enough to keep us fed till spring, to buy food and hire ships to bring it to us. Spring? Oh, Tycho sighed. 
It is not possible, my lord. What was it Stannis had said to him? You haggle like a crone with a codfish, Lord Snow. Did Lord Eddard father you on a fishwife? Perhaps he had at that. It took the better part of an hour before the impossible became possible, and another hour before they could agree on terms. The flagon of mulled wine that sat and delivered helped them settle the more nettlesome points. By the time Jon Snow signed the parchment the bravassi drew up, both of them were half-drunk and quite unhappy. Jon thought that a good sign. The three bravassi ships would bring the fleet at Eastwatch up to eleven, including the Ibanese whaler that Cutter Pike had commanded on Jon's orders, a trading galley out of Pentos, similarly impressed, and three battered Lycine warships, remnants of Salador Sands' former fleet driven back north by the autumn storms. All three of Sands' ships had been in dire need of refitting, but by now the work should be complete. Eleven ships was no wise enough, but if he waited any longer, the free folk at Hardome would be dead by the time the rescue fleet arrived. Sail now, or not at all. Whether Mother Mole and her people would be desperate enough to entrust their lives to Night's Watch, though. The day had darkened by the time he and Tycho Nestorius left the solar. Snow had begun to fall. Our respite was a brief one, it would seem. John drew his cloak about himself more tightly. Winter is nigh upon us. The day I left uh, Bravos, there was ice on the canals. Three of my men passed through Bravos not long ago, John told him. An old maester, a singer, and a young steward. They were escorting a wildling girl and her child to Old Town. I do not suppose you chanced to encounter them. I fear not, my lord. Westerasi passed through Bravos every day but most come and go from the Ragman's Harbour. The ships of the Arn Bank moor at the Purple Harbour. If you wish, I can make inquiries after them when I return home. No need. By now they should be safe in Old Town. Let us hope, Passo. The narrow sea is perilous this time of year, and of late there have been troubling reports of strange ships seen amongst the stepstones. Saladosan, the Lassin pirate. Some say he has returned to his old haunts. This is so. And Lord Redwine's uh, war fleet creeps through the broken arm as well. On its way home, no doubt. But uh, these men and their ships are well known to us. No, these other sails from further east, perhaps. One hears queer talk of dragons. Would that we had one here. A dragon might warm things up a bit. Ah, oh, my lord, yes. You will forgive me if I do not laugh. We, Bravasi, are descended from those who fled Valeria and uh, the wrath of its dragon lords. We do not jape of dragons. No, I suppose not. My apologies, Lord Tycho. None is required, Lord Commander. Now, I find that I am hungry. <laughs> Lending such large sums of gold will give a man an appetite. 
will you be so good as to point me to your feast hall? I will take you there myself, John gestured. This way. Once there it would have been discourteous not to break bread with a banker, so John sent Saturn off to fetch some food. The novelty of newcomers had brought out almost all the men who were not on duty or asleep, so the cellar was crowded and warm. The queen herself was absent, as was her daughter. By now, presumably, they were settling into the king's tower. But Sir Brass and Sir Malagorn were on hand, entertaining such brothers as had gathered with the latest tidings from East Watch and beyond the sea. Three of the queen's ladies sat together, attended by their serving-maids and a dozen admiring men of the night's watch. Nearer the door, the queen's hand was attacking a brace of capons, sucking the meat off the bones, and washing down each bite with ale. When he espied John Snow, Axel Florent tossed a bone aside, wiped his mouth with the back of his hand, and sauntered over. With his bowed legs, barrel chest, and prominent ears, he presented a comical appearance, but John knew better than to laugh at him. He was an uncle to Queen Celise, and had been among the first to follow her in accepting Melisandre's red god. If he is not a kinslayer, he's the next best thing. Axel Florence's brother had been burned by Melisandre, Mr. Eamon had informed him. Yet Sir Axel had done little and less to stop it. What sort of man can stand by idly and watch his own brother being burnt alive? Nestoris, said Sir Axel, and the Lord Commander. Might I join you? He lowered himself to the bench before they could reply. Lord Snow, if I may ask, this wildling princess, his grace, King Stannis wrote of, where might she be, my lord? Long leagues from here, John thought. If the gods are good by now, she has found torment Giantsbane. Val is the younger sister of Dala, who was Mance Raider's wife and mother to his son. King Stannis took Val and the child captive after Dala died in childbed. But she is no princess, not as you mean it. Sir Axel shrugged. Whatever she may be, at Eastwatch, men claimed the wench was fair. I like to see with mine own eyes. Some of these wilding women, well, a man would need to turn them over to do his duty as a husband. If it please the Lord Commander, bring her out. Let us have a look. She is not a horse to be paraded for inspection, sir. I promise not to count her teeth. <laughs> Florent grinned. Oh, never fear. I'll treat her with all the courtesy she is due. He knows I do not have her. A village has no secrets, and no more did Castle Black. Val's absence was not spoken of openly, but some men knew, and in the common hall at night the brothers talked. What has he heard? John wondered. How much does he believe? Forgive me, sir, but Val will not be joining us. I'll go to her. Where'd you keep the wench? Away from you. Somewhere safe. Enough, sir. The knight's face grew flushed. My lord, have you forgotten who I am? His breath smelled of ale and onions. 
must I speak to the Queen? Oh, a word from her grace, and I can have this wildling girl delivered naked to the hall for our inspection. That would be a pretty trick, even for a Queen. The Queen would never presume upon our hospitality, John said, hoping that was true. Now I fear I must take my leave before I forget the duties of a host. Lord Tycho, pray excuse me. Yes, of course, the baker said. A pleasure. Outside, the snow was coming down more heavily. Across the yard, the king's tower had turned into a hulking shadow, the lights in its windows obscured by falling snow. Back in his solar, John found the old bear's raven perched on the back of the oak and leather chair behind the trestle table. The bird began to scream for food the moment he entered. John took a fistful of dried kernels from the sack by the door and scattered them on the floor, then claimed the chair. Tycho and Nestorius had left behind a copy of their agreement. John read it over thrice. Now that was simple, he reflected, simpler than I dared hope, simpler than it should have been. It gave him an uneasy feeling. Bravasi coin would allow the Night's Watch to buy food from the south when their own stores ran short, food enough to see them through the winter, however long it might prove to be. A long, hard winter will leave the watch so deep in debt that we will never climb out, John reminded himself. But when the choice is debt or death, best borrow. He did not have to like it, though, and come spring... When the time came to repay all that gold, he would like it even less. Tycho and Astorus had impressed him as cultured and courteous, but the Iron Bank of Bravas had a fearsome reputation when collecting debts. Each of the nine free cities had its bank, and some had more than one, fighting over every coin like dogs over a bone. But the Iron Bank was richer and more powerful than all the rest combined. When princes defaulted on their debts to lesser banks, ruined bankers sold their wives and children into slavery and opened their own veins. When princes failed to repay the Iron Bank, new princes sprang up from nowhere and took their thrones, as poor plump Tommen may be about to learn. No doubt the Lannisters had good reason for refusing to honour King Robert's debts, but it was folly all the same. If Stannis was not too stiff-necked to accept their terms, the Bravasi would give him all the gold and silver he required, coin enough to buy a dozen sellsword companies, to bribe a hundred lords, to keep his men paid, fed, clothed, and armed. Unless Stannis is lying dead beneath the walls of Winterfell, he may just have won the Iron Throne. He wondered if Melisandre had seen that in her fires. John sat back, yawned, stretched. On the morrow he would draft orders for Cutter Pike. Eleven ships to Hardhome, bring back as many as you can, women and children first. It was time they set sail. Should I go myself, though, or leave it to Cotter? The old bear had led a ranging. Aye, and never returned. John closed his eyes, just for a moment and woke, stiff as a board, 
with the old bear's raven muttering, Snow! Snow! and Molly shaking him. My lord, you're wanted. Beg pardon, my lord, a girl's been found. A girl? John sat rubbing the sleep from his eyes with the back of his hands. Val? Has Val returned? Not Val, my lord. This side of the wall it were. Aria? John straightened. It had to be her. Girl! screamed the raven. Girl! Girl! Ty and Dan'l came on her two leagues south of Molestown. They were chasing down some wildlings who scampered off down the King's Road. Brought them back as well, but then they come on the girl. She's high-born, my lord, and she's been asking for you. How many with her? He moved to the basin, splashed water on his face. God, but he was tired. None, my lord. She come alone. Her horse was dying under her. All skin and ribs it was, lame and lathered. They cut it loose and took the girl for questioning. A grey girl on a dying horse. Melisandre's fires had not lied, it would seem. But what had become of Mance Raider and his spearwives? Where is the girl now? Maester Eamon's chambers, my lord. The men of Castle Black still called it that, though by now the old maester should be warm and safe in Old Town. Girl was blue from the cold, shivering like all get-out, so Ty wanted Clydus to have a look at her. Oh, that's good. John felt fifteen years old again. Little sister. He rose and donned his cloak. The snow was still falling as he crossed the yard with Mully. A golden dawn was breaking in the east, but behind Lady Melisandre's window, in the King's Tower, a reddish light still flickered. Does she never sleep? What game are you playing, priestess? Did you have some other task for Mance? He wanted to believe it would be Arya. He wanted to see her face again, to smile at her and muss her hair, to tell her she was safe. She won't be safe, though. Winterfell is burned and broken, and there are no more safe places. He could not keep her here with him, no matter how much he might want to. The war was no place for a woman, much less a girl of noble birth. Nor was he about to turn her over to Stannis or Melisandre. The king would only want to marry her to one of his own men, Hope or Massey or Godry Giantslayer and the guards alone knew what use the red woman might want to make of her. The best solution he could see would mean dispatching her to Eastwatch and asking Cotter Pike to put her on a ship to some place across the sea beyond the reach of all these quarrelsome kings. It would need to wait until the ships returned from Hardome to be sure. She could return to Bravas with Tycho Nestoris. Perhaps the Iron Bank could help her find some noble family to foster her. Bravas was the nearest of the free cities, though, which made it both the best and the worst choice. Lorath, or the point of Ibn, might be safer. Wherever he might send her, though, Arya would need silver to support her, a roof above her head, someone to protect her. She was only a child. 
Maester Eamon's old chambers were so warm that the sudden cloud of steam when Molly pulled the door open was enough to blind the both of them. Within, a fresh fire was burning in the hearth, the logs crackling and spitting. John stepped over a puddle of damp clothing. Snow! 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 The ravens called down from above. The girl was curled up near the fire, wrapped in a black woolen cloak three times her size and fast asleep. She looked enough like Arya to give him pause, but only for a moment. A tall, skinny, coltish girl, all legs and elbows, her brown hair was woven in a thick braid and bound with strips of leather. She had a long face, a pointy chin, small ears, but she was too old, far too old. This girl is almost of an age with me. Has she eaten? John asked Molly. Only bread and broth, my lord. Clytus rose from a chair. It is best to go slow, Maester Eamon always said. Any more and she might not have been able to digest it. Molly nodded. Dunnell had one of Ob's sausages and offered her a bite, but she wouldn't touch it. John could not blame her for that. Hob's sausages were made of grease and salt and things that did not bear thinking about. Perhaps we should just let her rest. That was when the girl sat up, clutching the cloak to her small, pale breasts. She looked confused. Where? Castle Black, my lady. The wall. Her eyes filled up with tears. I'm... I'm here. Clytus moved closer. Poor child. How old are you? Sixteen, on my next name day. And no child, but a woman grown and flowered. She yawned, covered her mouth with a cloak. One bare knee peeked through its folds. You do not wear a chain. Are you a maester? No, said Clytus, but I have served one. She does look a bit like Arya, John thought, starved and skinny, but her hair's the same colour, and her eyes. I'm told that you have been asking after me. I am John Snow. The girl tossed her braid back. My house and yours are bound in blood and honour. Hear me, kinsman. My uncle Cregan is hard upon my trail. You must not let him take me back to Carhold. John was staring. I know this girl. There was something about her eyes, the way she held herself, the way she talked. For a moment, the memory eluded him. Then it came. Alice Carstock. That brought the ghost of a smile to her lips. I was not sure you would remember. I was six the last time you saw me. You came to Winterfell with your father. The father Rob beheaded. I don't recall what for. She blushed. So I could meet your brother. Oh, there was some other pretext, but that was the real reason. I was almost of an age with Rob, and my father thought we might make a match. There was a feast. I danced with you and your brother both. He was very courteous and said that I danced beautifully. You were sullen. My father said that was to be expected in a bastard. I remember. It was only half a lie. You're still a little sullen, the girl said, but I will forgive you that if you will save me for my uncle. 
Your uncle, would that be Lord Arnolf? He's no lord, Alice said scornfully. My brother Harry is the rightful lord, and by law I am his heir. A daughter comes before an uncle. Uncle Arnolf is only Castellan. He's my great-uncle, actually, my father's uncle. Cregan is his son. I suppose that makes him a cousin, but we always call him uncle. Now they mean to make me call him husband. She made a fist. Before the war I was betrothed to Darren Hornwood. We were only waiting till I flowered to be wed. But the Kingslayer killed Darren in the Whispering Wood. My father wrote that he would find some southern lord to wed me, but he never did. Your brother Rob cut off his head for killing Lannisters. Her mouth twisted. I thought the whole reason they marched south was to kill some Lannisters. It was um, not so simple as that. Lord Carstock slew two prisoners, my lady, unarmed boys, squires in the cell. The girl did not seem surprised. My father never bellowed like the great John, but he was no less dangerous in his wrath. He is dead now, too, though. So is your brother. But you and I are here, still living. Is there blood feud between us, Lord Snow? When a man takes the black, he puts his feuds behind him. The Night's Watch has no quarrel with Carhold, nor with you. Good. I was afraid. I begged my father to leave one of my brothers as Castellan, but none of them wished to miss the glory and ransoms to be won in the south. Now Tor and Ed are dead. Harry was a prisoner at Maidenpool when last we heard, but that was almost a year ago. He may be dead as well. I did not know where else to turn but to the last son of Eddard Stark. Why not the king? Carhold declared for Stannis. My uncle declared for Stannis, in hopes it might provoke the Lannisters to take poor Harry's head. Should my brother die, Carhold should pass to me, but my uncles want my birthright for their own. Once Cregan gets a child by me, they won't need me any more. He's buried two wives already. She rubbed away a tear angrily, the way Arya might have done it. Will you help me? Marriages and inheritance are matters for the king, my lady. I will write to Sanus on your behalf, but... Alice Carstock laughed, but it was the laughter of despair. Write, but do not look for a reply. Stannis will be dead before he gets your message. My uncle will see to that. What do you mean? Arnulf is rushing to Winterfell, tis true, but only so he might put his dagger in your king's back. He cast his lot with Ruse Bolton long ago, for gold, the promise of a pardon, and poor Harry's head. Lord Stannis is marching to a slaughter, so he cannot help me, and would not even if he could. Alice knelt before him, clutching the black cloak. You are my only hope, Lord Snow. In your father's name I beg you, protect me. The Blind Girl Her nights were lit by distant stars and the shimmer of moonlight on snow, but every dawn she woke to darkness. 
She opened her eyes and stared up blind at the black that shrouded her, her dream already fading. So beautiful. She licked her lips, remembering. The bleating of the sheep, the terror in the shepherd's eyes, the sound the dogs had made as she killed them one by one, the snarling of her pack. Game had become scarcer since the snows began to fall, but last night they had feasted. Lamb and dog and mutton and the flesh of man. Some of her little grey cousins were afraid of men, even dead men, but not her. Meat was meat, and men were prey. She was the night wolf, but only when she dreamed. The blind girl rolled onto her side, sat up, sprang to her feet, stretched. Her bed was a rag-stuffed mattress on a shelf of cold stone, and she was always stiff and tight when she awakened. She padded to her basin on small, bare, calloused feet, silent as a shadow, splashed cool water on her face, patted herself dry. Sir Gregor, she thought. Dunson, Raff the Sweetling, Sir Illan, Sir Merrin, Queen Cersei. Her morning prayer. Or was it? No, she thought. Not mine. I am no one. That is the night wolf's prayer. Some day she will find them, hunt them, smell their fear, taste their blood. Some day. She found her small clothes in a pile, sniffed at them to make sure they were fresh enough to wear, donned them in her darkness. Her servant's garb was where she'd hung it, a long tunic of undyed wool, rough-spun and scratchy. She snapped it out and pulled it down over her head with one smooth, practiced motion. Socks came last, one black, one white. The black one had stitching round the top, the white none. She could feel which was which, make sure she got each suck on the right leg. Skinny as they were, her legs were strong and springy and growing longer every day. She was glad of that. A water dancer needs good legs. Blind Beth was no water dancer, but she would not be Beth forever. She knew the way to the kitchens, but her nose would have led her there even if she hadn't. Hot peppers and fried fish, she decided, sniffing down the hall. And bread fresh from Uma's oven. The smells made her belly rumble. The night wolf had feasted, but that would not fill the blind girl's belly. Dream meat could not nourish her. She had learned that early on. She broke her fast on sardines, fried crisp in pepper oil, and served so hot they burned her fingers. She mopped up the leftover oil with a chunk of bread torn off the end of Uma's morning loaf and washed it all down with a cup of watered wine, savouring the tastes and the smells, the rough feel of the crust beneath her fingers, the slickness of the oil, the sting of the hot pepper when it got into the half-heel scrape on the back of the hand. Hear, smell, taste, feel, she reminded herself. There are many ways to know the world for those who cannot see. Someone had entered the room behind her, moving on soft padded slippers, quiet as a mouse. Her nostrils flared. The kindly man. Men had a different smell than women, 
and there was a hint of orange in the air as well. The priest was fond of chewing orange rinds to sweeten his breath whenever he could get them. "'And who are you this morning?' she heard him ask as he took his seat at the head of the table. "'Tap, tap,' she heard, then a tiny cracking sound, breaking his first egg. Uh, "'No one,' she replied. Uh, "'A lie. I know you. You are that blind beggar girl.' Beth. She had known a Beth once, back at Winterfell, when she was Arya Stark. Maybe that was why she'd picked the name. Or maybe it was just because it went so well with blind. "'Poor child,' said the kindly man. "'Would you like to have your eyes back? Ask, and you shall see.' He asked the same question every morning. "'I may want them on the morrow, not today.' Her face was still water, hiding all, revealing nothing. "'As you will,' she could hear him peeling the egg, and then a faint silvery clink as he picked up the salt spoon. He liked his eggs well salted. "'Where did my poor blind girl go begging last night?' "'The inn of the green eel. "'And what three new things do you know "'that you did not know when last you left us?' "'The sea lord is still sick. "'This is no new thing. "'The sea lord was sick yesterday, "'and he will still be sick upon the morrow. "'Or dead?' When he is dead, that will be a new thing. When he is dead, there will be a choosing, and the knives will come out. That was a way of it in Bravus. In Westeros, a dead king was followed by his elder son, but the Bravasi had no kings. Tomo Frekar will be the new sea lord. Is that what they are saying at the inn of the Green Ill? Yes. The kindly man took a bite of his egg. The girl heard him chewing. He never spoke with his mouth full. He swallowed and said, Some men say there is wisdom in wine. Such men are fools. At other inns, other names are being bruited about, never doubt. He took another bite of egg, chewed, swallowed. What three new things do you know that you did not know before? I know that some men are saying that Tormo Fraker will surely be the new sea lord, she answered. Some drunken men? Better. And what else do you know? It is snowing in the riverlands in Westeros, she almost said. But he would have asked her how she knew that, and she did not think that he would like her answer. She chewed her lip, thinking back to last night. The horse of Roan is with child. She is not certain of the father, but thinks it might have been that Tyrosche sellsword that she killed. This is good to know. What else? The Merlin Queen has chosen a new mermaid to take the place of the one that drowned. She is a daughter of a Prestane serving maid, thirteen and penniless, but lovely. So are they all, at the beginning said the priest, but you cannot know that she is lovely unless you've seen her with your own eyes, and you have none. Who are you, child? No one. Blind Beth, the beggar girl, is who I see, 
She is a wretched liar, that one. See to your duties. Vala Morgullus. Vala Doheris. She gathered up her bowl and cup, knife and spoon, and pushed to her feet. Last of all, she grasped her stick. It was five feet long, slender and supple, thick as her thumb, with leather wrapped around the shaft a foot from the top. Better than eyes, once you learn how to use it, the waif had told her. That was a lie. They often lied to her, to test her. No stick was better than a pair of eyes. It was good to have, though, so she always kept it close. Uma had taken to calling her Stick, but names did not matter. She was her. No one. I am no one. Just a blind girl. Just a servant of him of many faces. Each night at supper, the waif brought her a cup of milk and told her to drink it down. The drink had a queer, bitter taste that the blind girl soon learned to loathe. Even the faint smell that warned her what it was before it touched her tongue soon made her feel like retching. But she drained the cup all the same. How long must I be blind? she would ask. Until darkness is as sweet to you as light, the waif would say. Or until you ask us for your eyes, ask and you shall see. And then you'll send me away. Better blind than that. They would not make her yield. On the day she had woken blind, the waif took her by the hand and led her through the vaults and tunnels of the rock on which the house of black and white was built, up the steep stone steps into the temple proper. Count the steps as you climb, she had said. Let your fingers brush the wall. There are markings there, invisible to the eye, plain to the touch. That was her first lesson. There had been many more. Poisons and potions were for the afternoons. She had smell and touch and taste to help her, but touch and taste could be perilous when grinding poisons. And with some of the waif's more toxic concoctions, even smell was less than safe. Burned pinky tips and blistered lips became familiar to her, and once she made herself so sick she could not keep down any food for days. Supper was for language lessons. The blind girl understood Bravasi and could speak it passably. She had even lost most of her barbaric accent, but the kindly man was not content. He was insisting that she improve her high valerian and learn the tongues of lice and pentos too. In the evening she played the lying game with a waif, but without eyes to see, the game was very different. Sometimes all she had to go on was tone and choice of words. Other times, the waif allowed her to lay hands upon her face. At first, the game was much, much harder, the next thing to impossible. But just when she was near the point of screaming with frustration, it all became much easier. She learned to hear the lies, to feel them in the play of the muscles around the mouth and eyes. Many of her other duties had remained the same. But as she went about them, she stumbled over furnishings, walked into walls, dropped trays, got hopelessly, helplessly lost inside the temple. Once she almost fell headlong down the steps, but Sirio Forrell had taught her balance in another lifetime when she was a girl called Arya. 
and somehow she recovered and caught herself in time. Some night she might have cried herself to sleep if she had still been Ari or Weasel or Cat or even Arya of House Stark. But no one had no tears. Without eyes, even the simplest task was perilous. She burned herself a dozen times as she worked with Uma in the kitchens. Once chopping onions, she cut her finger down to the bone. Twice she could not even find her own room in the cellar and had to sleep on the floor at the base of the steps. All the nooks and alcoves made the temple treacherous, even after the blind girl had learned to use her ears. The way her footsteps bounced off the ceiling and echoed round the legs of the thirty tall stone gods made the walls themselves seem to move, and the pool of still black water did strange things to sound as well. "'You have five senses,' the kindly man said. "'Learn to use the other four. You will have fewer cuts and scrapes and scabs.' She could feel air currents on her skin now. She could find the kitchens by their smell, tell men from women by their scents. She knew Uma and the servants and the acolytes by the pattern of their footfalls, could tell one from the other before they got close enough to smell. But not the waif or the kindly man, who hardly made a sound at all, unless they wanted to. The candles burning in the temple had scents as well. Even the unscented ones gave off faint wisps of smoke from their wicks. They had as well been shouting once she had learned to use her nose. The dead men had their own smell, too. One of her duties was to find them in the temple every morning, wherever they had chosen to lie down and close their eyes after drinking from the pool. This morning she found two. One man had died at the feet of the stranger, a single candle flickering above him. She could feel its heat, and the scent that he gave off tickled her nose. The candle burned with a dark red flame, she knew. For those with eyes, the corpse would have seemed awash in a ruddy glow. Before summoning the servant men to carry him away, she knelt and felt his face, tracing the line of his jaw, brushing her fingers across his cheeks and nose, touching his hair. Curly hair and thick, a handsome face, unlined. He was young. She wondered what had brought him here, to seek the gift of death. Dying brothers oft found their way to the house of black and white to hasten their ends, but this man had no wounds that she could find. The second body was that of an old woman. She had gone to sleep upon a dreaming couch in one of the hidden alcoves where special candles conjured visions of things loved and lost. A sweet death and a gentle one the kindly man was fond of saying. Her fingers told her that the old woman had died with a smile on her face. She had not been dead long. Her body was still warm to the touch. Her skin is so soft, like old thin leather that's been folded and wrinkled a thousand times. When the serving man arrived to bear the corpse away, the blind girl followed them. She let their footsteps be her guide, but when they made their descent, she counted. She knew the counts of all the steps by heart. Under the temple was a maze of vaults and tunnels, 
where even men with two good eyes were often lost. But the blind girl had learned every inch of it, and she had her stick to help her find her way should her memory falter. The corpses were laid out in the vault. The blind girl went to work in the dark, stripping the dead of boots and clothes and other possessions, emptying their purses and counting out their coins. Telling one coin from another by touch alone was one of the first things the waif had taught her after they took away her eyes. The Bravasi coins were old friends. She need only brush her fingertips across their faces to recognize them. Coins from other lands and cities were harder, especially those from far away. Volantine honors were most common. Little coins, no bigger than a penny, with a crown on one side and a skull on the other. Lysine coins were oval and showed a naked woman. Other coins had ships stamped under them, or elephants, or goats. The Westerosi coins showed a king's head on the front and a dragon on the back. The old woman had no purse, no wealth at all, but for a ring on one thin finger. On the handsome man she found four golden dragons out of Westeros. She was running the ball of her thumb across the most worn of them, trying to decide which king it showed, when she heard a door opening softly behind her. "'Who is there?' she asked. "'No one.' The voice was deep, harsh, cold, and moving. She stepped to one side, grabbed for her stick, snapped it up to protect her face. Wood clacked against wood. The force of the blow almost knocked the stick from her hand. She held on, slashed back, and found only empty air where he should have been. "'Not there,' the voice said. "'Are you blind?' She did not answer. Talking would only muddle any sounds he might be making. He would be moving, she knew. Left or right? She jumped left, swung right, hit nothing. A stinging cut from behind her caught her in the back of the legs. "'Are you deaf?' She spun, the stick in her left hand, whirling, missing. From the left she heard the sound of laughter. She slashed right. This time she connected. Her stick smacked off his own. The impact sent a jolt up her arm. "'Good!' the voice said. The blind girl did not know who the voice belonged to. One of the acolytes, she supposed. She did not remember ever hearing his voice before. But what was there to say that the servants of the many-faced god could not change their voices as easily as they did their faces. Besides her, the house of black and white was home to two serving men, three acolytes, Uma the cook, and the two priests, whom she called the waif and the kindly man. Others came and went, sometimes by secret ways, but those were the only ones who lived here. Her nemesis could be any of them. The girl darted sideways, her stick spinning, heard a sound behind her, whirled in that direction, struck at air, and all at once his own stick was between her legs, tangling them as she tried to turn again, scraping down her shin. She stumbled and went down to one knee. So hard she bit her tongue. There she stopped. Still a stone. Where is he? Behind her he laughed. He wrapped her smartly on one ear, then cracked her knuckles as she was scrambling to her feet. Her stick fell clattering to the stone. She hissed in fury. Go on, pick it up.
I'm done beating you for today. No one beat me. The girl crawled on all fours, then sprang back to her feet, bruised and dirty. The vault was still and silent. He was gone. Or was he? He could be standing right beside her. She would never know. Listen for his breathing, she told herself. But there was nothing. She gave it another moment, then put her stick aside and resumed her work. If I had my eyes, I could beat him bloody. One day the kindly man would give them back, and she would show them all. The old woman's corpse was cool by now, the bravo's body stiffening. The girl was used to that. Most days she spent more time with the dead than with the living. She missed the friends she'd had when she was cat of the canals, old Brusco with his bad back, his daughters, Talia and Bria, the mummers from the ship, Mary and her whores at the happy port, all the other rogues and wharf-side scum. She missed Cat herself, the most of all, even more than she missed her eyes. She had liked being Cat, more than she had ever liked being Salty or Squab or Weasel or Arry. I killed Cat when I killed that singer. The kindly man had told her that they would have taken her eyes from her anyway, to help her to learn to use her other senses, but not for half a year. Blind acolytes were common in the house of black and white, but few as young as she. The girl was not sorry, though. Darin had been a deserter from the night's watch. He had deserved to die. She had said as much to the kindly man. And you are a god to decide who should live and who should die? he asked her. We give the gift to those marked by him of many faces. After prayers and sacrifice, so it has always been from the beginning. I have told you of the founding of our order, of how the first of us answered the prayers of slaves who wish for death. The gift was given only to those who yearned for it in the beginning, but one day the first of us heard a slave praying not for his own death, but for his master's. So fervently did he desire this, that he offered all he had, that his prayer might be answered. And it seemed to our first brother that this sacrifice would be pleasing to him of many faces. So that night he granted the prayer. Then he went to the slave and said, You offered all you had for this man's death, but slaves have nothing but their lives. That is what the God desires of you. For the rest of your days on earth, you will serve him. And from that moment, we were two. His hand closed around her arm, gently but firmly. All men must die. We are but death's instruments, not death itself. When you slew the singer, you took God's powers on yourself. We kill men, but we do not presume to judge them. Do you understand? No, she thought. Yes, she said. You lie, and that is why you must now walk in darkness until you see the way. Unless you wish to leave us, you need only ask, and you may have your eyes back. No, she thought. No, she said. 
That evening after supper, and a short session of the lying game, the blind girl tied a strip of rag around her head to hide her useless eyes, found her begging bowl, and asked the waif to help her don Beth's face. The waif had shaved her head for her when they took her eyes, a mummer's cut, she called it, since many mummers did the same so their wigs might fit them better. But it worked for beggars too, and helped to keep their heads free from fleas and lice. More than a wig was needed, though. I could cover you with weeping sores, the waif said, but then innkeeps and taverners would chase you from their doors. Instead, she gave her pox scars and a mummer's mole on one cheek with a dark hair growing from it. Is it ugly? the blind girl asked. It's not pretty. Good. She had never cared if she was pretty, even when she was stupid Arya Stark. Only her father had ever called her that. Him and Jon Snow, sometimes. Her mother used to say she could be pretty if she would just wash and brush her hair and take more care with her dress, the way her sister did. To her sister and sister's friends and all the rest, she had just been Arya Horseface. But they were all dead now, even Arya, everyone but her half-brother John. Some night she heard talk of him in the taverns and brothels of the Ragman's Harbour. The Black Bastard of the Wall, one man had called him. Even John would never know blind Beth, I bet. That made her sad. The clothes she wore were rags, faded and fraying, but warm, clean rags for all that. Under them she hid three knives, one in a boot, one up a sleeve, one sheathed at the small of her back. Bravasi were a kindly folk, by and large, more like to help the poor blind beggar girl than try to do her harm. But there were always a few bad ones who might see her as someone they could safely rob or rape. The blades were for them, though so far the blind girl had not been forced to use them. A cracked wooden begging bowl and belt of hemp and rope completed her garb. She set out as the titan roared the sunset, counting her way down the steps from the temple door, then tapping to the bridge that took her over the canal to the Isle of the Gods. She could tell that the fog was thick from the clammy way her clothes clung to her and the damp feeling of the air on her bare hands. The mists of Bravas did queer things to sounds as well, she had found. Half the city will be half blind tonight. As she made her way past the temples, she could hear the acolytes of the cult of starry wisdom atop their scrying tower, singing to the evening stars. A wisp of scented smoke hung in the air, drawing her down the winding path to where the red priests had fired the great iron braziers outside the house of the Lord of Light. Soon she could even feel the heat in the air, as Red Relore's worshippers lifted their voices in prayer. For the night is dark and full of terrors, they prayed. Not for me. Her nights were bathed in moonlight and filled with the songs of her pack, with the taste of red meat torn off the bone, with the warm familiar smells of her grey cousins, 
Only during the days was she alone and blind. She was no stranger to the waterfront. Cat used to prowl the wharfs and alleys of the Ragman's Harbour, selling mussels and oysters and clams for Brusco. With her rag and her shaved head and her mama's mole, she did not look the same as she had then. But just to be safe, she stayed away from the ship and the happy port and the other places where Cat had been best known. She knew each inn and tavern by its scent. The black bargeman had a briny smell. Pinto stank of sour wine, stinky cheese, and Pinto himself, who never changed his clothes or washed his hair. At the sailmenders, the smoky air was always spiced with the scent of roasting meat. The house of seven lamps was fragrant with incense. The satin palace with the perfumes of pretty young girls who dreamed of being courtesans. Each place had its own sounds, too. Morago's and the Inn of the Green Eel had singers performing most nights. At the Outcast Inn, the patrons themselves did the singing, in drunken voices and half a hundred tongues. The fughouse was always crowded with polemen off the serpent boats, arguing about guards and courtesans and whether or not the sea lord was a fool. The Saturn Palace was much quieter, a place of whispered endearments, the soft rustle of silk gowns and the giggling of girls. Beth did her begging at a different place every night. She had learned early on that innkeeps and taverners were more apt to tolerate her presence if it was not a frequent occurrence. Last night she had spent outside the Inn of the Green Eel, so tonight she turned right instead of left, after the bloody bridge, and made her way to Pinto's, at the other end of the Ragman's Harbour, right on the edge of the drowned town. Loud and smelly he might be, but Pinto had a soft heart, under all his unwashed clothes and bluster. Oft as not, he would let her come inside, where it was warm, if the place was not too crowded, and now and again he might even let her have a mug of ale and a crust of food, whilst regaling her with his stories. In his younger days, Pinto had been the most notorious pirate in the Stepstones, to hear him tell it. He loved nothing better than to speak at great length about his exploits. She was in luck tonight. The tavern was near empty, and she was able to claim a quiet corner not far from the fire. No sooner had she settled there and crossed her legs when something brushed up against her thigh. "'You again,' said the blind girl. She scratched his head behind one ear, and the cat jumped up into her lap and began to purr. Bravus was full of cats, and no place more than Pinto's. The old pirate believed they brought good luck and kept his tavern free of vermin. "'You know me, don't you?' she whispered. Cats were not fooled by mamma's moles. They remembered Cat of the Canals. It was a good night for the blind girl. Pinto was in a jolly mood and gave her a cup of watered wine, a chunk of stinky cheese, and half of an ale pie. Pinto is a very good man, he announced, then settled down to tell her of the time he seized the spice ship, a tale she had heard a dozen times before. As the hours passed, the tavern filled. Pinto was soon too busy to pay her any mind, but several of his regulars dropped coins 
into a begging bowl. Other tables were occupied by strangers, Ebony's whalers, who reeked of blood and blubber, a pair of bravas with scented oil in their hair, a fat man out of Loris, who complained that Pinto's booths were too small for his belly, and later three Lyseni, sailors of the good heart, a storm-wracked galley that had limped into Bravas last night, and been seized this morning by the Sea Lord's guards. The Lyseni took the table nearest to the fire, and spoke quietly over cups of black tar rum, keeping their voices low so no one could overhear. But she was no one, and she heard most every word. And for a time it seemed that she could see them too, through the slitted yellow eyes of the tomcat purring in her lap. One was old and one was young, and one had lost an ear, but all three had the white blonde hair and smooth fair skin of lice, where the blood of the old freehold still ran strong. The next morning, when the kindly man asked her what three things she knew that she had not known before, she was ready. I know why the sea lord seized the good heart. She was carrying slaves, hundreds of slaves, women and children, roped together in her hold. Bravas had been founded by escaped slaves, and the slave trade was forbidden here. I know where the slaves came from. They were wildlings from Westeros, from a place called Hard Home, an old ruined place accursed. Old Nan had told her tales of Hard Home back at Winterfell when she had still been Arya Stark. After the big battle, where the king beyond the wall was killed, the wildlings ran away, and this woods witch said if they went to Hard Home, ships would come and carry them away to some place warm. But no ships came except those two Lyseni pirates, Goodheart and Elephant, that had been driven north by the storm. They dropped anchor off Hardhome to make repairs and saw the wildlings, but there were thousands, and they didn't have room for all of them, so they said they'd just take the women and the children. The wildlings have nothing to eat, so the men sent out their wives and daughters, but as soon as the ships were out to sea, the Lyseni drove them below and roped them up, they meant to sell them all in lice. Only then they ran into another storm and the ships were parted. The good heart was so damaged her captain had no choice but to put in here. But the elephant may have made it back to lice. The Lyseni at Pinto's think that she'll return with more ships. The price of slaves is rising, they said, and there are thousands more women and children at heart home. It is good to know... This is two. Is there a third? Yes. I know that you're the one who's been hitting me. Her stick flashed out and cracked against his fingers, sending his own stick clattering to the floor. The priest winced and snatched his hand back. And how could a blind girl know that? I saw you. I gave you three. I don't need to give you four. Maybe on the morrow she would tell him about the cat that had followed her home last night from Pinto's, the cat that was hiding in the rafters looking down on them. Or maybe not. If he could have secrets, so could she. That evening Uma served salt-crusted crabs for supper. When her cup was presented to her 
the blind girl wrinkled her nose and drank it down in three long gulps. Then she gasped and dropped the cup. Her tongue was on fire, and when she gulped a cup of wine, the flames spread down her throat and up her nose. Wine will not help, and water will just fan the flames, the waif told her. Eat this. A heel of bread was pressed into her hand. The girl stuffed it in her mouth, chewed, swallowed. It helped. A second chunk helped more. And come the morning, when the night wolf left her, and she opened her eyes, she saw that a tallow candle was burning, where no candle had been the night before, its uncertain flame swaying back and forth like a whore at the happy port. She had never seen anything so beautiful.